This is Audible. Books on Tape presents A Storm of Swords Book Three of A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin Read by Roy Detrice Prologue The day was grey and bitter cold, and the dogs would not take the scent. The big black bitch had taken one sniff at the bear tracks, backed off, and skulked back to the pack with her tail between her legs. The dogs huddled together miserably on the river bank as the wind snapped at them. Chet felt it too, biting through his layers of black wool and boiled leather. It was too bloody cold for man or beast, but here they were. His mouth twisted, and he could almost feel the boils that covered his cheeks and neck growing red and angry. "'I should be safe back at the wall, tending the bloody ravens, and making fires for old Maester Eamon.' It was the bastard John Snow who had taken that from him, him and his fat friend Sam Tarley. It was their fault he was here, freezing his bloody balls off with a pack of hounds deep in the haunted forest. Seven elves. He gave the leashes a hard gank to get the dog's attention. Track, you bastards! That's a bear print! You want some meat or no? Find! But the hounds only huddled closer, whining. Chet snapped his short lash above their heads, and the black bitch snarled at him. Dog meat would taste as good as bear, he warned her, his breath frosting with every word. Lark, the sister man, stood with his arms crossed over his chest and his hands tucked up into his armpits. He wore black wool gloves, but he was always complaining how his fingers were frozen. It's too bloody cold, don't, he said. Bugger this bear, is not worth freezing over. We can't go back empty hand, Lark, rumbled small paw through the brown whiskers that covered most of his face. The Lord Commander wouldn't like that. There was ice under the big man's squash pug nose where his snot had frozen. A huge hand in a thick fur glove clenched tight around the shaft of a spear. Bugger that old bear, too, said the sister man, a thin man with sharp features and nervous eyes. Mormont will be dead before daybreak, remember? Who cares what he likes? Small Paul blinked his black little eyes. Maybe he had forgotten, Chet thought. He was stupid enough to forget almost anything. Why do we have to kill the old bear? Why don't we just go off and let him be? Yes, think it let us be, said Lark. He'll hunt us down. You want to be hunted, you great muttonhead? No, said Small Paul. I don't want that. I don't. So you'll kill him, said Lark. Yes. The huge man stamped the butt of his spear on the frozen river bank. I will. He shouldn't hunt us. The sister man took his hands from his armpits and turned to Chet. We need to kill all the officers, I see. Chet was sick of hearing it. We've been over this. The old bear dies and blamed from the shadow tower. Grubs and Aethon as well. They're ill luck for drawing the watch. Darwin and Bannon for their tracking, and Sir Piggy for the ravens. That's all. We kill them quiet while they sleep. One scream and we're worm food, every one of us. His boils were red with rage. Just do your bit and see that your cousins do theirs. And Paul, 
Try and remember it's third watch, not second. Third watch, the big man said through hair and frozen snot. Me and Softfoot. I remember, chat. The moon would be black tonight, and they had jiggered the watches so as to have eight of their own standing sentry, with two more guarding the horses. It wasn't going to get much riper than that. Besides, the wildlings could be upon them any day now. Chet meant to be well away from here before that happened. He meant to live. Three hundred sworn brothers of the Night's Watch had ridden north, two hundred from Castle Black and another hundred from the Shadow Tower. It was the biggest ranging in living memory, near to a third of the Watch's strength. They meant to find Ben Stark, Sir Waymar Royce, and the other rangers who'd gone missing, and discover why the wildlings were leaving their villages. Well, they were no closer to Stark and Royce than when they'd left the wall, but they'd learn where all the wildlings had gone, up into the icy heights of the godforsaken Frostfangs. They could squat up there till the end of time, and it wouldn't trick Chet's boils none. But no, they were coming down, down the milk water. Chet raised his eyes, and there it was. The river's stony banks were bearded by ice, its pale, milky waters flowing endlessly down out of the frostfangs. And now Mance Raider and his wildlings were flowing down the same way. Thorin Smallwood had returned in a ladder three days past. While he was telling the old bear what his scouts had seen, his man, Kedge Whiteye, told the rest of them. They're still well up the foothills, but they're coming, Ked said, warming his hands over the fire. Harma, the dog's head, has a van, the poxy bitch. Goldie crept up on her camp and saw her playing by the fire. That fool, Tumblejohn, wanted to pick her off with an arrow, but Smallwood had better sense. Chet spat. How many were there, could you tell? Oh, many and more. Twenty, thirty thousand, we didn't stay to count. Armour had five hundred in the van, every one a horse. The men around the fire exchanged uneasy looks. It was a rare thing to find even a dozen mounted wildlings, and five hundred? Smallwood sent Bannon and me wide round the van to catch a peek at the main body, Kedge went on. There was no end of them. They're moving slow as a frozen river, four, five miles a day, but they don't look like they mean to go back to their villages neither. More than half were women and children, and they were driving their animals before them, goat, sheep, even oryx, dragging sledges. They'd loaded up with bales of fur and sides of meat, cages of chickens, butter churns and spinning wheels, every damn thing they own. The mules and garrons were so heavy laden, you think their backs would break. The women as well. And they follow the milk water? Lark the sister man asked. I said so, didn't I? The milk water would take them past the fist of the first men, the ancient ring fort where the night's watch had made its camp. Any man with a thimble of sense could see that it was time to pull up stakes and fall back on the wall. The old bear had strengthened the fist with spikes and pits and caltrops, but against such a host all that was pointless. If they stayed here, they would be engulfed and overwhelmed. And Thorin Smallwood wanted to attack. 
Sweet Donnell Hill was squire to Sir Malador Locke, and the night before last Smallwood had come to Locke's tent. Sir Malador had been of the same mind as old Sir Utton Withers, urging a retreat on the wall, but Smallwood wanted to convince him otherwise. "'This king beyond the wall will never look for us so far north,' Sweet Donnell reported him saying, "'and this great host of his is a shambling horde, full of useless mouths who won't know what end of a sword to hold. One blow will take all the fight out of them and send them howling back to their hovels for another fifty years.' Three hundred against thirty thousand. Chet called that rank madness.' And what was madder still was that Sir Malador had been persuaded, and the two of them together were on the point of persuading the old bear. If we wait too long, this chance may, may be lost, never to come again, Smallwood was saying to anyone who would listen. Against that, Sir Ottin Withers said, We are the shield that guards the realms of men. You do not throw away your shield for no good purpose. But to that Thorin Smallwood said, "'In a sword for far fight, a man's surest defence is a swift st stroke that slays his foe, not cringing behind a, sh a shield.' Neither Smallwood nor Withers had the commander. Lord Mormont did, and Mormont was waiting for his other scouts, for Jarman Buckwell and the men who had climbed the giant stair, and for Corin Halfhand and John Snow— who'd gone to probe the skirling pass. Buckwell and the half-hand were late in returning, though. Dead, most like. Chet pictured Jon Snow lying blue and frozen on some bleak mountaintop with a wildling spear of his bastard ass. The thought made him smile. I hope they killed his bloody wolf as well. There's no bear here, he decided abruptly. Just an old print, that's all. Back to the fist! The dogs almost yanked him off his feet, as eager to get back as he was. Maybe they thought they were going to get fed. Chet had to laugh. He hadn't fed them for three days now to turn them mean and hungry. Tonight, before slipping off into the dark, he'd turn them loose among the horse lines after Sweet Donald Hill and Clubfoot Carl cut the tethers. They'll have snarling hounds and panicked horses all over the fist running through fires, jumping a ring wall, and trampling down tents. With all the confusion, it might be hours before anyone noticed that fourteen brothers were missing. Lark had wanted to bring in twice that number, but what could you expect from some stupid fish-breath sister-man? Whisper a word in the wrong ear, and before you knew it, you'd be short ahead. No, fourteen was a good number, enough to do what needed doing— but not so many that they couldn't keep the secret. Chet had recruited most of them himself. Small Paul was one of his, the strongest man on the wall, even if he was slower than a dead snail. He'd once broken a wildling's back with a hug. They had Dirk as well, named for his favourite weapon, and the little grey man the brothers called Softfoot, who'd raped a hundred women in his youth, and liked to boast how none had never seen nor heard him until he shoved it up inside them. The plan was Chet's. He was the clever one. He'd been steward to old Maester Amon for four good years before that bastard Jon Snow had done him out, so his job could be handed to that fat pig of a friend.
When he killed Sam Tarley tonight, he planned to whisper, Give my love to Lord Snow, right in his ear before he sliced the piggy's throat open to let the blood come bubbling out through all those layers of suet. Chet knew the ravens, so he wouldn't have no trouble there, no more than he would with Tarley. One touch of the knife, and that craven would piss his pants and start blubbering for his life. Let him beg. It won't do him no good. After he'd opened his throat, he'd open the cages and shoo the birds away, so no messages reached the wall. Softfoot and Small Paul would kill the old bear, Dirk would do Blaine, and Lark and his cousins would silence Bannon and old Dywin to keep them from sniffing after their trail. They'd been caching food for a fortnight, and sweet Donald and Clubfoot Carl would have the horses ready. With Mormont dead, command would pass to Sir Utton Withers, an old Don man, and failing. He'd be running for the war before sundown, and he won't waste no men sending them after us neither. The dogs pulled at him as they made their way through the trees. Chet could see the fist punching its way up through the green. The day was so dark that the old bear had the torches lit, a great circle of them burning all along the ring wall that crowned the top of the steep stony hill. The three of them waded across a brook. The water was icy cold, and patches of ice were spreading across its surface. "'I'm going to make for the coast,' Lark the sister man confided. "'Me and my cousins will build us a boat, sail back home to the sisters.' And at home they'll know you for deserters and lop off your fool heads, thought Chet. There was no leaving the night's watch, once you said your words. Anywhere in the Seven Kingdoms they'd take you and kill you. Ollo Lophan now. He was talking about sailing back to Tyrosh, where he claimed men didn't lose their heads for a bit of honest thievery, nor get sent off to freeze their life away for being found in bed with some knight's wife. Chet had Wade going with him, but he didn't speak their wet, girly tongue, and what could he do in Tyrosh? He had no trade to speak of, growing up in Hagsmire. His father had spent his life grubbing in other men's fields and collecting leeches. He'd strip down bare but for a thick leather clout and go wading in the murky waters. When he climbed out, he'd be covered from nipple to ankle. Sometimes he made Chet help pull the leeches off. One had attached itself to his palm once, and he'd smashed it against a wall in revulsion. His father beat him bloody for that. The maesters bought the leeches at twelve for a penny. Lark could go home if he liked, and that damned Tyrushi too, but not yet. If he never saw Hagsmire again, it would be too bloody soon. He had liked the look of Craster's keep himself. Craster lived high as a lord there, so why shouldn't he do the same? That would be a laugh. Chet, the leechman's son, a lord with a keep. His banner could be a dozen leeches on a field of pink. But why stop at lord? Maybe he should be a king. Man's raider started out as a crow. I could be a king, same as him, and have me some wives. Craster had nineteen, not even counting the young ones, the daughters he hadn't gotten around to bedding yet. Half them wives were as old and ugly as Craster, but that didn't matter. The old ones Chet could put to work, cooking and cleaning for him, 
pulling carrots and slopping pigs, while the young ones warmed his bed and bore his children. Craster wouldn't object. Not one small paw gave him a hug. The only women Chet had ever known were the whores he'd bought in Molestown. When he'd been younger, the village girls took one look at his face with its boils and its wen, and turned away sickened. The worst was that slattern Besser. She'd spread her legs for every boy in Hagsmire, so he figured, why not him too? He even spent a morning picking wildflowers when he heard she liked them, but she'd just laughed in his face and told him she'd crawl in a bed with his father's leeches before she'd crawl in one with him. She stopped laughing when he put his knife in her. That was sweet, the look on her face. So he pulled the knife out and put it in her again. When they caught him, down their seven streams, old Lord Walder Frey hadn't even bothered to come himself to do the judging. He'd sent one of his bastards, that Walder Rivers, and the next thing Chet had known, he was walking to the wall with that foul-smelling black devil Yoren, to pay for his one sweet moment they took his whole life. But now he meant to take it back, and Craster's women too. That twisted old wilding has a right of it. If you want a woman to wife, you take her, and none of this giving her flowers, so that maybe she don't notice your bloody boils. Chet didn't mean to make that mistake again. It would work, he promised himself for the hundredth time, so long as we get away clean. Sir Aten would strike south for the Shadow Tower, the shortest way to the wall. He won't bother with us, not with us. All he'll want is to get back whole. Thorin Smallwood now. He'd want to press on with the attack, but Sir Aten's caution ran too deep, and he was senior. It won't matter anyhow. Once we're gone, Smallwood can attack anyone he likes. What do we care? If none of them ever returns to the wall, no one will ever come looking for us. They'll think we died with the rest. That was a new thought, and for a moment it tempted him. But they would need to kill Sir Utton and Sir Malador Locke as well to give Smallwood the command, and both of them were well attended day and night. No, the risk was too great. Chat, said Small Paul, as they trudged along a stony game trail through sentinels and soldier pines. What about the bird? What bloody bird? The last thing he needed now was some muttonhead going on about a bird. The old bear's raven, Small Paul said. If we kill him, who's going to feed his bird? Who bloody well cares? Kill a bird too, if you like. I don't want to kill no bird the big man said. But that's a talking bird. What if it tells what we did? Lark, the sister man, laughed. Small ball, thick as a castle wall, he mopped. You shut up with that, said Small Paul dangerously. Paul, said Chet, before the big man got too angry, when they find the old man lying in a pool of blood with his throat slit, they won't need no bird to tell them someone killed him. Small Paul chewed on that a moment. That's true, he allowed. Can I keep the bird, then? I like that bird. He's yours, said Chet, just to shut him up. We can always eat him if we get hungry, 
offered Lark. Small paw clouded up again. Bass not try and eat my bird, Lark. Bass not. Chet could hear voices drifting through the trees. Close your bloody mouths, both of you. We're almost to the fist. They emerged near the west face of the hill and walked around south, where the slope was gentler. Near the edge of the forest, a dozen men were taking archery practice. They had carved outlines on the trunks of trees and were loosing shafts at them. Look, said Lark, a pig with a bow. Sure enough, the nearest bowman was Sir Piggy himself, the fat boy who had stolen his place with Maester Amon. Just the sight of Samuel Tarley filled him with anger. Stewarding for Maester Amon had been as good a life as he'd ever known. The old blind man was undemanding, and Clydus had taken care of most of his wants anyway. Chet's duties were easy. Cleaning the rookery, a few fires to build, a few meals to fetch. And Amon never once hit him. Thinks he can just walk in and shove me out on account of being eye-born and knowing how to read. Might be I'll ask him to read my knife before I open his soap with it. You go on, he told the others. I want to watch this. The dogs were pulling, anxious to go with them, to the food they thought would be waiting at the top. Chet kicked the bitch with the toe of his boot, and that settled them down some. He watched from the trees as the fat boy wrestled with the longbow as tall as he was. His red moon face screwed up with concentration. Three arrows stood in the ground before him. Tarly knocked and drew, held the draw a long moment as he tried to aim and let fly. The shaft vanished into the greenery. Chet laughed loudly, a snort of sweet disgust. Cor will never find that one, and I'll be blamed, announced Ed Tollett, the dour, grey-headed squire everyone called Dolorous Ed. Cor, nothing ever goes missing that they don't look at me. Ever since that time, I lost my horse, eh? As if that could be helped. He was white, and it was snowing, eh? What did they expect? The wind took that one, said Gren, another friend of Lord Snow's. Try to hold the bow steady, Sam. That's heavy, the fat boy complained. But he pulled the second arrow all the same. This one went high, sailing through the branches ten feet above the target. Oh, I believe you knocked a leaf off that tree, said Dolorous Ed. Fall is falling fast enough, eh? There's no need to help it, <laughs> he sighed. And we all know what follows fall, eh? God, but I'm cold. Caw, shoot the last arrow, Samwell. I believe my tongue is freezing to the roof of my mouth, eh? So Piggy lowered the bow, and Chet thought he was going to start bawling. That's too hard. Notch, draw, and loose, said Gren. Go on. Dutifully, the fat boy plucked his final arrow from the earth, notched it to his long bow, drew and released. He did it quickly, without squinting along the shaft, painstakingly, as he had the first two times. The arrow struck the charcoal outline low in the chest and hung quivering. "'I hit him!' Sir Piggy sounded shocked. "'Gran, did you see?' Ed, look, I hit him. Put it between his ribs, I'd say, said Gren. Did I kill him? The fat boy wanted to know. 
Tullet shrugged. Might have punctured a lung if he had a lung. Most trees don't as a rule, eh? He took the bow from Sam's hand. I've seen worse shots, though. I and made a few. Sir Piggy was beaming. To look at him, you'd think he'd actually done something. But when he saw Chet and the dogs, his smile curled up and died squeaking. You it a tree, Chet said. Let's see how you shoot when it's Mance Raiders, lads. They won't stand there with their arms out and their leaves rustling. Oh, no, they'll come right at you, screaming in your face, and I bet you'll piss those britches. One of them will plant his axe right between those little pig eyes. The last thing you'll hear will be the thunk it makes when it bites into your skull. The fat boy was shaking. Dolores Ed put a hand on his shoulder. Brother, he said solemnly, just because it happened that way for you doesn't mean Samwell will suffer the same, eh? What are you talking about, Tullet? Call that axe to split your skull, eh? Is it true that half your wits leaked out on the ground and your dogs ate them, eh? The big lout Gren laughed, and even Samuel Tarley managed a weak little smile. Chet kicked the nearest dog, yanked on their leashes, and started up the hill. Smile all you want, Sir Piggy. We'll see who laughs tonight. He only wished he had time to kill Tullard as well. Gloomy, horse-faced fool, that's what he is. The climb was steep, even on this side of the fist, which had the gentler slope. Part way up, the dog started barking and pulling at him, figuring that they'd get fed soon. He gave them a taste of his boot instead, and a crack of the whip for the big ugly one that snapped at him. Once they were tied up, he went to report. The prints were there, like Giant said, but the dogs wouldn't track, he told Mormont in front of his big black tent. Down by the river like that could be old prince. Yeah, pity, Lord Commander Mormont had a bald head and a great shaggy grey beard and sounded as tired as he looked. We might all have been better for a bit of fresh meat. The raven on his shoulder bobbed its head and echoed, Meat! 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 We could cook the bloody dogs, Chet thought, but he kept his mouth shut until the old bear sent him on his way. And that's the last time I'll need to bow my head to that one, he thought to himself with satisfaction. It seemed to him that it was growing even colder, which he would have sworn wasn't possible. The dogs huddled together miserably in the hard, frozen mud, and Chet was half tempted to crawl in with them. Instead, he wrapped a black wool scarf around the lower part of his face, leaving a slit for his mouth between the wines. It was warmer if he kept moving, he found, so he made a slow circuit of the perimeter with a wad of sire-leaf, sharing a chew or two with the black brothers on guard and hearing what they had to say. None of the men on the day watch were part of his scheme. Even so, he figured it was good to have some sense of what they were thinking. Mostly what they were thinking was that it was bloody cold. The wind was rising as the shadows lengthened. It made a high, thin sound as it shivered through the stones of the ring wall. I hate that sound, little giant said. It sounds like a babe in the brush wailing away for milk. When he finished the circuit, 
and returned to the dogs, he found Lark waiting for him. The officers are in the old bear's tent again, talking something fierce. That's what they do, said Chet. They're high-born, all but Blaine. They get drunk on words instead of wine. Lark sidled closer. Cheese for wits. Keeps going on about the bird, he warned, glancing about to make certain no one was close. Now he's asking if we cashed any seed for the damn thing. It's a raven, said Chet. It eats corpses. Lark grinned. Is, might be. Or yours. It seemed to Chet that they needed the big man more than they needed Lark. Stop fretting about small Paul. You do your part, he'll do his. Twilight was creeping through the woods by the time he rid himself of the sister man and sat down to edge his sword. It was bloody hard work, with his gloves on. But he wasn't about to take them off. Cold as it was, any fool that touched steel with a bare hand was going to lose a patch of skin. The dogs whimpered when the sun went down. He gave them water and curses. Half a night more, and you can find your own feast. By then he could smell supper. Dywin was holding forth at the cook fire as Chet got his heel of hard bread and a bowl of bean and bacon soup from Hake the cook. The wood's too silent, the old forester was saying. No frogs near that river. No owls in the dark. I never heard no deader wood than this. Them teeth of yours sound pretty dead, said Hake. Dywin clacked his wooden teeth. No woods neither. There was before, but no more. Where'd they go, you figure? Some place warm, said Chet. Of the dozen odd brothers who sat by the fire, four were his. He gave each one a hard, squinty look as he ate, to see if any showed signs of breaking. Dirk seemed calm enough, sitting silent and sharpening his blade the way he did every night, and sweet Donald Hill was all easy japes. He had white teeth and fat red lips and yellow locks, that he wore in an artful tumble about his shoulders, and he came to be the bastard of some Lannister. Well, maybe he was at that. Chet had no use for pretty boys, nor for bastards neither, but Swede Donnell seemed like to hold his own. He was less certain about the forester the brothers called Saw Wood, more for his snoring than for anything to do with trees. Just now he looked so restless he might never snore again and Maslin was worse. Chet could see sweat trickling down his face, despite the frigid wind. The beads of moisture sparkled in the firelight like so many little wet jewels. Maslin wasn't eating neither, only staring at his soup as if the smell of it was about to make him sick. I'll need to watch that one, Chet thought. Assemble! The shout came suddenly from a dozen throats, and quickly spread to every part of the hilltop camp. Men of the night's watch, assemble at the central fire! Frowning, Chet finished his soup and followed the rest. The old bear stood before the fire with Smallwood, Locke, Withers and Blaine ranged behind him in a row. Mormont wore a cloak of thick black fur, and his raven perched upon his shoulder, preening its black feathers. This can't be good. Chet squeezed between Brown Banar and some Shadow Tower men. When everyone was gathered, save for the watchers in the woods and the guards on the ring wall, 
Mormon cleared his throat and spat. The spittle was frozen before it hit the ground. Brothers, he said, men of the night's watch. Men, his raven screamed. Men, men. The wildlings are on the march, following the course of the milk water down out of the mountains. Thorin believes their van will be upon us ten days hence. Their most seasoned raiders will be with Harmer Dogshead in that van. The rest will likely form a rear guard, or ride in close company with Mance Raider himself. Elsewhere their fighters will be spread thin along the line of march. They have oxen, mules, horses, but few enough. Most will be afoot, and ill-armed and untrained. Such weapons as they carry are more like to be stone and bone than steel. They're burdened with women, children, herds of sheep and goats, and all their worldly goods besides. In short, though they are numerous, they are vulnerable, and they do not know that we are here. Or so we must pray. They know, thought Chet. You bloody old pussbag, they know. Certain as sunrise. Corrin Halfhand hasn't come back, has he? Nor Jarmin Buckwell. If any of them got caught, you know damn well the wildlings will have wrung a song or two out of them by now. Smallwood stepped forward. Munch raid eh, means to b b break the wall and, and bring red w war to the seven kingdoms. Well, that's a game too can play. On the morrow, we'll bring the war to, 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 to him. We ride at dawn with all our strength, the old bear said, as a murmur went through the assembly. We will ride north and loop around to the west. Harmer's van will be well past the fist by the time we turn. The foothills of the Frostfangs are full of narrow winding valleys made for ambush. Their line of march will stretch for many miles. We shall fall on them in several places at once and make them swear we were three thousand, not three hundred. We'll hit hard and be away b before the horsemen can form up to defer to face us, Thorin Smallwood said. If they p pursue, we'll lead them a merry chase, then wheel and hit again, further down the column. We'll burn their wagons, scatter their herds, and slay as many as we can. Manch Raider himself, if we find him, if they break and return to their ho hovels, we've won. If not, we'll harrow them all the way to the wall and see to it that they leave a tra 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 trail of corpses to mark their progress. There are thousands, someone called from behind Chet. We'll die! That was Maslin's voice, green with fear. Die! screamed Mormon's raven, flapping its black wings. Die! 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 Many of us, the old bear said, mayhaps even all of us, but as another Lord Commander said, a thousand years ago, that is why they dress us in black. Remember your words, brothers, for we are the swords in the darkness, the watchers on the walls. The fire that burns against the cold, Sir Maldor Luck drew his longsword. The light that brings the dawn, others answered. 
and more swords were pulled from scabbards. Then all of them were drawing, and it was near three hundred upraised swords, and as many voices crying, The horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. Chet had no choice but to join his voice to the others. The air was misty with their breath, and firelight glinted off the steel. He was pleased to see Lark and Softfoot and sweet Donald Hill joining in, as if they were as big fools as the rest. That was good. No sense to draw attention when their R was so close. When the shouting died away, once more he heard the sound of the wind picking at the ring wall. The flames swirled and shivered, as if they too were cold, and in the sudden quiet the old bear's raven cawed loudly and once again said, Die! Clever bird, thought Chet, as the officers dismissed them, warning everyone to get a good meal and a long rest tonight. Chet crawled under his furs near the dogs, his head full of things that could go wrong. What if that bloody oath gave one of his a change of heart? Or small Paul forgot and tried to kill Mormont during the second watch in place of the third? Or Maslin lost his courage, or someone turned informer, or— He found himself listening to the night. The wind did sound like a wailing child, and from time to time he could hear men's voices, a horse's whinny, a log spitting in the fire, but nothing else. So quiet. He could see Bessa's face floating before him. It wasn't a knife. I wanted to put in you. He wanted to tell her. I picked you flowers, wild roses and tansy and golden cups. It took me all morning. His heart was thumping like a drum, so loud he feared it might wake the camp. Ice caked his beard all round his mouth. Where did that come from? It was better. Whenever he'd thought of her before, it had only been to remember the way she looked, dying. What was wrong with him? He could hardly breathe. Had he gone to sleep? He got to his knees, and something wet and cold touched his nose. Chet looked up. Snow was falling. He could feel tears freezing to his cheeks. It isn't fair, he wanted to scream. Snow would ruin everything he'd worked for, all his careful plans. It was a heavy fall, thick white flakes coming down all about him. How would they find their food caches in the snow, or the game trail they meant to follow east? They won't need Darwin nor Bannon to hunt us down neither. Not if we're tracking through fresh snow. And snow hid the shape of the ground, especially by night. A horse could stumble over a root, break a leg on a stone. We're done, he realized. Done before we began. We're lost. There'd be no lord's life for the leechman's son. No keep to call his own, no wives, no crowns. Only a wildling sword in his belly, and then an unmarked grave. The snow's taken it all from me. A bloody snow. Snow had ruined him once before. Snow and his pet pig. Chet got to his feet. His legs were stiff and the falling snowflakes turned the distant torches to vague orange glows. He felt as though he were being attacked by a cloud of pale, cold bugs. 
They settled on his shoulders, on his head. They flew at his nose and his eyes. Cursing, he brushed them off. Samuel Tarley, he remembered. I can still deal with Sir Piggy. He wrapped his scarf around his face, pulled up his hood, and went striding through the camp to where the coward slept. The snow was falling so heavily that he got lost among the tents, but finally he spotted the snug little windbreak the fat boy had made for himself between a rock and the raven cages. Tarley was buried beneath a mound of black wool blankets and shaggy furs. The snow was drifting in to cover him. He looked like some kind of soft round mountain. Steel whispered on leather faint as hope as Chet eased his dagger from his sheath. One of the ravens quarked. Snow, murmured another, peering through the bars with black eyes. The first added a snow of its own. He edged past them, placing each foot carefully. He would clap his left hand down over the fat boy's mouth to muffle his cries, and then, Oh! He stopped mid-step, swallowing his curse, as the sound of the horn shuddered through the camp, faint and far yet unmistakable. Not now! Gods be damned, not now! The old bear had hidden far eyes in the ring of trees around the fist to give warning of any approach. Jarman Buckwell's back from the giant stair, Chet figured, or Corrin Halfhand from the skirling pass. A single blast of the horn meant brothers returning. If it was the half-hand, John Snow might be with him, alive. Sam Tarley sat up, puffy-eyed, and stared at the snow in confusion. The ravens were cawing noisily, and Chet could hear his dogs baying. Half the bloody camp's awake. His gloved fingers clenched round the dagger's hilt as he waited for the sound to die away. But no sooner had it gone than it came again, louder and longer. Ooh! Gods! he heard Sam Tarley whimper. The fat boy lurched to his knees, his feet tangled in his cloak and blankets. He kicked them away and reached for a chainmail hauberk he'd hung on the rock nearby. As he slipped the huge tent of a garment down over his head and wriggled into it, he spied Chet standing there. "'Was it two? he asked. "'I dreamed I heard two blasts.' "'No dream,' said Chet. Two blasts to call the watch to arms. Two blasts for foes approaching. "'There's an axe out there with piggy writ on it, fat boy. Two blasts means... Wildings. The fear on that big moon face made him want to laugh. Bugger them all to seven hells. Bloody armor, bloody manse raider, bloody small wood, he said. They wouldn't be on us for another. Ooh! The sound went on and on and on until it seemed it would never die. The ravens were flapping and screaming, flying about their cages and banging off the bars, and all about the camp the brothers of the Night's Watch were rising, donning their armor, buckling on sword belts, reaching for battle-axes and bows. Samuel Tarley stood shaking, his face the same color as the snow that swirled down all around them. Three, he squeaked to Chet. That was three, I heard three. 
Oh, they never blow three, not for hundreds and thousands of years. Three means <laughs> others. Chet made a sound that was half a laugh and half a sub. And suddenly his small clothes were wet, and he could feel the piss running down his leg, see steam rising off the front of his breeches. Jamie An east wind blew through his tangled hair, as soft and fragrant as Circe's fingers. He could hear birds singing and feel the river moving beneath the boat as the sweep of the oars sent them toward the pale pink dawn. After so long in darkness, the world was so sweet that Jamie Lannister felt dizzy. I am alive and drunk on sunlight. <laughs> a laugh burst from his lips, sudden as a quail flushed from cover. Quiet, the wench grumbled, scowling. Scowl suited her broad, homely face better than a smile. Not that Jamie had ever seen her smiling. He amused himself by picturing her in one of Circe's silken gowns in place of a studded leather jerkin. As well dress a cow in silk as this one. But the cow could row. Beneath her rough-spun brown breeches were calves like cords of wood, and the long muscles of her arms stretched and tightened with each stroke of the oars. Even after rowing half the night, she showed no signs of tiring which was more than could be said for his cousin, Sir Cleos, labouring on the other oar. A big, strong peasant wench to look at, yet she speaks like one high-born, and wears long-sword and dagger. Ah, but can she use them? Jamie meant to find out, as soon as he'd rid himself of these fetters. He wore iron manacles on his wrists, and a matching pair about his ankles, joined by a length of heavy chain no more than a foot long. "'You'd think my word as a Lannister was not good enough,' he japed as they bound him. He'd been very drunk by then, thanks to Catelyn Stark. Of their escape from River Run he recalled only bits and pieces. There had been some trouble with the jailer, but the big wench had overcome him. After that they had climbed an endless stair around and around.' His legs were weak as grass, and he'd stumbled twice or thrice, until the wench lent him an arm to lean on. At some point he was bundled into a traveller's cloak and shoved into the bottom of a skiff. He remembered listening to Lady Catelyn command someone to raise the portcullis on the watergate. She was sending Sir Cleos Frey back to King's Landing with new terms for the Queen. She declared in a tone that brooked no argument. He must have drifted off then. The wine had made him sleepy, and it felt good to stretch, a luxury his chains had not permitted him in the cell. Jamie had long ago learned to snatch sleep in the saddle during a march. This was no harder. Tyrion is going to laugh himself sick when he hears how I slept through my own escape. He was awake now, though, and the fetters were irksome. My lady, he called out, if you strike off these chains— I'll spell you at those oars. She scowled again, her face all horse teeth and glowering suspicion. You'll wear your chains, Kingslayer. You figure to row all the way to King's Landing, wench? You will call me Brian, not wench. My name is Sir Jamie, not Kingslayer. Do you deny that you slew a king? 
No. Do you deny your sex? If so, unlace those breeches and show me. He gave her an innocent smile. I'd ask you to open your bodice, but from the look of you, that wouldn't prove much. Sir Cleos fretted. Cousin, remember your courtesies. The Lannister blood runs thin in this one. Cleos was his aunt Jenna's son by that dullard Eamon Frey, who had lived in terror of Lord Tywin Lannister since the day he wed his sister. When Lord Walder Frey had brought the twins into the war on the side of River Run, Sir Eamon had chosen his wife's allegiance over his father's. Castle Rock got the worst of that bargain, Jamie reflected. Sir Cleos looked like a weasel, fought like a goose and had the courage of an especially brave you. Lady Stark had promised him release if he delivered her message to Tyrion, and Sir Cleos had solemnly vowed to do so. They'd all done a deal of vowing back in that cell, Jamie most of all. That was Lady Catelyn's price for loosing him. She had laid the point of the big wench's sword against his heart and said, "'Swear,' that you will never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honour his pledge to return my daughter safe and unharmed. Swear on your honour as a knight, on your honour as a Lannister, on your honour as a sworn brother of the King's Guard. Swear it by your sister's life and your father's, and your son's, by the old guards and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse and I will have your blood. He remembered the prick of the steel through his rags as she twisted the point of the sword. I wonder what the High Septon would have to say about the sanctity of oaths, sworn while dead drunk, chained to a wall with a sword pressed to your chest. Not that Jamie was truly concerned about that fat fraud or the gods he claimed to serve. He remembered the pale Lady Catelyn had kicked over in his cell. A strange woman, to trust her girls to a man with shit for honour, though she was trusting him as little as she dared. She is putting her hope in Tyrion, not in me. Perhaps she is not so stupid after all, he said aloud. His captor took it wrong. I am not stupid, nor deaf. He was gentle with her. Mocking this one would be so easy there would be no sport in it. I was speaking to myself, and not to you. It's an easy habit to slip into, in a cell. She frowned at him, pushing the oars forward, pulling them back, pushing them forward, saying nothing. As glib of tongue, as she is fair of face. By your speech, I judge you nobly born. My father is Selwyn of Tarth, by the grace of the gods, Lord of Evenfall. Even that was given grudgingly. Tarth, Jamie said, a ghastly large rock in the narrow sea, as I recall, and even fall is sworn to storm's end. How is it that you serve Rob of Winterfell? It is Lady Catelyn I serve. She commanded me to deliver you safe to your brother Tyrion at King's Landing, not to bandy words with you. Be silent. I have had a belly full of silence, woman. Talk with Sir Cleos, then. I have no words for monsters. Jamie hooted. Oh, are there monsters hereabouts, hiding beneath the water, perhaps, in that thick of willows, and me, without my sword? 
a man who would violate his own sister, murder his king, and fling an innocent child to his death deserves no other name. Innocent? The wretched boy was spying on us. All Jamie had wanted was an hour alone with Circe. The journey north had been one long torment, seeing her every day unable to touch her, knowing that Robert stumbled drunkenly into her bed every night in that great creaking wheelhouse. Tyrion had done his best to keep him in a good humour, but it had not been enough. "'You will be courteous, as concerns Circe, wench,' he warned her. "'My name is Brian, not wench. "'What do you care what a monster calls you? "'My name is Brian,' she repeated, dogged as a hound. "'Lady Brian!' "'She looks so uncomfortable that Jamie sends to weakness.' Or would Sir Brain be more to your taste? <laughs> he laughed. No, I fear not. You can trick out a milk cow in Cropper, Crinet, and Chamfron, and bart her all in silk, but that doesn't mean you can ride her into battle. Cousin Jamie, please, you ought not to speak so roughly. Under his cloak, Sir Cleos wore a surcoat quartered with the twin towers of House Frey and the golden line of Lannister. We have far to go. We should not quarrel among ourselves. When I quarrel, I do it with a sword, cuz. I was speaking to the lady. Tell me, wench, are all the women on Tarth as, um, homely as you? <laughs> I pity the men, if so. Perhaps they do not know what real women look like, eh? living on a dreary mountain in the sea. Tarth is beautiful, the wench grunted between strokes. The Sapphire Isle, it's called. Be quiet, monster, unless you mean to make me gag you. She's rude as well, isn't she, cuz? Jamie asked Sir Cleos. Though she has steel in her spine, I'll grant you. Not many men dare name me monster to my face. Though behind my back they speak freely enough, I have no doubt. Sir Cleos coughed nervously. Lady Brian had those lies from Catelyn Stark, no doubt. The Starks cannot hope to defeat you with sword, sir, so now they make war with poisoned words. They did defeat me with swords, you chinless cretin. Jamie smiled knowingly. Men will read all sorts of things into a knowing smile if you let them. Has Cousin Cleos truly swallowed this kettle of dung, or is he striving to ingratiate himself? What do we have here? An honest mutton head, or a lick spittle? Sir Cleos prattled on blithely. Any man who believed that a sworn brother of the king's god would harm a child does not know the meaning of honour. Lickspittle. If truth be told, Jamie had come to rue heaving Brandon Stark out of that window. Cersei had given him no end of grief afterwards when the boy refused to die. He was seven, Jamie, she berated him. Even if he understood what he saw, we should have been able to frighten him into silence. Well, I didn't think you'd want. You'll never think. If the boy should wake and tell his father what he saw. If, if, if. He had pulled her into his lap. If he wakes, we'll say he was dreaming. We'll call him a liar. And should worse come to worse, I'll kill Ned Stark. 
And then, what do you imagine Robert will do? Let Robert do as he pleases. I'll go to war with him if I must. The war for Circe's cunt, the singers will call it. Jamie, let go of me, she raged, struggling to rise. Instead, he had kissed her. For a moment she resisted, but then her mouth opened under his. He remembered the taste of wine and cloves on her tongue. She gave a shudder. His hand went to her bodice and yanked, tearing the silk so her breast spilled free, and for a time the Stark boy had been forgotten. Had Circe remembered him afterward, and hired this man, Lady Catelyn spoke of, to make sure the boy never woke? If she wanted him dead, she would have sent me. It's not like her to choose a cat's paw who would make such a royal butch of the killing. Downriver, the rising sun shimmered against the wind-whipped surface of the river. The south shore was red clay, smooth as any road. Smaller streams fed into the greater, and the rutting trunks of drowned trees clung to the banks. The north shore was wilder. High, rocky bluffs rose twenty feet above them, crowned by stands of beech, oak, and chestnut. Jamie spied a watchtower on the heights ahead, growing taller with every stroke of the oars. Long before they were upon it, he knew it stood abandoned, its weathered stones overgrown with climbing roses. When the wind shifted, Sir Cleos helped the big wench run up the sail, a stiff triangle of striped red and blue canvas. Tully collars, sure to cause them grief if they encountered any Lannister forces on the river, but it was the only sail they had. Brian took the rudder, Jamie threw out the leeboard, his chains rattling as he moved. After that they made better speed, with wind and current both favouring their flight. "'We could save a deal of travelling if you deliver me to my father instead of my brother,' he pointed out. "'Lady Catelyn's daughters are in King's Landing. I will return with the girls or not at all.' Jamie turned to the clears. Uh, "'Cousin, lend me your knife.' "'No!' the woman tensed. "'I will not have you armed.' Her voice was as unyielding as stone. "'She fears me, even in irons.' "'Cleos, it seems I must ask you to shave me. Leave the beard, but take the hair off my head.' "'You'd be shaved bald?' asked Cleos Frey. "'The realm knows Jamie Lannister as a beardless knight with long golden hair. A bald man with a filthy yellow beard may pass unnoticed. I'd sooner not be recognized while I'm in irons.' The dagger was not as sharp as it might have been. Cleos hacked away manfully, sawing and ripping his way through the mats and tossing the hair over the side. The golden curls floated on the surface of the water, gradually falling astern. As the tangles vanished, a louse went crawling down his neck. Jamie caught it and crushed it against his thumbnail. Sir Cleos picked others from his scalp and flicked them into the water. Jamie doused his head and made Sir Cleos wet the blade before he let him scrape away the last inch of yellow stubble. When that was done, they trimmed back his beard as well. The reflection in the water was a man he did not know. Not only was he bald, but he looked as though he had aged five years in that dungeon. His face was thinner, with hollows under his eyes, and lines he did not remember. I don't look as much like Circe this way. She'll hate that.
By midday, Sir Cleos had fallen asleep. His snores sounded like ducks mating. Jamie stretched out to watch the world flow past. After the dark cell, every rock and tree was a wonder. A few one-room shacks came and went, perched on tall poles that made them look like cranes. Of the folk who lived there, they saw no sign. Birds flew overhead, or cried out from the trees along the shore, and Jamie glimpsed silvery fish knifing through the water. Tully Trout, there's a bad omen, he thought, until he saw worse. One of the floating logs that passed turned out to be a dead man, bloodless and swollen. His cloak was tangled in the roots of a fallen tree, its colour unmistakably Lannister crimson. He wondered if the corpse had been someone he knew. The forks of the trident were the easiest way to move goods or men across the riverlands. In times of peace, they would have encountered fisherfolk in their skiffs, grain barges being poled downstream, merchants selling needles and bolts of cloth from floating shops, perhaps even a gaily painted mummer's boat with quilted sails of half a hundred colours, making its way upriver from village to village and castle to castle. But the war had taken its toll. They sailed past villages, but saw no villagers. An empty net, slashed and torn, and hanging from some trees, was the only sign of fisher folk. A young girl, watering a horse, rode off as soon as she glimpsed their sail. Later they passed a dozen peasants digging in a field beneath the shell of a burnt tower house. The men gazed at them with dull eyes and went back to their labours once they decided the skiff was no threat. The Red Fork was wide and slow, a meandering river of loops and bends dotted with tiny wooded islets and frequently choked by sandbars and snags that lurked just below the water's surface. Brian seemed to have a keen eye for the dangers, though, and always seemed to find the channel. When Jamie complimented her on her knowledge of the river, she looked at him suspiciously and said, "'I do not know the river. Tarth is an island. I learned to manage oars and sail before I ever sat oars.' Sir Cleos sat up and rubbed at his eyes. "'Gods, my arms are sore. I hope the wind lasts.' He sniffed at it. "'I smell rain.' Jamie would welcome a good rain. The dungeons of River Run were not the cleanest place in the Seven Kingdoms. By now he must smell like an overripe cheese. Clea squinted downriver. Smoke! A thin grey finger crooked them on. It was rising from the south bank several miles on, twisting and curling. Below, Jamie made out the smouldering remains of a large building, and a live oak full of dead women. The crows had scarcely started on their corpses. The thin ropes cut deep into the soft flesh of their throats, and when the wind blew, they twisted and swayed. This was not chivalrously done, said Brian, when they were close enough to see it clearly. No true knight would condone such wanton butchery. True knights see worse every time they ride to war, wench, said Jamie, and do worse, yes. Brian turned the rudder towards the shore. I'll leave no innocence to be food for crows. A heartless wench. Crows need to eat as well. Stay to the river and leave the dead alone, woman. 
They landed upstream of where the great oak leaned out over the water. As Brian lowered the sail, Jamie climbed out clumsy in his chains. The red fork filled his boots and soaked through the ragged breeches. Laughing, he dropped to his knees, plunged his head under the water, and came up drenched and dripping. His hands were caked with dirt, and when he rubbed them clean in the current, they seemed thinner and paler than he remembered. His legs were stiff as well, and unsteady when he put his weight upon them. I was too bloody long in Huster Tully's dungeon. Brian and Cleos dragged the skiff onto the bank. The corpses hung above their heads, ripening in death like foul fruit. One of us will need to cut them down, the wench said. I'll climb, Jamie waded ashore, clanking. Just get these chains off. The wench was staring up at one of the dead women. Jamie shuffled closer with small stutter steps, the only kind the footlong chain permitted. When he saw the crude sign hung about the neck of the highest corpse, he smiled. They lay with lions, he read. Oh, yes, woman, this was most unchivalrously done. But by your side, not mine. I wonder who they were, these women. Tavern wenches, said Sir Cleos Frey. This was an inn, I remember it now. Some men of my escort spent the night here when we last returned to River Run. Nothing remained of the building but the stone foundation and a tangle of collapsed beams charred black. Smoke still rose from the ashes. Jamie left brothels and whores to his brother Tyrion. Cersei was the only woman he had ever wanted. The girls pleasured some of my lord father's soldiers, it would seem. Perhaps serve them food and drink. That's how they earn their traitors' collars, with a kiss and a cup of ale. He glanced up and down the river to make certain they were quite alone. This is Brackenland. Lord Jonas might have ordered them killed. My father burned his castle. I fear he loves us not. It might be Mark Piper's work, said Sir Cleos, or that wisp of the wood... Beric Dondarian, though I'd heard he kills any soldiers, perhaps a band of Roose Bolton's Northmen. Bolton was defeated by my father on the Green Fork. But not broken, said Sir Cleos. He came south again when Lord Tywin marched against the fords. The word at River Ron was that he'd taken Harrenhal from Sir Amory Lorch. Jamie liked the sound of that not at all. Brian, he said, granting her the courtesy of the name in the hopes that she might listen. If Lord Bolton holds Harrenhal, both the Trident and the King's Road are likely watched. He thought he saw a touch of uncertainty in her big blue eyes. You are under my protection. They'd need to kill me. I shouldn't think that would trouble them. I am as good a fighter as you, she said defensively. I was one of King Renly's chosen seven. With his own hands, he cloaked me with the striped silk of the Rainbow Guard. The Rainbow Guard? Oh, you and six other girls, was it? A singer once said that all maids are fair in silk. But he never met you, did he? The woman turned red. We have graves to dig. She went to climb the tree.
The lower limbs of the oak were big enough for her to stand upon once she had gotten up the trunk. She walked among the leaves, dagger in hand, cutting down the corpses. Flies swarmed around the bodies as they fell, and the stench grew worse with each one she dropped. This is a deal of trouble to take for whores, Sir Cleos complained. What are we supposed to dig with? We have no spades, and I will not use my sword. I... Brian gave a shout. She jumped down rather than climbing. To the boat! Be quick! There's a sail! They made what haste they could, though Jamie could hardly run, and had to be pulled back into the skiff by his cousin. Brian shoved off with an oar and raised sail hurriedly. Sir Cleus, I'll need you to row as well. He did as she bid. The skiff began to cut the water a bit faster. Current, wind, and oars all worked for them. Jamie sat chained, peering upriver. Only the top of the other sail was visible. With the way the red fork looped, it looked to be across the fields moving north behind a screen of trees while they moved south, but he knew that was deceptive. He lifted both hands to shade his eyes. Mud-red and watery blue, he announced. Brian's big mouth worked soundlessly, giving her the look of a cow chewing its cud. Faster, sir. The inn soon vanished behind them, and they lost sight of the top of the sail as well, but that meant nothing. Once the pursuers swung around the loop, they would become visible again. We can hope the noble Tullys will stop to bury the dead whores, I suppose. The prospect of returning to his cell did not appeal to Jamie. Tyrion could think of something clever now, but all that occurs to me is to go at them with a sword. For the good part of an hour they played peek and seek with the pursuers, sweeping around bends and between small wooded aisles, just when they were starting to hope that somehow they might have left behind the pursuit, the distant sail became visible again. Sir Cleos paused in his stroke. The others take them, he wiped the sweat from his brow. Row, Brian said. That is a river galley coming after us, Jamie announced after he'd watched for a while. With every stroke, it seemed to grow a little larger. Nine oars on each side, which means eighteen men. More if they're crowded on fighters as well as rowers, and larger sails than ours. We cannot outrun her. Sir Cleos froze at his oars. Eighteen, you said? Six for each of us. I'd want eight, but these bracelets hinder me somewhat. Jamie held up his wrists. Unless the Lady Brian would be so kind as to unshackle me. She ignored him, putting all her efforts into a stroke. We had half a night's start on them, Jamie said. They've been rowing since dawn, resting two oars at a time. They'll be exhausted. Just now the sight of our sail has given them a burst of strength, but that will not last. We ought to be able to kill a good many of them. Sir Cleos gaped. But there are eighteen. At the least. More like twenty or twenty-five. His cousin groaned. We can't hope to defeat eighteen. Did I say we could? The best we can hope for is to die with swords in our hands. He was perfectly sincere. Jamie Lannister had never been afraid of death. 
Bryeen broke off rowing. Sweat had stuck strands of her flax-colored hair to her forehead, and her grimace made her look homelier than ever. You are under my protection, she said, her voice so thick with anger that it was almost a growl. He had to laugh at such fierceness. She's the hound with tits, he thought, or would be, if she had any tits to speak of. Then protect me, wench, or free me to protect myself. The galley was skimming down river, a great wooden dragonfly. The water around her was churned white by the furious action of her oars. She was gaining visibly, the men on her deck crowding forward as she came on. Metal glinted in their hands, and Jamie could see bows as well. Archers! He hated archers. At the prow of the onrushing galley stood a stocky man with a bald head, bushy grey eyebrows, and brawny arms. Over his mail he wore a soiled white surcoat with a weeping willow embroidered in pale green, but his cloak was fastened with a silver trout. River runs captain of guards. In his day, Sir Robin Ryger had been a notably tenacious fighter, but his day was done. He was of an age with Hoster Tully, and had grown old with his lord. When the boats were fifty yards apart, Jamie cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted back over the water, "'Come to wish me Godspeed, Sir Robin!' "'Come to take you back, Kingslayer!' Sir Robin Ryger bellowed. "'How is it that you've lost your golden hair?' "'I hope to blind my enemies with the sheen of my head. "'It's worked well enough for you!' Sir Robin was unamused. The distance between skiff and galley had shrunk to forty yards. "'Throw your oars and your weapons into the river!' and no one need be harmed. Sir Cleos twisted around. Jamie, tell him we were freed by Lady Catelyn, an exchange of captives, lawful. Jamie told him, for all the good it did, Catelyn Stark does not rule in River Run. Sir Robin shouted back. Four archers crowded into position on either side of him, two standing and two kneeling. Cast your swords into the water. I have no sword he returned, but if I did, I'd stick it through your belly and hack the balls off those four cravens. A flight of arrows answered him. One thudded into the mast, two pierced the sail, and the fourth missed Jamie by a foot. Another of the red forks' broad loops loomed before them. Brian angled the skiff across the bend. The yards swung as they turned, their sail cracking as it filled with wind. Ahead, a large island sat in midstream. The main channel flowed right. To the left, a cut-off ran between the island and the high bluffs of the north shore. Brian moved the tiller, and the skiff sheered left, sail rippling. Jamie watched her eyes. Pretty eyes, he thought, and calm. He knew how to read a man's eyes. He knew what fear looked like. She is determined not desperate. Thirty yards behind, the galley was entering the bend. Sir Cleos, take the tiller, the wench commanded. Kingslayer, take an oar and keep us off the rocks. As my lady commands. An oar was not a sword, but the blade could break a man's face if well swung, and the shaft could be used to parry. 
Sir Cleos shoved the oar into Jamie's hand and scrambled aft. They crossed the head of the island and turned sharply down the cut-off, sending a wash of water against the face of the bluff as the boat tilted. The island was densely wooded, a tangle of willows, oaks, and tall pines that cast deep shadows across the rushing waters, hiding snags and the rutting trunks of drowned trees. To their left, the bluff rose sheer and rocky, and at its foot, the river foamed whitely around broken boulders and tumbles of rock fallen from the cliff face. They passed from sunlight into shadow, hidden from the galley's view between the green wall of the trees and the stony grey-brown bluff. A few moments respite from the arrows, Jamie thought, pushing them off a half-submerged boulder. The skiff rocked. He heard a soft splash, and when he glanced around, Brian was gone. A moment later he spied her again, pulling herself from the water at the base of the bluff. She waded through a shallow pool, scrambled over some rocks, and began to climb. Sir Cleos goggled, mouth open. Fool, thought Jamie. Ignore the wench, he snapped at his cousin. Steer! They could see the sail moving behind the trees. The river galley came into full view at the top of the cut-off, twenty-five yards behind. Her bow swung hard as she came around, and a half-dozen arrows took flight, but all went well wide. The motion of the two boats was giving the archers difficulty, but Jamie knew they'd soon learn to compensate. Brian was halfway up the cliff face, pulling herself from handhold to handhold. Riger ought to see her, and once he does, he'll have those bowmen bring her down. Jamie decided to see if the old man's pride would make him stupid. "'Sir Robin!' he shouted. "'Hear me for a moment!' Sir Robin raised a hand, and his archers lowered their bows. "'Say what you will, Kingslayer, but say it quickly!' The skiff swung through a litter of broken stones as Jamie called out, "'I know a better way to settle this. Single combat. You and I.' <laughs> I was not born this morning, Lannister. No, but you'll like to die this afternoon. Jamie raised his hand so the other could see the manacles. I'll fight you in chains. What could you fear? Not you, sir. If the choice were mine, I'd like nothing better, but I am commanded to bring you back alive, if possible. Bowman, he signaled them on. Notch, draw, loo. The range was less than twenty yards. The archers could scarcely have missed, but as they pulled on their longbows, a rain of pebbles cascaded down around them. Small stones rattled on their deck, bounced off their helms, and made splashes on both sides of the bow. Those who had the wits enough to understand raised their eyes just as a boulder the size of a cow detached itself from the top of the bluff. Sir Robin shouted in dismay. The stone tumbled through the air, struck the face of the cliff, cracked in two, and smashed down on them. The larger piece snapped the mast, tore through the sail, sent two of the archers flying into the river, and crushed the leg of a rower as he bent over his oar. The rapidity with which the galley began to fill with water suggested that the smaller fragment had punched right through her hull. 
The oarsman's screams echoed off the bluff while the archers flailed wildly in the current. From the way they were splashing, neither man could swim. Jamie laughed. By the time they emerged from the cutoff, the galley was foundering amongst pools, eddies, and snags, and Jamie Lannister had decided that the guards were good. Sir Robin and his thrice-damned archers would have a long, wet walk back to River Run, and he was rid of the big, homely wench as well. I could not have planned it better myself, once I am free of these irons. Sir Cleos raised a shout. When Jamie looked up, Brian was lumbering across the clifftop well ahead of them, having cut across a finger of land while they were following the bend in the river. She threw herself off the rock and looked almost graceful as she folded into a dive. It would have been ungracious to hope that she would smash her head on the stone. Sir Cleos turned the skiff toward her. Thankfully, Jamie still had his oar. One good swing when she comes paddling up, and I'll be free of her. Instead, he found himself stretching the oar out over the water. Brian grabbed hold, and Jamie pulled her in. As he helped her into the skiff, water ran from her hair and dripped from her sudden clothing to a pool on the deck. She is even uglier, wet. Who would have thought it possible? You're a bloody, stupid wench, he told her. We could have sailed on without you. I suppose you expect me to thank you. I want none of your thanks, Kingslayer. I swore an oath to bring you safe to King's Landing. And you actually mean to keep it? Jamie gave her his brightest smile. Now, there's a wonder. Catelyn Sir Desmond Grail had served House Tully all his life. He'd been a squire when Catelyn was born, a knight when she learned to walk and ride and swim, master at arms by the day she was wed. He had seen Lord Huster's little cat become a young woman, a great lord's lady, mother to a king. And now he has seen me become a traitor as well. Her brother Edmure had named Sir Desmond Castellan of River Run when he rode off to battle, so it fell to him to deal with her crime. To ease his discomfort, he brought her father's steward with him, Dor authorized Wayne. The two men stood and looked at her. Sir Desmond, stout, red-faced, embarrassed, authorized, grave, gaunt, melancholy. Each waited for the other to speak. They have given their lives to my father's service and I have repaid them with disgrace, Catelyn thought wearily. Are your sons, Sir Desmond said at last. Maester Vyman told us, the poor lads, terrible, terrible. But we share your grief, my lady, said authorized Wayne. All Riveron mourns with you, but the news must have driven you mad, Sir Desmond broke in. A madness of grief, a mother's madness. Men will understand. You did not know. I did, Catelyn said firmly. I understood what I was doing, and I knew it was treasonous. If you fail to punish me, men will believe that we connive together to free Jamie Lannister. It was mine own act, and mine alone, and I alone must answer for it. Put me in the Kingslayer's empty irons, and I will wear them proudly 
if that is how it must be. Fetters! The very words seemed to shock poor Sir Desmond. For the king's mother, my lord's own daughter, oh, impossible. Mayhaps, said the steward, authorized Wayne, my lady would consent to be confined to her chambers until Sir Edmure returns, a time alone to pray for her murdered sons. Confined, I, Sir Desmond said, confined to a tower cell that would serve. If I am to be confined, let it be in my father's chambers, so I might comfort him in his last days. Sir Desmond considered for a moment. Very well. You shall lack no comfort nor courtesy, but freedom of the castle is denied you. Visit the sept as you need, but elsewise remain in Lord Huster's chambers until Lord Edmure returns. As you wish. Her brother was no lord while their father lived, but Catelyn did not correct him. Set a guard on me, if you must, but I give you my pledge that I shall attempt no escape. Sir Desmond nodded, plainly glad to be done with his distasteful task, but sad-eyed authorized Wayne lingered a moment after the Castellan took his leave. It was a grave thing you did, my lady, but for naught. Sir Desmond has sent Sir Robin Riger after them to bring back the Kingslayer, or failing that, his head. Catelyn had expected no less. May the warrior give strength to your sword arm, Brian, she prayed. She had done all she could. Nothing remained but to hope. Her things were moved into her father's bedchamber, dominated by the great canopy bed she had been born in, its pillars carved in the shapes of leaping trout. Her father himself had been moved half a turn down the stair. His sickbed placed to face the triangular balcony that opened off his solar, from whence he could see the rivers that he had always loved so well. Lord Huster was sleeping when Catelyn entered. She went out to the balcony and stood with one hand on the rough stone balustrade. Beyond the point of the castle, the swift tumblestone joined the placid red fork, and she could see a long way down river. If a striped sail comes from the east, it will be Sir Robin returning. For a moment the surface of the water was empty. She thanked the gods for that, and went back inside to sit with her father. Catelyn could not say if Lord Huster knew she was there, or if her presence brought him any comfort, but it gave her solace to be with him. What would you say if you knew my crime, father? She wondered. Would you have done as I did, if it were Lysa and me in the hands of our enemies? Or would you condemn me too, and call it mother's madness? There was a smell of death about that room, a heavy smell, sweet and foul, clinging. It reminded her of the sons she had lost, a sweet bran and a little ricken, slain at the hand of Theon Greyjoy, who had been Ned's ward. She still grieved for Ned. She would always grieve for Ned, but to have her babies taken as well. It is a monstrous, cruel thing to lose a child, she whispered softly, more to herself than to her father. Lord Huster's eyes opened. Tansy, he husked in a voice thick with pain. He does not know me. Catelyn had grown accustomed to him taking her for her mother or her sister Lysa, but Tansy was a name strange to her.
It's Catelyn, she said. It's Cat, father. Forgive me the blood. Oh, please, Tansy. Could there have been another woman in her father's life, some village maiden he had wronged when he was young, perhaps? Could he have found comfort in some serving wench's arms after mother died? It was a queer thought, unsettling. Suddenly she felt as though she had not known her father at all. Who is Tansy, my lord? Do you want me to send for her father? Where would I find the woman? Does she still live? Lord Hoster groaned. Dead. His hand groped for hers. You will have others, sweet babes, and true-born. Others? Catelyn thought. Has he forgotten that Ned is gone? Is he still talking to Tansy? Or is it me now, or Lysa, or Mother? When he coughed, the sputum came up bloody. He clutched her fingers. Be a good wife, and the gods will bless you. Sons, true-born sons. <laughs> a sudden spasm of pain made Lord Huster's hand tighten. His nails dug into her hand, and he gave a muffled scream. Maester Vyman came quickly to mix another dose of milk of the puppy, and help his lord swallow it down. Soon enough, Lord Huster Tully had fallen back into a heavy sleep. "'He was asking after a woman,' said Cat. "'Tansy.' "'Tansy?' the maester looked at her blankly. "'You know no one by that name? A serving girl? A woman from some nearby village? Perhaps someone from years past?' Catelyn had been gone from River Run for a very long time. "'No, my lady, I can make inquiries, if you like.' Authorized Wayne would surely know if any such person ever served at River Run. Tansy, did you say? The small folk often name their daughters after flowers and herbs. The maester looked thoughtful. There was a widow, I recall. She used to come to the castle looking for old shoes in need of new soles. Her name was Tansy, now that I think on it. Or was it Pansy? "'Some such, but she has not come for many years.' "'Her name was Violet,' said Catelyn, who remembered the old woman very well. "'Was it?' the maester looked apologetic. "'My pardons, Lady Catelyn, but I may not stay. "'Sir Desmond has decreed that we are to speak to you only so far as our duties require.' "'Then you must do as he commands.' "'Catelyn could not blame Sir Desmond.' She had given him small reason to trust her, and no doubt he feared that she might use the loyalty that many of the folk of River Run would still feel towards their lord's daughter to work some further mischief. I am free of the ward, at least, she told herself, if only for a little while. After the maester had gone, she donned a woolen cloak and stepped out onto the balcony once more. Sunlight shimmered on the rivers, gilding the surface of the waters as they rolled past the castle. Catelyn shaded her eyes against the glare, searching for a distant sail, dreading the sight of one. But there was nothing, and nothing meant that her hopes were still alive. All that day she watched, and well into the night, until her legs ached from the standing. 
A raven came to the castle in late afternoon, flapping down on great black wings to the rookery. Dark wings, dark words, she thought, remembering the last bird that had come and the hurry it had brought. Maester Vyman returned at Evenfall to minister to Lord Tully and bring Catelyn a modest supper of bread, cheese, and boiled beef with horseradish. I, I spoke to Usserise Wayne, my lady. Is quite certain that no woman by the name of Dunsey has ever been at River Run during his service. There was a raven today, I saw. Has Jamie been taken again? Or slain? Gods forbid. No, my lady, we've had no word of the Kingsley. Is it another battle, then? Is Edmure in difficulty? Or Rob? Please be kind. Put my fears at rest. My lady, I should not... Uh... Vyman glanced about, as if to make certain no one else was in the room. Lord Tywin has left the Riverlands. All's quiet on the fords. Whence came the raven, then? From the west, he answered, busying himself with Lord Huster's bedclothes and avoiding her eyes. Was it news of Rob? He hesitated. Yes, my lady. Something is wrong. She knew it from his manner. He was hiding something from her. Tell me, is it Rob? Is he hurt? Not dead. Gods be good, please do not tell me that he is dead. His grace took a wound, storming the crag, Mr. Vyman said, still evasive, but writes that it is no cause for concern and that he hopes to return soon. A wound? What sort of wound? How serious? No cause for concern, he writes. All wounds concern me. Is he being cared for? I'm certain of it. The maester at the crag will tend him, I have no doubt. Where was he wounded? My lady, I'm commanded not to speak with you. I am sorry. Gathering up his potions, Vyman made a hurried exit, and once again Catelyn was left alone with her father. The milk of the poppy had done its work, and Lord Huster was sunk in deep sleep. A thin line of spittle ran down from one corner of his open mouth to dampen his pillow. Catelyn took a square of linen and wiped it away gently. When she touched him, Lord Huster moaned, "'Forgive me,' he said so softly she could scarcely hear the words. "'Tensy, blood, the blood, gods be kind.' His words disturbed her more than she could say, though she could make no sense of them. "'Blood?' she thought. "'Must it all come back to blood? "'Father, who was this woman? "'And what did you do to her that needs so much forgiveness?' That night, Catelyn slept fitfully, haunted by formless dreams of her children, the lost and the dead. Well before the break of day, she woke with her father's words echoing in her ears, Sweet babes and trueborn. Why would he say that, unless... Could he have fathered a bastard on this woman Tansy? She could not believe it. Her brother Edmure, yes... It would not have surprised her to learn that Edmure had a dozen natural children. But not her father, not Lord Huster Tully, never. Could Tansy be some pet name he called Lysa, the way he called me Cat? 
Lord Huster had mistaken her for her sister before. You'll have others, he said, sweet babes and true-born. Lysa had miscarried five times, twice in the Airy, thrice at King's Landing, but never at Riveron, where Lord Huster would have been at hand to comfort her. Never, unless... unless she was with child that first time. She and her sister had been married on the same day, and left in their father's care when their new husbands had ridden off to rejoin Robert's rebellion. Afterward, when their moonblood did not come at the accustomed time, Lysa had gushed happily of the son she was certain they carried. Your son will be heir to Winterfell and mine to the Airy. Oh, they'll be the best of friends like your Ned and Lord Robert. They'll be more brothers and cousins, truly, I just know it. She was so happy. But Lysa's blood had come not long after, and all the joy had gone out of her. Catelyn had always thought that Lysa had simply been a little late. But if she had been with child. She remembered the first time she gave her sister Rob to hold, small, red-faced and squalling, but strong even then, full of life. No sooner had Catelyn placed the babe in her sister's arms than Lysa's face dissolved into tears. Hurriedly, she had thrust the baby back at Catelyn and fled. If she had lost a child before, that might explain father's words, and much else besides. Lysa's match with Lord Aaron had been hastily arranged, and John was an old man even then, older than their father. An old man without an heir. His first two wives had left him childless. His brother's son had been murdered with Brandon Stark in King's Landing. His gallant cousin had died in the Battle of the Bells. He needed a young wife, if House Aaron was to continue. A young wife, known to be fertile. Catelyn rose, threw on a robe, and descended the steps to the darkened solar to stand over her father. A sense of helpless dread filled her. Father, she said. Father, I know what you did. She was no longer an innocent bride with a head full of dreams. She was a widow, a traitor, a grieving mother, and wise, wise in the ways of the world. You made him take her, she whispered. Lysa was the price John Aaron had to pay for the swords and spears of House Tully. Small wonder her sister's marriage had been so loveless. The Aarons were proud and prickly of their honour. Lord John might wed Lysa to bind the Tullys to the cause of the rebellion and in the hopes of a son, but it would have been hard for him to love a woman who came to his bed soiled and unwilling. He would have been kind, no doubt, dutiful, yes, but Lysa needed warmth. The next day, as she broke her fast, Catelyn asked for quill and paper and began a letter to her sister in the Vale of Aaron. She told Lysa of Bran and Rickon, struggling with the words, but mostly she wrote of their father. His thoughts are all of the wrong he did you, now that his time grows short. Maester Vyman says, he dare not make the milk of the puppy any stronger. It is time for father to lay down his sword and shield. It is time for him to rest. Yet he fights on grimly, will not yield. 
It is for your sake, I think. He needs your forgiveness. The war has made the road from the Airy to River Run dangerous to travel, I know, but surely a strong force of knights could see you safely through the mountains of the moon? A hundred men or a thousand? And if you cannot come, will you not write him, at least, a few words of love, so he might die in peace? Write what you will, and I shall read it to him, and ease his way. Even as she set the quill aside and asked for sealing-wax, Catelyn sensed that the letter was like to be too little and too late. Mr. Vyman did not believe Lord Huster would linger long enough for a raven to reach the airy and return, though he has said much the same before. Tullyman did not surrender easily, no matter the odds. After she entrusted the parchment to the maester's care, Catelyn went to the sept and lit a candle to the father above for her own father's sake, a second to the crone who had let the first raven into the world when she appeared through the door of death, and a third to the mother for Lysa and all the children they had both lost. Later that day, as she sat at Lord Huster's bedside with a book reading the same passage over and over, she heard the sound of loud voices and a trumpet's blare. Sir Robin, she thought at once, flinching. She went to the balcony. There was nothing to be seen out on the rivers, but she could hear the voices more clearly from outside, the sound of many horses, the clink of armour, and here and there a cheer. Catelyn made her way up the winding stairs to the roof of the keep. Sir Desmond did not forbid me the roof, she told herself as she climbed. The sounds were coming from the far side of the castle, by the main gate. A knot of men stood before the portcullis as it rose in jerks and starts, and in the field beyond, outside the castle, were several hundred riders. When the wind blew, it lifted their banners, and she trembled in relief at the sight of the leaping trout of Riverrun. Edmure. It was two hours before he saw fit to come to her. By then the castle rang to the sound of noisy reunions, as men embraced the women and children they had left behind. Three ravens had risen from the rookery, black wings beating at the air as they took flight. Catelyn watched them from her father's balcony. She had washed her hair, changed her clothes, and prepared herself for her brother's reproaches, but even so, the waiting was hard. When at last she heard sounds outside her door, she sat and folded her hands in her lap. Dried red mud spattered Edmure's boots, greaves, and surcoat. To look at him, you would never know he had won his battle. He was thin and drawn, with pale cheeks, unkempt beard, and two bright eyes. Edmure, Catelyn said, worried, you look unwell. Has something happened? Have the Lannisters crossed the river? I threw them back. Lord Tywin, Gregor Clegane, Adam Marbrand, I turned them away. Stannis, though, he grimaced. Stannis? What of Stannis? He lost the battle at King's Landing, Edmure said unhappily. His fleet was burned, his army routed. A Lannister victory was ill tidings, but Catelyn could not share her brother's obvious dismay. She still had nightmares about the shadow she had seen slide across Renly's tent 
and the way the blood had come flowing out through the steel of his gorget. Stannis was no more a friend than Lord Tywin. He do not understand. Haygarden has declared for Joffrey, Dorne as well, all the south. His mouth tightened. And you see fit to loose the Kingslayer? You had no right. I had a mother's right. Her voice was calm, though the news about Highgarden was a savage blow to Rob's hopes. She could not think about that now, though. No right, Edmure repeated. He was Rob's captive, yet King's captive, and Rob charged me to keep him safe. Brian will keep him safe. She swore it on her sword. Ugh, that woman! She will deliver Jamie to King's Landing and bring Arya and Sansa back to us safely. Cersei will never give them up. Not Cersei. Tyrion. He swore it in open court, and the Kingslayer swore it as well. Jamie's word is worthless. As for the imp, it said he took an axe in the head during the battle. He'll be dead before your brain reaches King's Landing, if she ever does. Dead? Could the gods truly be so merciless? She had made Jamie swear a hundred oaths, but it was his brother's promise she had pinned her hopes on. Edmure was blind to her distress. Jamie was my charge, and I mean to have him back. I've sent ravens. Ravens? To whom? How many? Three, he answered. So the message will be certain to reach Lord Bolton. By river or road, the way from River Run to King's Landing must needs take them close by Harrenhal. Harrenhal? The very words seemed to darken the room. Horror thickened her voice as she said, Edmure, do you know what you have done? Have no fear. I left your part out. I wrote that Jamie had escaped and offered a thousand dragons for his recapture. Worse and worse, Catelyn thought, in despair. My brother's a fool. Unbidden, unwanted, tears filled her eyes. If this was an escape, she said softly, and not an exchange of hostages, why should the Lannisters give my daughters to Brian? It will never come to that. The Kingslayer will be returned to us. I have made certain of it. All you have made certain is that I shall never see my daughters again. Brian might have gotten him to King's Landing safely, so long as no one was hunting for them. But now... Catelyn could not go on. Leave me, Edmure. She had no right to command him, here in the castle that would soon be his, yet her tone would brook no argument. Leave me to father and my grief. I have no more to say to you. Go! Go! All she wanted was to lie down, to close her eyes, and sleep, and pray no dreams would come. Aria The sky was as black as the walls of Harrenhal behind them, and the rain fell soft and steady, muffling the sound of their horses' hooves, and running down their faces. They rode north, away from the lake, following a rutted farm road across the torn fields and into the woods and streams. Arya took the lead, kicking her stolen horse to a brisk, heedless trot until the trees closed in around her. Hot Pie and Gendry followed as best they could. 
Wolves howled in the distance, and she could hear Hot Pie's heavy breathing. No one spoke. From time to time, Aria glanced over her shoulder to make sure the two boys had not fallen too far behind, and to see if they were being pursued. They would be, she knew. She had stolen three horses from the stables and a map and a dagger from Roose Bolton's own solar, and killed a guard on the Puston Gate, slitting his throat when he knelt to pick up the worn iron coin that Jake and Hagar had given her. Someone would find him lying dead in his own blood, and then the hue and cry would go up. They would wake Lord Bolton and search Harren Hell from Crenel to Cellar, and when they did they would find the map and the dagger missing, along with some swords from the armory, bread and cheese from the kitchens, a baker boy, a prentice smith, and a cup-bearer called Nan, or Weasel, or Arry, depending on who you asked. The Lord of the Dreadfort would not come after them himself. Roos Bolton would stay abed, his pasty flesh dotted with leeches, giving commands in his whispery, soft voice. His man Walton might lead the hunt, the one they call Steelshanks, for the greaves he always wore on his long legs. Or perhaps it would be slobbery Vargo Hoat and his sellswords, who named themselves the Brave Companions. Others called them Bloody Mummers, though never to their faces, and sometimes the Footmen, for Lord Vargo's habit of cutting off the hands and feet of men who displeased him. If they catch us, he'll cut off our hands and feet, Aria thought, and then Roose Bolton will peel the skin off us. She was still dressed in her page's garb, and on the breast over her heart was sewn Lord Bolton's sigil, the flayed man of the Dreadfort. Every time she looked back, she half expected to see a blaze of torches pouring out of the distant gates of Harrenhal, or rushing along the tops of its huge high walls. But there was nothing. Harrenhal slept on, until it was lost in darkness and hidden behind the trees. When they crossed the first stream, Arya turned her horse aside and led them off the road, following the twisting course of the water for a quarter mile, before finally scrambling out and up a stony bank. If the hunters brought dogs, that might throw them off the scent, she hoped. They could not stay on the road. There is death on the road, she told herself. Death on all the roads. Gendry and Hot Pie did not question her choice. She had the map, after all, and Hot Pie seemed almost as terrified of her as of the men who might be coming after them. He had seen the guard she'd killed. It's better if he's scared of me, she told herself. That way he'll do like I say instead of something stupid. She should be more frightened herself, she knew. She was only ten, a skinny girl on a stolen horse with a dark forest ahead of her, and men behind who had gladly cut off her feet. Yet somehow she felt calmer than she ever had in Harrenhal. The rain had washed the guard's blood off her fingers. She wore a sword across her back. Wolves were prowling through the dark, like lean grey shadows, and Arya Stark was unafraid. Fear cuts deeper than swords, she whispered under her breath, the words that Sirio Pharrell had taught her, and Jakin's words too, Velar Morgullus. The rain stopped and started again, and stopped once more, and started, but they had good cloaks to keep the water off. Arya kept them moving, 
at a slow, steady pace. It was too black beneath the trees to ride any faster. The boys were no horsemen, neither one, and the soft broken ground was treacherous with half-buried roots and hidden stones. They crossed another road, its deep ruts filled with runoff, but Arya shunned it. Up and down the rolling hill she took them, through brambles and briars and tangles of underbrush, along the bottoms of narrow gullies where branches heavy with wet leaves slapped at their faces as they passed. Gendry's mare lost her footing in the mud once, going down hard on her hindquarters and spilling him from the saddle, but neither horse nor rider was hurt, and Gendry got that stubborn look on his face and mounted right up again. Not long after, they came upon three wolves devouring the corpse of a fawn. When Hot Pie's horse caught the scent, he shied and bolted. Two of the wolves fled as well, but the third raised his head and bared his teeth, prepared to defend his kill. Back off, Arya told Gendry. Slow, so you don't spook him. They edged their mounts away until the wolf and his feast were no longer in sight. Only then did she swing about to ride after Hot Pie, who was clinging desperately to the saddle as he crashed through the trees. Later they passed through a burned village, threading their way carefully between the shells of blackened hovels and past the bones of a dozen dead men hanging from a row of apple trees. When Hot Pie saw them, he began to pray, a thin, whispered plea for the mother's mercy, repeated over and over. Arya looked up at the fleshless dead in their wet, rotting clothes and said her own prayer. Sir Gregor, it went, Dunson, Polliver, Raff the Sweetling, the Tickler and the Hound, Sir Ilian, Sir Merrin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. She ended it with Valar Morgullus, touched Jacob's coin where it nestled under her belt, and then reached up and plucked an apple from among the dead men as she rode beneath them. It was mushy and overripe, but she ate it, worms and all. That was the day without a dawn. Slowly the sky lightened around them, but they never saw the sun. Black turned to grey, and colours crept timidly back into the world. The soldier pines were dressed in sombre greens, the broad leaves in russets and faded golds, already beginning to brown. They stopped long enough to water the horses and eat a cold, quick breakfast, ripping apart a loaf of bread that Hot Pie had stolen from the kitchens and passing chunks of hard yellow cheese from hand to hand. "'Do you know where we're going?' Gendry asked her. "'North,' said Arya. Hot Pie peered around uncertainly. "'Which way is north?' She used her cheese to point. That way. But there's no sun. How do you know? From the moss. See how it grows mostly on one side of the trees? That's south. What do we want in the north? Gendry wanted to know. The trident. Arya unrolled the stolen map to show them. See, once we reach the trident, all we need to do is follow it upstream till we come to River Run. Here. Her finger traced the path. It's a long way, but we can't get lost so long as we keep to the river. Hot Pie blinked at the map. Which one is River Run? River Run was painted as a castle tower 
in the fork between the flowing blue lines of two rivers, the Tumblestone and the Red Fork. There, she touched it. River Run, it reads. You can read writing, he said to her, wonderingly, as if she said she could walk on water. She nodded. We'll be safe once we reach River Run. We will? Why? Because River Run is my grandfather's castle and my brother Rub will be there, she wanted to say. She bit her lip and rolled up the map. We just will, but only if we get there. She was the first one back in the saddle. It made her feel bad to hide the truth from Hot Pie, but she did not trust him with her secret. Gendry knew, but that was different. Gendry had his own secret, though even he didn't seem to know what it was. That day Arya quickened their pace, keeping the horses to a trot as long as she dared, and sometimes spurring to a gallop when she spied a flat stretch of field before them. That was seldom enough, though. The ground was growing hillier as they went. The hills were not high nor especially steep, but there seemed to be no end of them, and they soon grew tired of climbing up one and down the other and found themselves following the lay of the land, along stream beds, and through a maze of shallow wooded valleys where the trees made a solid canopy overhead. From time to time she sent hot pie and gentry on while she doubled back, to try to confuse their trail, listening all the while for the first sign of pursuit. Too slow, she thought to herself, chewing her lip. We're going too slow. They'll catch us for certain. Once from the crest of a ridge, she spied dark shapes crossing a stream in the valley behind them, and for half a heartbeat she feared that Roose Bolton's riders were on them. But when she looked again, she realized they were only a pack of wolves. She cupped her hands around her mouth and howled down at them. Aho! Aho! When the loudest of the wolves lifted its head and howled back, the sound made Arya shiver. By midday, Hot Pie had begun to complain. His ass was sore, he told them, and the saddle was rubbing him raw inside his legs, and besides, he had to get some sleep. I'm so tired, I'm going to fall off the horse. Arya looked at Gentry. If he falls off, who do you think will find him first, the wolves or the mummers? Oh, the wolves, said Gentry. Better noses. Hot Pie opened his mouth and closed it. He did not fall off his horse. The rain began a short time later. They still had not seen so much as a glimpse of the sun. It was growing colder, and pale white mists were threading between the pines and blowing across the bare, burned fields. Gendry was having almost as bad a time of it as Hot Pie, although he was too stubborn to complain. He sat awkwardly in the saddle, a determined look on his face beneath his shaggy black hair, but Arya could tell he was no horseman. I should have remembered, she thought to herself. She had been riding as long as she could remember, ponies when she was little, and later horses, but Gendry and Hot Pie were city-born, and in the city small folk walked. Yoren had given them mounts when he took them from King's Landing, but sitting on a donkey and plodding up the King's Road behind a wagon was one thing. Guiding a hunting horse through wild woods and burn fields was something else. She would make much better time on her own, Arya knew, but she could not leave them.
They were her pack, her friends, the only living friends that remained to her, and if not for her, they would still be safe at Harrenhal. Gendry sweating at his forge and hot pie in his kitchens. If the mummers catch us, I'll tell them that I'm Ned Stark's daughter and sister to the king in the north. I'll command them to take me to my brother and to do no harm to hot pie and Gendry. They might not believe her, though, and even if they did, Lord Bolton was her brother's bannerman, but he frightened her all the same. I won't let them take us, she vowed silently, reaching back over her shoulder to touch the hilt of the sword that Gentry had stolen for her. I won't. Late that afternoon, they emerged from beneath the trees and found themselves on the banks of a river. Hot Pie gave a whoop of delight. The trident! Now all we have to do is go upstream like he said. We're almost there. Arya chewed her lip. I don't think this is the trident. The river was swollen by the rain, but even so, it couldn't be much more than thirty feet across. She remembered the trident as being much wider. It's too little to be the trident, she told them, and we didn't come far enough. Yes, we did, Hot Pie insisted. We rode all day and hardly stopped at all. We must have come a long way. Let's have a look at that map again, said Gendry. Arya dismounted, took out the map, unrolled it. The rain pattered against the sheepskin and ran off in rivulets. We're some place here, I think, she said, pointing as the boys peered over her shoulders. But, said Hot Pie, that's hardly any ways at all. See, Harrenhal's there by your finger. You're almost touching it. And we rode all day. There's miles and miles before we reach the Trident, she said. We won't be there for days. This must be some different river. One of these, see? She showed them some of the thinner blue lines the mapmaker had painted in, each with a name painted in fine script beneath it. The Derry, the Green Apple, the Maiden, here, this one, the Little Willow, it might be that. Hot Pie looked from the line to the river. It doesn't look so little to me. Gendry was frowning as well. The one you're pointing at runs into that other one, see? The Big Willow, she read. The Big Willow, then, see? And the Big Willow runs into the Trident, so we could follow the one to the other. But we need to go downstream, not up. Only if this river isn't the Little Willow, if it's this other one here. Ripple down rill. Aria read. See, it loops around and flows down toward the lake, back to Harrenhal. He traced the line with a finger. Hot Pie's eyes grew wide. No, they'll kill us for sure. We have to know which river this is, declared Gendry in his stubbornest voice. We have to know. Well, we don't. The map might have names written beside the blue lines, but no one had written a name on the riverbank. We won't go up or downstream, she decided, rolling up the map. We'll cross and keep going north, like we were. Can horses swim? asked Hot Pie. It looks deep, Harry. What if there are snakes? Are you sure we're going north? asked Gendry. All these hills, if we got turned around, the moss on the trees. 
He pointed to a nearby tree. That tree's got moss on three sides, and the next one has no moss at all. We could be lost just riding around in a circle. We could be, said Aria, but I'm going to cross the river anyway. Now you can come, or you can stay here. She climbed back into the saddle, ignoring the both of them. If they didn't want to follow, they could find River on on their own, though more likely the mummers would just find them. She had to ride a good half-mile along the bank before she finally found a place where it looked as though it might be safe to cross, and even then her mare was reluctant to enter the water. The river, whatever its name, was running brown and fast, and the deep part in the middle came up past the horse's belly. Water filled her boots, but she pressed her heels in all the same and climbed out on the far bank. From behind she heard splashing and a mare's nervous whinny. They followed then. Good. She turned to watch as the boy struggled across and emerged dripping beside her. It wasn't a trident, she told them. It wasn't. The next river was shallower and easier to ford. That one wasn't the trident either, and no one argued with her when she told them they would cross it. Dusk was settling as they stopped to rest the horses once more and share another meal of bread and cheese. I'm cold and wet, Hot Pie complained. We're a long way from Harrenhal now, for sure. We could have us a fire. No, Arya and Gendry both said at the exact same instant. Hot Pie quailed a little. Arya gave Gendry a sideways look. He said it with me like John used to do, back in Winterfell. She missed Jon Snow, the most of all her brothers. Could we sleep, at least? Hot Pie asked. I'm so tired, Harry, and my ass is sore. I think I've got blisters. You'll have more than that, if you're caught, she said. We've got to keep going, we've got to. But it's almost dark, and you can't even see the moon. Get back on your horse. Plodding along at a slow walking pace as the light faded around them, Arya found her own exhaustion weighing heavy on her. She needed sleep as much as hot pie, but they dare not. If they slept, they might open their eyes to find Vargo Hote standing over them, with Shagwell the Fool, and Faithful Erswick, and Rorg, and Biter, and Septon Ut, and all his other monsters. Yet after a while, the motion of her horse became as soothing as the rocking of a cradle, and Arya found her eyes growing heavy. She let them close just for an instant, then snapped them wide again. I can't go to sleep, she screamed at herself silently. I can't, I can't. She knuckled at her eye and rubbed it hard to keep it open, clutching the reins tightly and kicking her mount to a canter. But neither she nor the horse could sustain the pace, and it was only a few moments before they fell back to a walk again, and a few more until her eyes closed a second time. This time they did not open quite so quickly. When they did, she found that her horse had come to a stop and was nibbling at a tuft of grass, while Gentry was shaking her arm. "'You fell asleep,' he told her. "'I was just resting my eyes. You were resting them a long while, then. Your horse was wandering in a circle.' And it wasn't till he stopped that I realized you were sleeping. 
Up pie's just as bad. He rode into a tree limb and got knocked off. You should have heard him yell. Even that didn't wake you up. You need to stop and sleep. I can keep going as long as you can, she yawned. Liar, he said. You keep going if you want to be stupid, but I'm stopping. I'll take the first watch. You sleep. What about hot pie? Gendry pointed. Hot pie was already on the ground, curled up beneath his cloak, on a bed of damp leaves and snoring softly. He had a big wedge of cheese in one fist, but it looked as though he had fallen asleep between bites. It was no good arguing, Arya realised. Gendry had the right of it. The mummers will need to sleep too, she told herself, hoping it was true. She was so weary it was a struggle even to get down from the saddle, but she remembered to hobble a horse before finding a place beneath a beech tree. The ground was hard and damp. She wondered how long it would be before she slept in a bed again with hot food and a fire to warm her. The last thing she did before closing her eyes was unsheathe her sword and lay it down beside her. Sir Gregor, she whispered, yawning, Dunson, Polliver, Raffa Sweetling, the Tickler, the Tickler, the Hound. Her dreams were red and savage. The mummers were in them, four at least, a pale Lyseni and a dark, brutal axeman from Ib, the scarred Dothraki horse lord called Igo, and a Dornishman whose name she never knew. On and on they came, riding through the rain, in rusting mail and wet leather, swords and axe, clanking against their saddles. They thought they were hunting her. She knew with all the strange, sharp certainty of dreams, but they were wrong. She was hunting them. She was no little girl in her dream. She was a wolf, huge and powerful, and when she emerged from beneath the trees in front of them and bared her teeth in a low, rumbling growl, she could smell the rank stench of fear from horse and man alike. The Lysenes mount reared and screamed in terror, and the others shouted at one another in man-talk, but before they could act, the other wolves came hurtling from the darkness and the rain, a great pack of them, gaunt and wet and silent. The fight was short, but bloody. The hairy man went down as he unslung his axe. The dark one died, stringing an arrow, and the pale man from Lice tried to bolt. Her brothers and sisters ran him down, turning him again and again, coming at him from all sides, snapping at the legs of his horse, and tearing the throat from the rider when he came crashing to the earth. Only the belled man stood his ground. His horse kicked in the head of one of her sisters, and he cut another almost in half with his curved, silvery claw as his hair tinkled softly. Filled with rage, she leapt onto his back, knocking him head first from his saddle. Her jaws locked on his arm as they fell, her teeth sinking through the leather and wool and soft flesh. When they landed, she gave a savage jerk with her head and ripped the limb loose from his shoulder, exulting. She shook it back and forth in her mouth, scattering the warm red droplets amidst the cold black rain. Tyrion He woke to the creak of old iron hinges. Oh! he croaked. 
At least he had his voice back raw and hoarse though it was. The fever was still on him, and Tyrion had no notion of the hour. How long had he slept this time? He was so weak, so damnably weak. Who? He called again, more loudly. Torchlight spilled through the open door, but within the chamber the only light came from the stub of a candle beside his bed. When he saw a shape moving toward him, Tyrion shivered. Here in Magor's Holdfast, every servant was in the Queen's pay, so any visitor might be another of Cersei's cat's paws, sent to finish the work Sir Mandon had begun. Then the man stepped into the candlelight, got a good look at the dwarf's pale face, and chortled. <laughs> Cut yourself shaving, did ye? Tyrion's fingers went to the great gash that ran from above one eye down to his jaw, across what remained of his nose. The proud flesh was still raw and warm to the touch. With a fearful big razor, yes. Bronze coal-black hair was freshly washed and brushed straight back from the hard lines of his face. He was dressed in high boots of soft tool leather, a wide belt studded with nuggets of silver, and a cloak of pale green silk. Across the dark grey wool of his doublet, a burning chain was embroidered diagonally in bright green thread. "'Where have you been?' Tyrion demanded of him. "'I sent for you. It must have been a fortnight ago.' Four days ago, more like,' the sellsword said, "'and I've been here twice and found you dead to the world.' "'Not dead, though my sweet sister did try.' Perhaps he should not have said that aloud, but Tyrion was past caring. Cersei was behind Sir Manda's attempt to kill him. He knew that in his gut. "'What's that ugly thing on your chest?' Bronn grinned. "'My nightly sigil. A flaming chain, green, on a smoke-grey field. By your lord father's command, I'm Sir Bronn of the Blackwater now. Imp. See you don't forget it.' Tyrion put his hands on the feather bed and squirmed back a few inches against the pillars. I was the one who promised you knighthood, remember? He'd like that, by your lord father's command, not at all. Lord Tywin had wasted little time. Moving his son from the tower of the hand to claim it for himself was a message anyone could read, and this was another. I lose half my nose, and you gain a knighthood. The guards have a deal to answer for. His voice was sour. Did my father dub you himself? No, them of us as survived the fight at the Winch Towers got ourselves dabbed by the High Septon and dubbed by the King's Guard. Took half the bloody day, with only three of the white swords left to do the honours. I knew Sir Mandan died in the battle, shoved into the river by Pud, half a heartbeat before the treacherous bastard could drive his sword through my heart. Who else was lost? The hound, said Bronn. Not dead, only gone. The gold cloak say he turned craven, and you led a sortie in his place. Not one of my better notions. Tyrion could feel the scar tissue pull tight when he frowned. He waved Bronn toward a chair. My sister's mistaken me for a mushroom. She keeps me in the dark and feeds me shit. Pud's a good lad, but the nut in his tongue is the size of Castley Rock, and I don't trust half of what he tells me. I sent him to bring Sir Jocelyn. 
and he came back and told me he's dead. Him and thousands more, Bronn said. How? Tyrion demanded, feeling that much sicker. During the battle, your sister sent the Kettle Blacks to fetch the king back to the Red Keep, the way I hear it. When the Gold Cloaks saw him leaving, half of them decided they'd leave with him. Iron Hand put himself in their path and tried to order them back to the walls. They say Bywater was blistering them good and almost had them ready to turn when someone put an arrow through his neck. He didn't seem so fearsome then, so they dragged him off his horse and killed him. Another de Tullius has his door. My nephew, he said, Joffrey, was he in any danger? No more than some, and less than most. Had he suffered any harm, taken a wound, mussed his hair, stubbed his toe, cracked a nail? Not as I heard. I warned Cersei what would happen. Who commands the gold cloaks now? Your Lord Father's given them to one of his Westermen, some knight named Adam Marbrand. In most cases, the gold cloaks would have resented having an outsider placed over them, but Sir Adam Marbrand was a shrewd choice. Like Jamie, he was the sort of man other men liked to follow. I have lost the city watch. I sent Pod looking for Shaka, but he's had no luck. The stone crows are still in the king's wood. Shagger seems to have taken a fancy to the place. Timmet led the burn men home with all the plunder they took from Stannis's camp after the fighting. Chella turned up with a dozen black ears at the river gate one morning, but your father's red cloaks chased them off, while the king's landers threw dung and cheered. In greats, the black ears died for them. Whilst Tyrion lay drugged and dreaming, his own blood had pulled his claws out one by one. I want you to go to my sister. Her precious son made it through the battle unscathed, so Cersei has no more need of a hostage. She swore to free Alayaya once. She did. Eight, nine days ago, after the whipping. Tyrion shoved himself up higher, ignoring the sudden stab of pain through his shoulder. Whipping? They tied her to a post in the yard and scourged her, then shoved her out of the gate, naked and bloody. She was learning to read, Tyrion thought absurdly. Across his face, the scar stretched tight, and for a moment it felt as though his head would burst with rage. Alayaya was a whore, true enough, but a sweeter, braver, more innocent girl he had seldom met. Tyrion had never touched her. She had been no more than a veil to hide Shay. In his carelessness, he had never thought what that role might cost her. I promised my sister I would treat Tommen as she treated Alayaya, he remembered aloud. He felt as though he might retch. How can I scourge an eight-year-old boy? But if I don't, Cersei wins. You don't have Tommen, Bronn said bluntly. Once she learned the Iron Hand was dead, the Queen sent the Kettle Blacks after him, and no one at Rosby had the balls to say them nay. Another blow. Yet a relief as well, he must admit it. He was fond of Tommen. The Kettle Blacks were supposed to be ours, he reminded Bronn, with more than a touch of irritation. They were, so long as I could give them two of your pennies for every one they had from the Queen. 
but now she's raised the stakes. Osney and Offrey were made knights after the battle, same as me. Gods know what for. No one saw them do any fighting. My hirelings betray me. My friends are scourged and shamed, and I lie here, rutting, Tyrion thought. I thought I won the bloody battle. Is this what triumph tastes like? Is it true that Stannis was put to rout by Renly's ghost? Bronn smiled thinly. From the winch towers, all we saw was banners in the mud and men throwing down their spears to run. But there's hundreds in the pot shops and brothels who'll tell you as how they saw Lord Renly kill this one or that one. Most of Stannis's host had been Renly's to start, and they went right back over at the sight of him in that shiny green armour. After all his planning, after the sortie and the bridge of ships, after getting his face slashed in two, Tyrion had been eclipsed by a dead man. If indeed Renly is dead, something else he would need to look into. How does Stannis escape? His Lyosennes kept their galleys out in the bay beyond your chain. When the battle turned bad, they put in along the bay shore and took off as many as they could. Men were killing each other to get aboard. Toward the end. What of Rob Stark? What has he been doing? There's some of his wolves burning their way down toward Duskendale. Your father's sending this Lord Tarly to sort them out. I'd have a mind to join him. It said he's a good soldier and open-handed with a plunder. The thought of losing Bronn was the final straw. No, your place is here. You're the captain of the Hand's Guard. You're not the Hand, Bronn reminded him sharply. Your father is, and he's got his own bloody guard. What happened to all the men you hired for me? Some died at the Winch Towers. That uncle of yours, Sir Kevin, he paid the rest of us and tossed us out. How good of him, Tyrion said acidly. Does that mean you've lost your taste for gold? Not bloody likely. Good, said Tyrion, because as it happens, I still have need of you. What do you know of Sir Mandon Moore? Bronn laughed. I know he's bloody well drowned. I owe him a great debt, but how to pay it? He touched his face, feeling the scar. I know precious little of the man, if truth be told. He had eyes like a fish, and he wore a white cloak. What else do you need to know? Everything, said Tyrion, for a start. What he wanted was proof that Sir Mandon had been Cersei's, but he dare not say so aloud. In the Red Keep, a man did best to hold his tongue. There were rats in the walls and little birds who talked too much and spiders. Help me up, he said, struggling with the bedclothes. It's time I paid a call on my father, and past time I let myself be seen again. Such a pretty sight, mocked Bronn. What's half a nose on a face like mine? But speaking of pretty, is Marjorie Tyrell in King's Landing yet? No, she's coming, though, and the city's mad with love for her. The Tyrells have been carting food up from High Garden and giving it away in her name. Hundreds of wains every day. There's thousands of Tyrell men swaggering about with little golden roses sewn on their doublets, and not a one is buying his own wine. 
wife, widow, or whore, the women are all giving up their virtue to every peach fuzz boy with a gold rose in his tit. They spit on me and buy drinks for the Tyrells. Tyrion slid from the bed to the floor. His legs turned wobbly beneath him. The room spun, and he had to grasp Bronn's arm to keep from pitching headlong into the rushes. Pod, he shouted. Podrick Payne, where in seven hells are you? Payne gnawed at him like a toothless dog. Tyrion hated weakness, especially his own. It shamed him, and shame made him angry. Pod, get in here! The boy came running. When he saw Tyrion standing and clutching Bronze arm, he gaped at him. My lord, you, you stood. Is that... Do you... Do you need wine? Dream wine? Shall I get the maester? He said you must stay abed, I mean. I have stayed abed too long. Bring me some clean garb. Garb? How the boy could be so clear-headed and resourceful in battle and so confused at all other times, Tyrion could never comprehend. Clothing, he repeated. Tunic, doublet, breeches, hose, for me to dress in so I can leave this bloody cell. It took all three of them to clothe him. Hideous though his face might be, the worst of his wounds was the one at the juncture of shoulder and arm, where his own mail had been driven back into his armpit by an arrow. Pus and blood still seeped from the discoloured flesh whenever Maester Franken changed his dressing, and any movement sent a stab of agony through him. In the end, Tyrion settled for a pair of breeches and an oversized bedrobe that hung loosely about his shoulders. Bran yanked his boots onto his feet, while Pod went in search of a stick for him to lean on. He drank a cup of dream wine to fortify himself. The wine was sweetened with honey, with just enough of the puppy to make his wounds bearable for a time. Even so, he was dizzy by the time he turned the latch, and the descent down the twisting stone steps made his legs tremble. He walked with a stick in one hand and the other on Pod's shoulder. A serving girl was coming up as they were going down. She stared at them with wide, white eyes, as though she were looking at a ghost. "'The dwarf has risen from the dead,' Tyrion thought. "'And look, he's uglier than ever. Run, tell your friends.' Megar's Holdfast was the strongest place in the Red Keep, a castle within the castle, surrounded by a deep, dry moat lined with spikes. The drawbridge was up for the night when they reached the door. Sir Meryn Trant stood before it in his pale armour and white cloak. "'Lower the bridge,' Tyrion commanded him. "'The Queen's orders are to raise the bridge at night.' Sir Meryn had always been Cersei's creature." The queen's asleep, and I have business with my father. There was magic in the name of Lord Tywin Lannister. Grumlin, Sir Meryn Trant, gave the command, and the drawbridge was lowered. A second Kingsguard knight stood sentry across the moat. Sir Osmond Kettleblack managed to smile when he saw Tyrion waddling towards him. Feeling stronger, my lord? Much. When's the next battle? I can scarcely wait. When Pod and he reached the Serpentine Steps, however, Tyrion could only gape at them in dismay. I will never claim those by myself, he confessed to himself. Swallowing his dignity, he asked Bronn to carry him. 
hoping against hope that at this hour there would be no one to see and smile, no one to tell the tale of the dwarf being carried up the steps like a babe in arms. The outer ward was crowded with tents and pavilions, dozens of them. Tyrell men, Podrick Payne explained as they threaded their way through a maze of silk and canvas. Lord Rowan's too, and Lord Redwine's. There wasn't room enough for all. In the castle, I mean, some took rooms, rooms in the city, in inns and all. They're here for the wedding, the king's wedding, King Joffrey's. Will you be strong enough to attend, my lord? Ravening weasers could not keep me away. There was this to be said for weddings over battles, at least. It was less likely that someone would cut off your nose. Light still burned dimly behind shuttered windows in the Tower of the Hand. The men on the door wore the crimson cloaks and lion-crested helms of his father's household guard. Tyrion knew them both, and they admitted him on sight, though neither could bear to look long at his face, he noted. Within they came upon Sir Adam Marbrand, descending the turnpike stair in the ornate black breastplate and cloth-of-gold cloak of an officer in the city watch. "'Oh, my lord,' he said, "'ha! How good to see you on your feet! I heard rumours of a small grave being dug. Me too. Under the circumstances, it seemed best to get up. I hear your commander of the city watch. Shall I offer congratulations or condolences?' "'Both, I fear,' Sir Adam smiled. "'Death and desertion have left me with some forty-four hundred. "'Only the guards and Littlefinger know how we're going to go on paying wages for so many. "'But your sister forbids me to dismiss any.' "'Still anxious,' says he. "'The battle's done. The gold cloaks won't help you now.' "'Do you come from my father?' he asked. I, I fear I did not leave him in the best of moods. Lord Tywin feels forty-four hundred guardsmen more than sufficient to find one lost squire. But your cousin Tyrek remains missing. Tyrek was the son of his late uncle Tyget, a boy of thirteen. He had vanished in the riot, not long after wedding the Lady Ermacond, a suckling babe who happened to be the last surviving heir of House Hayford, and likely the first bride in the history of the Seven Kingdoms to be widowed before she was weaned. I couldn't find him either, confessed Tyrion. He's feeding worms, said Bronn, with his usual tact. Iron Hand looked for him, and the eunuch rattled a nice fat purse. They had no more luck than we did. Give it up, sir. Sir Adam gazed at the sail-sword with distaste. Lord Tywin is stubborn where his blood is concerned. He will have the lad alive or dead, and I mean to oblige him. He looked back to Tyrion. You will find your father in his solar. My solar, thought Tyrion. I believe I know the way. The way was up more steps, but this time he climbed under his own power with one hand on Pud's shoulder. Bran opened the door for him. Lord Tywin Lannister was seated beneath the window, writing by the glow of an oil lamp. He raised his eyes at the sound of the latch. Tyrion! Calmly he laid his quill aside. 
I'm pleased you remember me, my lord. Tyrion released his grip on Pod, leaned his weight on the stick, and waddled closer. Something is wrong, he knew at once. Sir Bronn, Lord Tywin said. Podrick, perhaps you'd better wait without until we are done. The look Bronn gave the hand was little less than insolent. Nonetheless, he bowed and withdrew, with Pod on his heels. The heavy door swung shut behind them, and Tyrion Lannister was alone with his father. Even with the windows of the solar shuttered against the night, the chill in the room was palpable. What sort of lies has Cersei been telling him? The Lord of Castle Rock was as lean as a man twenty years younger, even handsome in his austere way. Stiff blonde whiskers covered his cheeks, framing a stern face, a bald head, a hard mouth. About his throat he wore a chain of golden hands, the fingers of each clasping the wrist of the next. "'That's handsome chain,' Tyrion said, "'though it looked better on me.' Lord Tywin ignored the sally. "'You had best be seated. Is it wise for you to be out of your sickbed?' I am sick of my sickbed. Tyrion knew how much his father despised weakness. He claimed the nearest chair. Such pleasant chambers you have. Would you believe it? While I was dying, someone moved me to a dark little cell in Magor's. The red cape is overcrowded with wedding guests. Once they depart, we will find you more suitable accommodations. I rather like these accommodations. Have you set a date for this great wedding? Geoffrey and Marjorie shall marry on the first day of the new year, which, as it happens, is also the first day of the new century. The ceremony will herald the dawn of a new era. A new Lannister era, thought Tyrion. Oh, bother, I fear I made other plans for that day. Did you come here just to complain of your bedchamber and make your lame japes? I have important letters to finish. Important letters, to be sure. Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens. Spare me these coy reproaches, Tyrion. I visited your sick bed as often as Maester Balabar would allow it. When you seem like to die... He steepled his fingers under his chin. Why did you dismiss Balabar? Tyrion shrugged. Mr. Franken is not so determined to keep me insensate. Balabar came to the city in Lord Redwine's retinue. A gifted healer, it said. It was kind of Cersei to ask him to look after you. She feared for your life. Feared that I may keep it, you mean? Doubtless that's why she's never once left my bedside. Don't be impertinent. Cersei has a royal wedding to plan. I'm waging a war, and you have been out of danger for at least a fortnight. Lord Tywin studied his son's disfigured face, his pale green eyes unflinching. Though the wound is ghastly enough, I'll grant you. What madness possessed you? The foe was at the gates with a battering ram. If Jamie had led the sortie, you'd call it valour. Jamie would never be so foolish as to remove his helm in battle. 
I trust you killed the man who cut you. Oh, the wretch is dead enough. Though it had been Podrick Payne who killed Sir Mandon, shoving him into the river to drown beneath the weight of his armour. A dead enemy is a joy forever, Tyrion said blithely, though Sir Mandon was not his true enemy. The man had no reason to want him dead. He was only a cat's paw, and I believe I know the cat. She told him to make certain I did not survive the battle. But without proof, Lord Tywin would never listen to such a charge. Why are you here in the city, father? he asked. Shouldn't you be off fighting Lord Stannis or Rob Stark or someone? And the sooner the better. Until Lord Redwine brings his fleet up, we lack the ships to assail Dragonstone. It makes no matter. Stannis Baratheon's son set on the Blackwater. As for Stark, the boy is still in the west, but a large force of Northmen under Helmand Tallheart and Robert Glover are descending towards Duskendale. I sent Lord Tarley to meet them, while Sir Gregor drives up the King's Road to cut off their retreat. Tallheart and Glover will be caught between them with a third of Stark's strength. Duskendale. There was nothing at Duskendale worth such a risk. Had the young wolf finally blundered? It's nothing you need trouble yourself with. Your face is pale as death, and there's blood seeping through your dressings. Say what you want, and take yourself back to bed. What I want, his throat felt raw and tight. What did he want? More than you can ever give me, father. Pod tells me that Littlefinger's been made Lord of Harrenhal. An empty title, so long as Roose Bolton holds the castle for Rob Stark. Yet Lord Baelish was desirous of the honour. He did his good service in the matter of the Tyrell marriage. Lannister pays his debts. The Tyrell marriage had been Tyrion's notion, in point of fact, but it would seem churlish to try to claim that now. That title may not be as empty as you think, he warned. Littlefinger does nothing without good reason. But be that as it may, you said something about paying debts, I believe. And you want your own reward, is that it? Very well. What is it you would have of me? Lands? Castle? Some office? A little bloody gratitude would make a nice start. Lord Tywin stared at him, unblinking. Mummers and monkeys require applause. So did Ares, for that matter. You did as you were commanded, and I'm sure it was to the best of your ability. No one denies the part you played. The part I played? What nostrils Tyrion had left must surely have flared. I saved your bloody city, it seems to me. Most people seem to feel that it was my attack on Lord Stannis's flank that turned the tide of battle. Lords Tyrell, Rowan, Redwine, and Tarly fought nobly as well, and I'm told it was your sister Cersei who set the pyromancers to making the wildfire that destroyed the Baratheon fleet. While all I did was to get my nose hairs trimmed, is that it? Tyrion could not keep the bitterness out of his voice. 
your chain was a clever stroke and crucial to our victory. Is that what you wanted to hear? I'm told we have you to thank for our Dornish alliance as well. You may be pleased to learn that Marcella has arrived safely at Sonspear. Sir Aries Ocart writes that she has taken a great liking to Princess Ariane, and that Prince Tristane is enchanted with her. I must like giving House Martel a hostage, but I suppose that could not be helped. We'll have our own hostage, Tyrion said. A council seat was also part of the bargain. Unless Prince Doran brings an army when he comes to claim it, he'll be putting himself in our power. Would that a council seat were all Martell came to claim, Lord Tywin said. You promised him vengeance as well. I promised him justice. Call it what you will, it still comes down to blood. Not an item in short supply, surely. I splashed through lakes of it during the battle. Tyrion saw no reason not to cut to the heart of the matter. Or have you grown so fond of Sir Gregor Clegane that you cannot bear to part with him? Sir Gregor has his uses, as did his brother. Every lord has need of a beast from time to time. A lesson you seem to have learned, judging from Sir Bronn and those clansmen of yours. Tyrion thought of Timot's burned eye, Shagger with his axe, Cello with a necklace of dried ears, and Bronn. Bronn, most of all. The woods are full of beasts, he reminded his father. The alleyways as well. True. Perhaps other dogs would hunt as well. I shall think on it. If there's nothing else, you have important letters, yes. Tyrion rose on unsteady legs, closed his eyes for an instant as a wave of dizziness washed over him, and took a shaky step toward the door. Later he would reflect that he should have taken a second, and then a third. Instead, he turned. "'What do I want?' you ask. "'I'll tell you what I want. "'I want what is mine by rights. "'I want castly rock.' His father's mouth grew hard. "'Your brother's birthright. "'The knights of the king's guard are forbidden to marry, "'to father children,' and to hold land. You know that as well as I. The day Jamie put on that white cloak, he gave up his claim to Castle Rock, but never once have you acknowledged it. It's past time. I want you to stand up before the realm and proclaim that I am your son and your lawful heir. Lord Tywin's eyes were a pale green flecked with gold, as luminous as they were merciless. Castle Rock, he declared in a flat, cold, dead tone, and then, never. The word hung between them, huge, sharp, poisoned. I knew the answer before I asked, Tyrion thought. Eighteen years since Jamie joined the King's Guard, and I never once raised the issue. I must have known. I must always have known. Why? he made himself ask, though he knew he would rue the question. You ask that? You who killed your mother to come into the world? 
You are an ill-made, devious, disobedient, spiteful little creature full of envy, lust, and low cunning. Men's laws give you the right to bear my name and display my colors, since I cannot prove that you're not mine. To teach me humility, the gods have condemned me to watch you waddle about wearing that proud lion that was my father's sigil and his father's before him. But neither gods nor men shall ever compel me to let you turn Castley Rock into your whorehouse. My whorehouse? The dawn broke. Tyrion understood all at once where this bile had come from. He ground his teeth together and said, Cersei told you about Alayaya. Is that her name? I confess I cannot remember the names of all your whores. Who was the one you married as a boy? Taisha, he spat out the answer defiant. And that camp follower on the green fork. Why do you care? he asked, unwilling even to speak Shay's name in his presence. I don't, no more than I care if they live or die. It was you who had Yaya whipped. It was not a question. Your sister told me of your threats against my grandsons. Lord Tywin's voice was colder than ice. Did she lie? Tyrion would not deny it. I made threats, yes, to keep Alayaya safe, so the Kettle Blacks would not misuse her. To save a whore's virtue, you threatened your own house, your own kin. Is that the way of it? You were the one who taught me that a good threat is often more telling than a blow. Not that Joffrey hasn't tempted me sore a few hundred times. If you're so anxious to whip people, start with him. But Tommen? Why would I arm Tommen? He's a good lad, and my own blood. As was your mother, Lord Tywin rose abruptly to tower over his dwarf son. Go back to your bed, Tyrion, and speak to me no more of your rights to Casterly Rock. You shall have your reward, but it shall be one I deem appropriate to your service and station, and make no mistake. This was the last time I will suffer you to bring shame unto House Lannister. You are done with whores. The next one I find in your bed, I'll hang. Davis He watched the sail grow for a long time, trying to decide whether he would sooner live or die. Dying would be easier, he knew. All he had to do was crawl inside his cave and let the ship pass by, and death would find him. For days now the fever had been burning through him, turning his bowels to brown water and making him shiver in his restless sleep. Each morning found him weaker. It will not be much longer, he had taken to telling himself. If the fever did not kill him, thirst surely would. He had no fresh water here, but for the occasional rainfall that pooled in hollows on the rock. Only three days passed, or had it been four? On his rock it was hard to tell the days apart. His pools had been dry as old bone, and the sight of the bay rippling green and grey all around him had been almost more than he could bear. 
Once he began to drink seawater, the end would come swiftly, he knew. But all the same, he had almost taken that first swallow, so parched was his throat. A sudden squall had saved him. He had grown so feeble by then that it was all he could do to lie in the rain with his eyes closed and his mouth open, and let the water splash down on his cracked lips and swollen tongue. But afterward he felt a little stronger, and the island's pools and cracks and crevices once more had brimmed with life. But that had been three days ago, or maybe four, and most of the water was gone now. Some had evaporated, and he had sucked up the rest. By the morrow he would be tasting the mud again, and licking the damp coal stones at the bottom of the depressions. And if not thirst or fever, starvation would kill him. His island was no more than a barren spire, jutting up out of the immensity of Blackwater Bay. When the tide was low, he could sometimes find tiny crabs along the stony strand, where he had washed ashore after the battle. They nipped his fingers painfully before he smashed them apart on the rocks to suck the meat from their claws and the guts from their shells. But the strand vanished whenever the tide came rushing in, and Davis had to scramble up the rock to keep from being swept out into the bay once more. The point of the spire was fifteen feet above the water at high tide, but when the bay grew rough the spray went even higher, so there was no way to keep dry, even in his cave, which was really no more than a hollow in the rock beneath an overhang. Nothing grew on the rock but lichen, and even the seabirds shunned the place. Now and again some gulls would land atop the spire, and Davis would try to catch one, but they were too quick for him to get close. He took to flinging stones at them, but he was too weak to throw with much force. So even when his stones hit, the gulls would only scream at him in annoyance and then take to the air. There were other rocks visible from his refuge, distant stony spires taller than his own. The nearest stood a good forty feet above the water, he guessed, though it was hard to be sure at this distance. A cloud of gulls swirled about it constantly, and often Davis thought of crossing over to raid their nests. But the water was cold here, the current strong and treacherous, and he knew he did not have the strength for such a swim. That would kill him as sure as drinking sea water. Autumn in the narrow sea could often be wet and rainy, he remembered from years past. The days were not bad, so long as the sun was shining, but the nights were growing colder, and sometimes a wind would come gusting across the bay, driving a line of whitecaps before it, and before long Davis would be soaked and shivering. Fever and chills assaulted him in turn, and of late he had developed a persistent racking cough. His cave was all the shelter he had, and that was little enough. Driftwood and bits of charred debris would wash up on the strand during low tide, but he had no way to strike a spark or start a fire. Once in desperation, he had tried rubbing two pieces of driftwood against each other, but the wood was rotted, and his efforts earned him only blisters. His clothes were sodden as well, and he had lost one of his boots somewhere in the bay before he washed up here. Thirst, hunger, exposure. They were his companions, 
with him every hour of every day, and in time he had come to think of them as his friends. Soon enough one or other of his friends would take pity on him and free him from this endless misery. Or perhaps he would simply walk into the water one day and strike out for the shore that he knew lay somewhere to the north beyond his sight. It was too far to swim, as weak as he was, but that did not matter. Davis had always been a sailor. He was meant to die at sea. The gods beneath the waters have been waiting for me, he told himself. It's past time I went to them. But now there was a sail, only a speck on the horizon, but growing larger. A ship where no ship should be. He knew where his rock lay, more or less. It was one of a series of sea months that rose from the floor of Blackwater Bay. The tallest of them jutted a hundred feet above the tide, and a dozen lesser months stood thirty to sixty feet high. Sailors called them Spears of the Merlin King, and he knew that for every one that broke the surface, a dozen lurked treacherously just below it. Any captain with any sense kept his course well away from them. Davis watched the sails swell through pale, red-rimmed eyes and tried to hear the sound of the wind caught in the canvas. She's coming this way. Unless she changed course soon, she would pass within hailing distance of his meagre refuge. It might mean life, if he wanted it. He was not sure he did. Why should I live? he thought as tears blurred his vision. God be good, why? My sons are dead. Dale and Allard and Merrick and Mathis, perhaps Devon as well. How can a father outlive so many strong young sons? How would I go on? I'm hollow shell. The crab's dead. There's nothing left inside. Don't they know that? They had sailed up the Blackwater Rush, flying the fiery heart of the Lord of Light. Davis and Black Betha had been in the second line of battle, between Dale's Wraith and Allard and Lady Mariah. Merrick, his third-born, was oarmaster on Fury, at the centre of the first line, while Mathis served as his father's second. Beneath the walls of the Red Keep, Stannis Baratheon's galleys had joined in battle with the boy king Joffrey's smaller fleet, and for a few moments the river had rung to the thrum of bowstrings and the crash of iron rams shattering oars and hulls alike. And then some vast beast had let out a roar, and green flames were all around them, wildfire, pyromancer's piss, the jade demon. Mathis had been standing at his elbow on the deck of Black Betha, when the ship seemed to lift from the water. Davis found himself in the river, flailing as the current took him, and spun him around and around. Upstream, the flames had ripped at the sky fifty feet high. He had seen Black Betha afire and Fury, and a dozen other ships. Had seen burning men leaping into the water to drown. Wraith and Lady Mariah were gone, sunk or shattered, or vanished behind a veil of wildfire and there was no time to look for them, because the mouth of the river was almost upon him, and across the mouth of the river the Lannisters had raised a great iron chain. 
From bank to bank there was nothing but burning ships and wildfire. The sight of it seemed to stop his heart for a moment, and he could still remember the sound of it, the crackle of flames, the hiss of steam, the shrieks of dying men, and the beat of that terrible heat against his face as the current swept him down toward hell. All he needed to do was nothing. A few moments more, and he would be with his sons now, resting in the cool green mud on the bottom of the bay, with fish nibbling at his face. Instead, he sucked in a great gulp of air and dove, kicking for the bottom of the river. His only hope was to pass under the chain, and the burning ships and the wildfire that floated on the surface of the water to swim hard for the safety of the bay beyond. Davis had always been a strong swimmer, and he'd worn no steel that day, but for the helm he'd lost when he lost Black Betha. As he knifed through the green murk, he saw other men struggling beneath the water, pulled down to drown beneath the weight of plate and mail. Davis swam past them, kicking with all the strength left in his legs, giving himself up to the current, the water filling his eyes. Deeper he went, and deeper and deeper still. With every stroke it grew harder to hold his breath. He remembered seeing the bottom soft and dim as a stream of bubbles burst from his lips. Something touched his leg. A snag, or a fish, or a drowning man. He could not tell. He needed air by then, but he was afraid. Was he past the chain yet? Was he out in the bay? If he came up under a ship he would drown, and if he surfaced amidst the floating patches of wild fire, his first breath would sear his lungs to ash. He twisted in the water to look up, but there was nothing to see but green darkness, and then he spun too far, and suddenly he could no longer tell up from down. Panic took hold of him. His hands flailed against the bottom of the river and sent up a cloud of mud that blinded him. His chest was growing tighter by the instant. He clawed at the water, kicking, pushing himself, turning, his lungs screaming for air, kicking, kicking, lost now in the river murk, kicking, kicking, kicking until he could kick no longer. When he opened his mouth to scream, the water came rushing in, tasting of salt, and Davis Seaworth knew that he was drowning. The next he knew, the sun was up, and he lay on a stony strand beneath a spire of naked stone, with the empty bay all around him, and a broken mast, a burned sail, and a swollen corpse beside him. The mast, the sail, and the dead man vanished with the next high tide, leaving Davis alone on his rock amidst the spears of the Merlin king. His long years as a smuggler had made the waters around King's Landing more familiar to him than any home he'd ever had, and he knew his refuge was no more than a speck on the charts, in a place that honest sailors steered away from, not toward. Though Davis himself had come by it once or twice in his smuggling days, the better to stay unseen. When they find me dead here, if ever they do, perhaps they will name the rock for me, he thought. Onion Rock, they'll call it. It will be my tombstone and my legacy. He deserved no more. The father protects his children, the Septons taught. But Davis had led his boys into the fire. Dale would never give his wife the child they had prayed for, and Allard 
with his girl in Old Town, and his girl in King's Landing, and his girl in Bravos, they would all be weeping soon. Mathis would never captain his own ship as he dreamed. Marrick would never have his knighthood. How can I live when they are dead? So many brave knights and mighty lords have died, better men than me, and I born. Crawl inside your cave, Davis. Crawl inside and shrink up small, and the ship will go away, and no one will trouble you ever again. Sleep on your stone pillow, and let the gulls peck out your eyes while the crabs feast on your flesh. You feasted on enough of them. You owe them. Hide, smuggler, hide, and be quiet and die. The sail was almost on him. A few moments more, and the ship would be safely passed, and he could die in peace. His hand reached for his throat, fumbling for the small leather pouch he always wore about his neck. Inside he kept the bones of the four fingers his king had shortened for him. On the day he made Davis a knight. My luck! His shortened fingers patted at his chest, groping, finding nothing. The pouch was gone, and the finger bones with them. Stannis could never understand why he'd kept the bones. To remind me of my king's justice, he whispered through cracked lips. But now they were gone. The fire took my luck as well as my son's. In his dreams the river was still aflame, and demons danced upon the waters with fiery whips in their hands, while men blackened and burned beneath the lash. Mother, have mercy, Davis prayed. Save me, gentle mother. Save us all. My luck is gone. And my sons. He was weeping freely now, salt tears streaming down his cheeks. The fire took it all. The fire. Perhaps it was only wind blowing against the rock, or the sound of the sea on the shore. But for an instant, Davis Seaworth heard her answer. You call the fire, she whispered, her voice as faint as the sound of waves in a seashell, sad and soft. You burned us, burned us, burned us. It was her. Davis cried, Mother, don't forsake us. It was her who burned you, the red woman, Millicent, her. He could see her, her heart-shaped face, the red eyes, the long, coppery hair, the red gowns moving like flames as she walked, a swirl of silk and satin. She had come from a shy in the east. She had come to Dragonstone and won Solis and her queen's men for her alien god. And then the king— Stannis Baratheon himself. He had gone so far as to put the fiery heart on his banners, the fiery heart of R'hllor, Lord of Light, and God of Flame and Shadow. At Melisande's urging, he had dragged the seven from their sceptred dragonstone and burned them before the castle gates, and later had burned the godswood of Storm's End as well, even the heart tree, a huge white weirwood, with a solemn face. It was her work, Davis said again, more weakly. 
Her work and yours on your night. You rode her into Storm's End in the black of night, so she might loose her shadow child. You are not guiltless, no. You rode beneath her banner and flew it from your mast. <laughs> you watched the seven burn at Dragonstone and did nothing. She gave the father's justice to the fire and the mother's mercy and the wisdom of the crone, smith and stranger, maid and warrior. She burned them all to the glory of her cruel god. And you stood and held your tongue. Even when she killed old Maester Cresson, even then you did nothing. The sail was a hundred yards away and moving fast across the bay. In a few more moments it would be past him and dwindling. Sir Davis Seaworth began to climb his rock. He pulled himself up with trembling hands, his head swimming with fever. Twice his maimed fingers slipped on the damp stone and he almost fell, but somehow he managed to cling to his perch. If he fell, he was dead, and he had to live. For a little while more, at least, there was something he had to do. The top of the rock was too small to stand on safely, as weak as he was, so he crouched and waved his fleshless arms. Ship! he screamed into the wind. Ship here! Here! From up here he could see her more clearly, the lean striped hull, the bronze figurehead, the billowing sail. There was a name painted on her hull, but Davis had never learned to read. Ship! he called again. Help me! Help me! A crewman on a forecastle saw him and pointed. He watched as other sailors moved to the gunwale to gape at him. A short while later, the galley sail came down. Her oars slid out, and she swept around towards his refuge. She was too big to approach the rock closely, but thirty yards away she launched a small boat. Davis clung to his rock and watched it creep toward him. Four men were rowing, while a fifth sat in the prow. You! The fifth man called out when they were only a few feet from his island. You! Up on the rock! Who are you? A smuggler who rose above himself, thought Davis. A fool who loved his king too much and forgot his guards. I... <coughs> his throat was parched, and he had forgotten how to talk. The words felt strange on his tongue and sounded stranger in his ears. I was in the battle. I was <coughs> a captain, a, a knight. I was a knight. I, sir, the man said, and serving which king? The galley might be Joffrey's, he realized suddenly. If he spoke the wrong name now, she would abandon him to his fate. But no, her hull was striped. She was Lysine. She was Salador Sans. The mother sent her here. The mother in her mercy. She had a task for him. Stannis lives, he knew then. I have a king still, and sons. I have other sons, and a wife loyal and loving. How could he have forgotten? The mother was merciful indeed. 
Stannis! he shouted back at the Lyseni. Gods be good! I serve King Stannis! Aye, said the man in the boat, and so do we. Sansa The invitation seemed innocent enough, but every time Sansa read it, her tummy tightened into a knot. She's to be queen now. She's beautiful and rich, and everyone loves her. Why would she want to sup with a traitor's daughter? It could be curiosity, she supposed. Perhaps Margie Tyrell wanted to get the measure of the rival she'd displaced. Does she resent me, I wonder? Does she think I bear her ill will? Sansa had watched from the castle walls as Margie Tyrell and her escort made their way up Aegon's high hill. Joffrey had met his new bride-to-be at the King's Gate to welcome her to the city, and they rode side by side through cheering crowds. Joff glittering in gilded armour, and the Tyrell girl splendid in green with a cloak of autumn flowers blowing from her shoulders. She was sixteen, brown-haired and brown-eyed, slender and beautiful. The people called out her name as she passed, held up their children for her blessing, and scattered flowers under the hooves of her horse. Her mother and grandmother followed close behind, riding in a tall wheelhouse whose sides were carved in the shape of a hundred twining roses, every one gilded and shining. The small folk cheered them as well. The same small folk who pulled me from my horse and would have killed me if not for the hound. Sansa had done nothing to make the commons hate her, no more than Marjorie Tyrell had done to win their love. Does she want me to love her too? She studied the invitation, which looked to be written in Marjorie's own hand. Does she want my blessing? Sansa wondered if Joffrey knew of this supper. For all she knew, it might be his doing. That thought made her fearful. If Joff was behind the invitation, he would have some cruel jape planned to shame her in the older girl's eyes. Would he command his king's guard to strip her naked once again? The last time he had done that, his uncle Tyrion had stopped him, but the imp could not save her now. No one can save me but my Florian. Sedontus had promised he would help her escape, but not until the night of Joffrey's wedding. The plans had been well laid, her dear devoted knight turned fool, assured her. There was nothing to do until then but endure and count the days. And sup with my replacement. Perhaps she was doing Marjorie Tyrell an injustice. Perhaps the invitation was no more than a simple kindness, an act of courtesy. It might be just a supper. But this was the Red Keep. This was King's Landing. This was the court of King Joffrey Baratheon, the first of his name, and if there was one thing that Sansa Stark had learned here, it was mistrust. Even so, she must accept. She was nothing now, the discarded daughter of a traitor and disgraced sister of a rebel lord. She could scarcely refuse Joffrey's queen-to-be. I wish the hound were here. The night of the battle, Sandor Clegane had come to her chambers to take her from the city, but Sansa had refused. Sometimes she lay awake at night, wondering if she'd been wise. She had his stained white cloak 
hidden in a cedar chest beneath her summer silks. She could not say why she'd kept it. The hound had turned craven, she'd heard it said, at the height of the battle. He got so drunk, the imp had to take his men. But Sansa understood. She knew the secret of his burned face. It was only the fire, he feared. That night, the wildfire had set the river itself ablaze and filled the very air with green flame. Even in the castle, Sansa had been afraid. Outside, she could scarcely imagine it. Sighing, she got out her quill and ink and wrote Marjorie Tyrell a gracious note of acceptance. When the appointed night arrived, another of the king's guard came for her, a man as different from Sandor Clegane as, well, as a flower from a dog. The sight of Sir Loras Tyrell standing on her threshold made Sansa's heart beat a little faster. This was the first time she had been so close to him since he had returned to King's Landing, leading the vanguard of his father's host. For a moment she did not know what to say. Sir Loras, she finally managed, you... You look so lovely. He gave her a puzzled smile. My lady is too kind, and beautiful besides. My sister awaits you eagerly. I've so looked forward to our supper, as has Marjorie, and my lady grandmother as well. He took her arm and led her toward the steps. Your grandmother? Sansa was finding it hard to walk and talk and think all at the same time, with Sir Loras touching her arm. She could feel the warmth of his hand through the silk. Lady Olena, she is to sup with you as well. Oh, said Sansa. I'm talking to him, and he's touching me. He's holding my arm and touching me. The Queen of Thorns, she's called, isn't that right? It is, <laughs> Sir Loras laughed. He has the warmest laugh, she thought as he went on. You'd best not um, use that name in her presence, though or you'll like to get pricked. Sansa reddened. Any fool would have realized that no woman could be happy about being called the Queen of Thorns. Maybe I truly am as stupid as Cersei Lannister says. Desperately, she tried to think of something clever and charming to say to him, but her wits had deserted her. She almost told him how beautiful he was, until she remembered she'd already done that. He was beautiful, though. He seemed taller than he had been when she first met him, but still so lithe and graceful, and Sansa had never seen another boy with such wonderful eyes. He's no boy, though. He's a man grown, a knight of the King's Guard. She thought he looked even finer in white than in the green and golds of House Tyrell. The only spot of colour in him now was the brooch that clasped his cloak. The rose of Highgarden, wrought in soft yellow gold, nestled in a bed of delicate green jade leaves. Sir Balan Swan held the door of Magors for them to pass. He was all in white as well, though he did not wear it half so well as Sir Loras. Beyond the spiked moat, two dozen men were taking their practice with sword and shield. With the castle so crowded, the outer ward had been given over to guests to raise their tents and pavilions, leaving only the smaller inner yards for training. One of the red wine twins was being driven backward by Sir Talad with the eyes on his shield. 
chunky Sekenis of Case, who chuffed and puffed every time he raised his longsword, seemed to be holding his own against Osni Kettleblack. But Osni's brother, Sir Osfrid, was savagely punishing the frog-faced squire, Morris Slint. Blunted swords or no, Slint would have a rich crop of bruises by the morrow. It made Sansa wince just the watch. They have scarcely finished burying the dead from the last battle, and already they are practising for the next one. On the edge of the yard, a lone knight with a pair of golden roses on his shield was holding off three foes. Even as they watched, he caught one of them alongside the head, knocking him senseless. "'Is that your brother?' Sansa asked. "'It is, my lady,' said Sir Loras. "'A garden often trains against three men, or even four. In battle, it is seldom one against one, he says, so he likes to be prepared. He must be very brave. He is a great knight, Sir Loras replied. A better sword than me, in truth, though I'm the better lance. I remember, said Sansa. You ride wonderfully, sir. My lady is gracious to say so. When has she seen me ride? At the hands tawny, don't you remember? You rode a white courser, and your armour was a hundred different kinds of flowers. You gave me a rose, a red rose. You threw white roses to the other girls that day. It made her flush to speak of it. You said no victory was half as beautiful as me. Sir Loras gave her a modest smile. I spoke only a simple truth, that any man with eyes could see. He doesn't remember. Sansa realized, startled. He's only being kind to me. He doesn't remember me, or the rose, or any of it. She had been so certain that it meant something, that it meant everything. A red rose, not a white. It was after you unhorsed Sir Robar Royce, she said desperately. He took his hand from her arm. I slew Robar at Storm's End, my lady. It was not a boast. He sounded sad. Him and another of King Rindy's rainbow guard as well, yes. Sansa had heard the women talking of it around the well, but for a moment she'd forgotten. That was when Lord Rendy was killed, wasn't it? How terrible for your poor sister. For Marjorie, his voice was tight. To be sure, she was at Bitterbridge, though. She did not see. Even so, when she heard... Sir Loras brushed the hilt of his sword lightly with his hand. Its grip was white leather, its pommel a rose in alabaster. Renly is dead. Robar as well. What use to speak of them? The sharpness in his tone took her aback. I, my lord, I, I, I did not mean to give offence, sir. Nor could you, Lady Sansa, Sir Loras replied, but all the warmth had gone from his voice nor did he take her arm again. They ascended the serpentine steps in a deepening silence. Why did I have to mention Sabrobar? Sansa thought. I've ruined everything. He is angry with me now. She tried to think of something she might say to make amends, but all the words that came to her were lame and weak. Be quiet, or you'll only make it worse, she told herself. Lord Mace Tyrell and his entourage had been housed behind the royal sept, in the long, slate-roofed keep that had been called the Maiden Vault, since King Baylor the Blessed had confined his sisters therein, so the sight of them 
might not tempt him into carnal thoughts. Outside its tall carved doors stood two guards in gilded half-helms and green cloaks edged in gold satin, the golden rose of Highgarden sewn on their breasts. Both were seven-footers, wide of shoulder and narrow of waist, magnificently muscled. When Sansa got close enough to see their faces, she could not tell one from the other. They had the same strong jaws, the same deep blue eyes, the same thick red moustaches. Who are they? she asked Solaris, her discomfort forgotten for a moment. My grandmother's personal guard, he told her. Their mother named them Eric and Arik, but grandmother can't tell them apart, so she calls them left and right. Left and right opened the doors, and Marjorie Tyrell herself emerged and swept down the short flight of steps to greet them. Lady Sansa, she called. I'm so pleased you came. Be welcome. Sansa knelt at the feet of her future queen. You do me great honour, your grace. Won't you call me Marjorie? Please rise. Loras, help the Lady Sansa to her feet. Might I call you Sansa? If it please you. Sir Loras helped her up. Marjorie dismissed him with a sisterly kiss and took Sansa by the hand. Come, my grandmother awaits, and she is not the most patient of ladies. A fire was crackling in the hearth, and sweet-smelling rushes had been scattered on the floor. Around the long trestle table, a dozen women were seated. Sansa recognized only Lord Tyrell's tall, dignified wife, Lady Aleri, whose long silvery braid was bound with jeweled rings. Marjorie performed the other introductions. There were three Tyrell cousins, Mega and Alla and Eleanor, all close to Sansa's age. Buxom Lady Janna was Lord Tyrell's sister, and wed to one of the Greenapple Fossaways. Dainty, bright-eyed Lady Leonette was a Fossaway as well, and wed to Sir Garland. Scepter Nysterica had a homely, puck-scarred face, but seemed jolly. Pale, elegant Lady Graceford was with child, and Lady Bulwer was a child, no more than eight. And Mary was what she was to call boisterous, plump Meredith Crane, but most definitely not Lady Merriweather, a sultry, black-eyed, Moorish beauty. Last of all, Marjorie brought her before the wizened, white-haired doll of a woman at the head of the table. I am honoured to present my grandmother, the Lady Alina, widow to the late Luther Tyrell, Lord of Highgarden, whose memory is a comfort to us all. The old woman smelled of rose water. Why, she's just the littlest bit of a thing. There was nothing the least bit thorny about her. A kiss me, child, Lady Alina said, tugging at Sansa's wrist with a soft-spotted hand. It's so kind of you to sup with me and my foolish flock of hens. Dutifully, Sansa kissed the old woman on the cheek. It is kind of you to have me, my lady. I knew your grandfather, Lord Ricard, though not well. He died before I was born. I am aware of that, child. It's said that your Tully, grandfather, is dying too, Lord Huster. Surely they told you? An old man, though not so old as me. Still, night falls for all of us in the end, and uh, too soon for some. 
You would know that more than most, poor child. You've had your share of grief, I know. We are sorry for your losses. Sansa glanced at Marjorie. I was saddened when I heard of Lord Renly's death, Your Grace. He was very gallant. You are kind to say so, answered Marjorie. Her grandmother snorted. Ha! <laughs> gallant, yes, and charming, and very clean. He knew how to dress, and he knew how to smile, and he knew how to bathe, and somehow he got the notion that this made him fit to be king. The Baratheons have always had some queer notions, to be sure, and it comes from their Targaryen blood, I should think. She sniffed. They uh, tried to marry me to a Targaryen once, but I soon put an end to that. Renly was brave and gentle, Grandmother, said Marjorie. Father liked him as well, and so did Loras. Loras is young, Lady Orlina said crisply, and very good at knocking men off horses with a stick. That does not make him wise. As to your father, would that I had been born a peasant woman with a big wooden spoon. I might have been able to beat some sense into his fat head. Mother, Lady O'Leary scolded. Hush, O'Leary, don't take that tone with me. And don't call me mother. If I'd given birth to you, I'm sure I'd remember. I'm only to blame for your husband, the Lord Oaf of Highgarden. Grandmother, Marjorie urged, mind your words, or what will Sansa think of us? She might think we have some wits about us. One of us, at any rate. The old woman turned back to Sansa. It's treason. I warn them. Robert has two sons, and Renly has an older brother. How can he possibly have any claim to that ugly iron chair? Tut, tut, says my son. Don't you want your sweetling to be queen? You Starks were kings once, the Aarons and the Lannisters as well, and even the Baratheons through the female line, but the Tyrells were no more than Stuarts, until Aegon the Dragon came along and cooked the rightful king of the Reach on the field of fire. If truth be told, even our claim to Highgarden is a bit dodgy, just as those dreadful Florence are always whining. What does it matter, you ask? Well, of course it doesn't except to oaths like my son. The thought that one day he may see his grandson with his arse on the Iron Throne makes Mace puff up like—now, what, what do you call it? Marjorie, you're clever. Be a dear, and tell your poor old half-daft grandmother the name of that queer fish uh, fr from the Summer Isles, hmm? that puffs up to ten times its own size when you poke it. They call them puffish, Grandmother. Of course they do. Summer islanders have no imagination. My son ought to take the puffish for his sigil. If truth be told, he could put a crown on it, the way the Baratheons do their stag. Mayhap that would make him happy. We should have stayed well out of all this bloody foolishness, if you ask me. But once the cow's been milked, there's no squirting the cream back up her udder. After Lord Puffish put that crown on Renly's head, we were into the pudding up to our knees. So here we are to see things through. And what do you say to that, Sansa? Sansa's mouth opened and closed. She felt very like a Puffish herself. The Tyrells can trace their descent back to Garth Greenhand, was the best she could manage at short notice. The Queen of Thorns snorted. Tch! 
so can the Florence, the Rowans, the Oakarts, and half the other noble houses of the South. Garth liked to plant his seed in fertile ground, they say. I shouldn't wonder that more than his hands were green. Sansa, Lady Alera broke in, you must be very hungry. Shall we have a bite of boar together and some lemon cakes? Lemon cakes are my favourite, Sansa admitted. So we have been told, declared Lady Alina, who obviously had no intention of being hushed. That Varys creature seemed to think we should be grateful for the information. I've never been quite sure what the point of a eunuch is, if truth be told. It seems to me they're only men, with the useful bits cut off. Elary, will you have them bring the food, or do you mean to starve me to death? Here, Sansa, sit here, next to me. I'm much less boring than these others. I hope that you're fond of fools. Sansa smoothed down her skirts and said, I think fools, my lady. You mean the sort in Motley? Feathers, in this case. What do you imagine I was speaking of? My son, or these lovely ladies? No, don't blush. With your hair, it makes you look like a pomegranate. All men are fools, if truth be told, but the ones in Motley are more amusing than ones with crowns. Marjorie, child, summon Butterbumps. Let us see if we can't make Lady Sansa smile. The rest of you, be seated. Do I have to tell you everything? Sansa must think that my granddaughter is attended by a flock of sheep. Butterbumps arrived before the food, dressed in a jester suit of green and yellow feathers with a floppy coxcomb. An immense round fat man, as big as three moon boys, he came cartwheeling into the hall, vaulted onto the table, and laid a gigantic egg right in front of Sansa. "'Break it, my lady!' he commanded. When she did, a dozen yellow chicks escaped and began running in all directions. "'Catch them!' Butterbumps exclaimed. Little Lady Bulwer snagged one and handed it to him, whereby he tilted back his head, popped it into his huge rubbery mouth, and seemed to swallow it whole. When he belched, tiny yellow feathers flew out of his nose. Lady Bulwer began to wail in distress, but her tears turned into a sudden squeal of delight when the chick came squirming out of the sleeve of her gown and ran down her arm. As the servants brought forth a broth of leeks and mushroom, Butterbumps began to juggle, and Lady Alina pushed herself forward to rest her elbows on the table. "'Do you know my son, Sansa, Lord Pufffish of Highgarden?' "'A great lord,' Sansa answered politely. "'A great oaf,' said the Queen of Thorns. "'His father was an oaf as well. My husband, the late Lord Luther. Oh, I loved him well enough, don't mistake me. A kind man, and not unskilled in the bedchamber, but an appalling oaf all the same. He managed to ride off a cliff whilst hawking.' They say he was looking up at the sky and paying no mind to where his horse was taking him. And now my oaf son is doing the same, only he's riding a lion instead of a palfrey. It's easier to mount a lion, and not so easy to get off, I warned him. But he only chuckles. <laughs> Should you ever have a son, Sansa, beat him frequently so he learns to mind you. 
I only had the one boy, and I hardly beat him at all, so now he pays more heed to butterbumps than he does to me. A lion is not a lap cat, I told him, and he gives me a tut-tut mother. <laughs> there is entirely too much tut-tutting in this realm, if you ask me. All these kings would do a great deal better if they put down their swords and listened to their mothers. Sansa realized that her mouth was open again. She filled it with a spoon of broth, while Lady Elleria and the other women were giggling at the spectacle of Butterbumps bouncing oranges off his head, his elbows, and his ample rump. "'I want you to tell me the truth about this royal boy,' said Lady Alina abruptly. "'This Joffrey!' Sansa's fingers tightened around her spoon. "'The truth! I can't! Don't ask it, please! I, I can't! I... 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 You, yes. Who would know better? The dad seems kingly enough, I'll grant you. A bit full of himself, but that would be his Lannister blood. We've heard some troubling tales, however. Is there any truth to them? Has this boy mistreated you? Sansa glanced about nervously. Butterbumps popped a whole orange into his mouth, chewed and swallowed, slapped his cheek, and blew seeds out of his nose. The women giggled and laughed, servants were coming and going, and the maiden vault echoed to the clatter of spoons and plates. One of the chicks hopped back onto the table and ran through Lady Grace Ford's broth. No one seemed to be paying them any mind, but even so, she was frightened. Lady Olena was growing impatient. Why are you gaping at butterbumps? I asked a question. I expect an answer. Have the Lannisters stolen your tongue, child? Sir Dantas had warned her to speak freely only in the godswood. Joff, King Joffrey, he's... His grace is very fair and handsome and... and as brave as a lion. Yes, all the Lannisters are lions, and when a Tyrell breaks wind, it smells just like a rose, the old woman snapped. But how kind is he? How clever! Is he a good heart, a gentle hand? Is he chivalrous as befits a king? Will he cherish Marjorie and treat her tenderly, protect her honour as he would his own? He will, Sansa lied. He is very, very comely. You said that. You know, child, some say that you are as big a fool as Butterbumps here. And I am starting to believe them. Comely? I've taught my Marjorie what comely is worth, I hope. Somewhat less than a mummer's fart. Arian Brightfire was comely enough, but a monster all the same. The question is, what is Joffrey? She reached to snag a passing servant. I am not fond of leeks. Take this broth away and bring me some cheese. The cheese will be served after the cakes, my lady. The cheese will be served when I want it served, and I want it served now. The old woman turned back to Sansa. Are you frightened, child? No need for that. We're only women here. Tell me the truth. No harm will come to you. My father always told the truth. Sansa spoke quietly, but even so it was hard to get the words out. Lord Eddard, yes, he had that reputation, but they named him Traitor, and took his head off even so. The old woman's eyes bore into her, sharp and bright as the points of swords. 
"'Joffrey,' Sansa said. "'Joffrey did that. "'He promised me he would be merciful "'and cut off my father's head. "'He said that was mercy, "'and he took me up on the walls "'and made me look at it. "'The head. "'He wanted me to weep, but—' "'She stopped abruptly and covered her mouth. "'I've said too much. "'Oh, gods be good, they'll know, they'll hear. "'Someone will tell on me.' Go on. It was Marjorie who urged, Joffrey's own queen-to-be. Sansa did not know how much she had heard. I can't. What if she tells him? What if she tells? He'll kill me for certain, then. Or give me to her Sir Ilian. I never meant. My, my father was a traitor. My, my brother as well. I have the traitor's blood. Please, don't make me say any more. "'Calm yourself, child,' the Queen of Thorns commanded. "'She's terrified, Grandmother. Just look at her.' The old woman called to Butterbumps. "'Fool! Give us a song. A long one, I should think. Uh, "'The bear and the maiden fair will do nicely.' "'It will,' the huge jester replied. "'It will do nicely indeed. Shall I sing it standing on me head, my lady? "'Will that make it sound better?' "'No.' Stand on your feet, then. We wouldn't want your hat to fall off. As I recall, you never wash your hair. It's my lady commands. Butterbumps bowed low, let loose of enormous belch, then straightened, threw out his belly, and bellowed. A bear there was, a bear, a bear, all black and brown and covered with hair. Lady Olena squirmed forward. Even when I was a girl younger than you... It was well known that in the Red Keep the very walls have ears. Well, they will be the better for a song, and meanwhile we girls shall speak freely. But, Sansa said, Varys, he knows, he always... Sing louder, the Queen of Thorns shouted at Butterbumps. These old ears are almost deaf, you know. Are you whispering at me, you fat fool? I don't pay you for whispers. Sing! The bear, thundered Butterbumps, his great deep voice echoing off the rafters. Oh, come, they said, oh, come to the fair. The fair, said he, but I'm a bear, all black and brown and covered with air. The wrinkled old lady smiled. At High Garden, we have many spiders amongst the flowers. So long as they keep to themselves, we let them spin their little webs. But if they get underfoot... We step on them. She patted Sansa on the back of the hand. Now, child, the truth. What sort of man is this Joffrey, who calls himself Baratheon, but looks so very Lannister? And down the road from here to there, from here to there, three boys, a goat, and a dancing bear. Sansa felt as though her heart had lodged in her throat. The Queen of Thorns was so close she could smell the old woman's sour breath. Her gaunt, thin fingers were pinching her wrist. To her other side, Marjorie was listening as well. A shiver went through her. A monster, she whispered, so tremulously she could scarcely hear her own voice. Joffrey is a monster. He lied about the butcher's boy and made father kill my wolf. When I displease him, he has the king's guard beat me. He's evil and cruel, my lady. It's so. 
and the Queen as well. Lady Olina Tyrell and her granddaughter exchanged a look. Ah, said the old woman, that's a pity. Oh, gods, thought Sansa, horrified. If Marjorie won't marry him, Joff will know that I'm to blame. Please, she blurted, don't stop the wedding. Have no fear. Lord Puffish is determined that Marjorie shall be queen, and the word of a Tyrell is worth more than all the gold in Castle Rock. At least it was in my day. Even so, we thank you for the truth, child. Danced and spun all the way to the fair, the fair, the fair. Butterbumps hopped and roared and stomped his feet. Sansa, would you like to visit High Garden? When Marjorie Tyrell smiled, she looked very like her brother Loras. All the autumn flowers are in bloom just now, and there are groves and fountains, shady courtyards, marble colonnades. My lord father always keeps singers at court, sweeter ones than butters here, and pipers and fiddlers and harpers as well. We have the best horses and pleasure boats to sail along the Manda. Do you hawk, Sensor? A little, she admitted. Oh, sweet she was and pure and fair, the maid with honey in her hair. You will love High Garden, as I do, I know it. Marjorie brushed back a loose strand of Sansa's hair. Once you see it, you'll never want to leave. And perhaps you won't have to. Arrere, arrere, the maid with honey in her hair. Shush, child, the Queen of Thorns said sharply. Santa hasn't even told us that she would like to come for a visit. Oh, but I would, Sansa said. High Garden sounded like the place she had always dreamed of, like the beautiful magical court she had once hoped to find at King's Landing. Smell the scent on the summer air, the bear, the bear, all black and brown and covered with air. But the queen, Sansa went on, she won't let me go. She will. Without High Garden, the Lannisters have no hope of keeping Joffrey on his throne. If my son, the Lord of Oaf, asks, she will have no choice but to grant his request. Will he? asked Sansa. Will he ask? Lady Orlina frowned. I see no need to give him a choice. Of course he has no hint of our true purpose. He smelled the scent on the summer air. Sansa wrinkled her brow. Our true purpose, milady? He sniffed and roared and smelt it there, honey on the summer air. To see you safely wed, child, the old woman said, as Butterbumps bellowed out the old, old song, to my grandson. Wed to Sir Loris? Oh! Sansa's breath caught in her throat. She remembered Sir Loris in his sparkling sapphire armour, tossing her a rose. Sir Loris, in white silk, so pure, innocent, beautiful, the dimples at the corner of his mouth when he smiled, the sweetness of his laugh, the warmth of his hand. She could only imagine what it would be like to pull up his tunic and caress the smooth skin underneath, to stand on her toes and kiss him, to run her fingers through those thick brown curls and drown in his deep brown eyes. A flush crept up her neck. Oh, I'm a maid, and I'm pure and fair. I'll never dance with a hairy bear. A bear, a bear. I'll never dance with a hairy bear. 
Would you like that, Sansa? asked Marjorie. I've never had a sister, only brothers. Oh, please say yes. Please say that you will consent to marry my brother. The words came tumbling out of her. Yes, I will. I would like that more than anything, to wed Sir Loras, to love him. Loras! Lady Olena sounded annoyed. Don't be foolish, child. King's guard never wed. Didn't they teach you anything in Winterfell? We were speaking of my grandson, Willis. He's a bit old for you, to be sure, but a, a dear boy for all that. Not the least bit oafish, an heir to High Garden besides. Sansa felt dizzy. One instant her head was full of dreams of Loras, and the next they had all been snatched away. Willis. Willis. I, she said stupidly, courtesy is a lady's armour. You must not offend them. Be careful what you say. I, I do not know, Sir Willis. I've never had the pleasure, my lady. Is he, is he as great a knight as his brother's? Lifted her eye into the air, the bear, the bear. No, Marjorie said, he has never taken vows. Her grandmother frowned. Tell the girl the truth. The poor lad is crippled, and that's the way of it. He was hurt as a squire, riding in his first tawny, Marjorie confided. His horse fell and crushed his leg. That snake of a Dornishman was to blame, that Oberon Martell, and his maester as well. I call for a knight, but you're a bear, a bear, a bear, all black and brown, and covered with air. Willis has a bad leg, but a good heart, said Marjorie. He used to read to me when I was a little girl and draw me pictures of the stars. You will love him as much as we do, Sansa. She kicked and wailed the maid so fair, but he licked the honey from her hair, her hair, her hair, he licked the honey from her hair. When might I meet him? asked Sansa, hesitantly. Soon, promised Marjorie, when you come to Highgarden, after Joffrey and I are wed, my grandmother will take you. I will, said the old woman, patting Sansa's hand and smiling a soft, wrinkly smile. I will indeed. Then she sighed and squealed and kicked the air. My bear, she sang, my bear so fair. And off they went from here to there. The bear, the bear, and the maiden fair. Butterbumps roared the last line, leapt into the air, and came down on both feet with a crash that shook the wine cups on the table. The women laughed and clapped. I thought that dreadful song would never end, said the Queen of Thorns. Ah, oh, but look, here comes my cheese. John The world was grey darkness, smelling of pine and moss and cold. Pale mists rose from the black earth as the riders threaded their way through the scatter of stones and scraggly trees down toward the welcoming fire strewn like jewels across the floor of the river valley below. There were more fires than Jon Snow could count, hundreds of fires, thousands. A second river of flickery lights along the banks of the icy white milk water. The fingers of his sword hand opened and closed. They descended the ridge without banners or trumpets, the quiet broken only by the distant murmur of the river, the clop of hooves, 
and the clacking of Rattleshirt's bone armor. Somewhere above, an eagle soared on great blue-gray wings, while below came men and dogs and horses and one white direwolf. A stone bounced down the slope, disturbed by a passing hoof, and John saw a ghost turn his head at the sudden sound. He had followed the riders at a distance all day, as was his custom, but when the moon rose over the soldier pines, he'd come bounding up, red eyes aglow. Rattleshirt's dogs greeted him with a chorus of snarls and growls and wild barking as ever, but the dire wolf paid them no mind. Six days ago, the largest hound had attacked him from behind as the wildlings camped for the night, but Ghost had turned and lunged, sending the dog fleeing with a bloody haunch. The rest of the pack maintained a healthy distance after that. John Snow's garron wickered softly, but a touch and a soft word soon quieted the animal. Would that his own fears could be calmed so easily. He was all in black, the black of the night's watch, but the enemy rode before and behind. Wildlings, and I am with them. Egret wore the cloak of Corin Halfhand. Lenel had his hauberk, the big spare wife, Ragwill, his gloves, one of the bowmen, his boots. Corrin's helm had been worn by the short, homely man called Longspear Rick, but it fit poorly on his narrow head, so he'd given that to Egret as well. And Rattleshirt had Corrin's bones in his bag, along with the bloody head of Eben, who set out with John to scout the Skirling Pass. Dead. All dead but me. And I am dead to the world. Egret rode just behind him. In front was Longspear Rick. The Lord of Bones had made the two of them his guards. If the crow flies, I'll boil your bones as well, he warned them when they had set out, smiling through the crooked teeth of the giant skull he wore for a helm. Egret hooted at him. You want to guard him. If you want us to do it, leave us be, and we'll do it. These are free folk indeed, John saw. Rattleshirt might lead them, but none of them were shy in talking back to him. The wildling leader fixed him with an unfriendly stare. Might be you fool these others, Crow, but don't think you'll be fooling Mance. He'll take one look at you and know your force, and when he does, I'll make a cloak of your wolf there, and open your soft boy's belly, and sew a weasel up inside. John's sword hand opened and closed, flexing the burned fingers beneath the glove. But Longspear Rick only laughed. And where would you find a weasel in the snow? That first night, after a long day of horse, they made camp in a shallow stone bowl atop a nameless mountain, huddling close to the fire while the snow began to fall. John watched the flakes melt as they drifted over the flames. Despite his layers of wool and fur and leather, he felt cold to the bone. Egret sat beside him after she'd eaten, her hood pulled up and her hands tucked into her sleeves for warmth. When Mance hears how you did for half-hand, he'll take you quick enough, she told him. Take me for what? The girl laughed scornfully. <laughs> for, for one of us, do you think you're the first crow ever flew down off the wall? In your hearts, you all want to fly free. 
And when I'm free, he said slowly, will I be free to go? Sure you will. She had a warm smile, despite her crooked teeth. And we'll be free to kill you. It's dangerous being free, but most come to like the taste of it. She put her gloved hand on his leg, just above the knee. You'll see. I will, thought John. I will see, and hear, and learn. And when I have, I will carry the word back to the wall. The wildlings had taken him for an oath-breaker, but in his heart he was still a man of the night's watch, doing the last duty that Corin Halfhand had laid on him, before I killed him. At the bottom of the slope they came upon a little stream flowing down from the foothills to join the milk water. It looked all stones and glass, though they could hear the sound of water running beneath the frozen surface. Rattleshirt led them across, shattering the thin crust of ice. Mance Raiders' outriders closed in as they emerged. John took their measure with a glance, eight riders, men and women both, clad in fur and boiled leather, with here and there a helm or bit of mail. They were armed with spears and fire-hardened lances, all but their leader, a fleshy blond man with watery eyes who bore a great curved scythe of sharpened steel. The Weeper, he knew at once. The Black Brothers told tales of this one, like Rattleshirt and Harmer Dugshead, an Alfin Crow Killer, he was a known raider. The Lord of Bones, the Weeper said when he saw them. He eyed John and his wolf. Who's this then? A crow come over, said Rattleshirt, who preferred to be called the Lord of Bones, for the clattering armor he wore. He was afraid I'd take his bones as well as our fans. He shook his sack of trophies at the other wildlings. He slew Corin Arfand, said Longspearick, him and that wolf is. And did for O'Rell too, said Rattleshirt. The lad's a wag, or close enough, put in Ragwill, the big spear wife. His wolf took a piece of Arfand's leg. The weeper's red, roomy eyes gave John another look. Aye. Well, he has a wolfish cast to him, now as I look close. Bring him to Mance. Might be he'll keep him. He wheeled his horse around and galloped off, his riders hard behind him. The wind was blowing wet and heavy as they crossed the valley of the Milkwater and rode single file through the river camp. Ghost kept close to John, but the scent of him went before them like a herald, and soon there were wilding dogs all around them, growling and barking. Lenor screamed at them to be quiet, but they paid him no heed. They don't care much for that beast of yours, Longspear Rick said to John. They're dogs, and he's a wolf, said John. They know he's not their kind. No more than I am yours. But he had his duty to be mindful of the task Corin Halfhand had laid upon him as they shared that final fire, to play the part of Turncloak, and find whatever it was that the wildlings had been seeking in the bleak, cold wilderness of the Frostfangs. Some power, Corin had named it, to the old bear, but he had died before learning what it was, or whether Mansraider had found it with his digging. 
There were cook fires all along the river, amongst wains and carts and sleds. Many of the wildlings had thrown up tents of hide and skin and felted wool. Others sheltered behind rocks in crude lean-tos, or slept beneath their wagons. At one fire, John saw a man hardening the points of long wooden spears and tossing them in a pile. Elsewhere, two bearded youths in boiled leather were sparring with staffs, leaping at each other over the flames, grunting each time one landed a blow. A dozen women sat nearby in a circle, fletching arrows. Arrows for my brothers, John thought. Arrows for my father's folk, for the people of Winterfell and Deepwood Mott and the Last Hearth. Arrows for the North. But not all he saw was warlike. He saw women dancing as well, and heard a baby crying, and a little boy ran in front of his garron, all bundled up in fur and breathless from play. Sheep and goats wandered freely, while oxen plodded along the river bank in search of grass. The smell of roast mutton drifted up from one cook fire, and at another he saw a boar turning on a wooden spit. In an open space surrounded by tall green soldier pines, Rattleshirt dismounted. "'We'll make camp here,' he told Lennel and Ragwell and the others. "'Feed the horses, then the dogs, then yourself. Egret, Longspear, bring the crow so Mance can have his look. We'll gut him after.' They walked the rest of the way, past more cook-fires and more tents, with Ghost following at their heels. John had never seen so many wildlings. He wondered if anyone ever had. The camp goes on forever, he reflected. But it's more a hundred camps than one, and each one more vulnerable than the last. Stretched out over long leagues, the wildlings had no defences to speak of, no pits, no sharpened stakes, only small groups of outriders patrolling their perimeters. Each group, or clan, or village, had simply stopped where they wanted, as soon as they saw others stopping or found a likely spot. The free folk. If his brothers were to catch them in such disarray, many of them would pay for that freedom with their life's blood. They had numbers, but the Night's Watch had discipline, and in battle, discipline beats numbers nine times of every ten, his father had once told him. There was no doubting which tent was the king's, it was thrice the size of the next largest he'd seen, and he could hear music drifting from within. Like many of the lesser tents, it was made of sewn hides with fur still on, but man's raiders' hides were the shaggy white pelts of snow bears. The peaked roof was crowned with a huge set of antlers from one of the giant elks that had once roamed freely throughout the Seven Kingdoms in the times of the First Men. Here, at least, they found defenders, two guards at the flap of the tent, leaning on tall spears with round leather shields strapped to their arms. When they caught sight of Ghost, one of them lowered his spear point and said, "'That beast stays here.' "'Ghost, stay,' John commanded. The direwolf sat. "'Longspear, watch the beast!' Rattleshirt yanked open the tent, and gestured John and Egret inside. The tent was hot and smoky. Baskets of burning peat stood in all four corners, filling the air with a dim, reddish light. More skins carpeted the ground, 
John felt utterly alone as he stood there in his blacks, awaiting the pleasure of the turncloak who called himself King Beyond the Wall. When his eyes had adjusted to the smoky red gloom, he saw six people, none of whom paid him any mind. A dark young man and a pretty blonde woman were sharing a horn of mead. A pregnant woman stood over a brazier cooking a brace of hens, while a grey-haired man in a tattered cloak of black and red sat cross-legged on a pillow, playing a lute and singing. Oh, the Dornish man's wife was as fair as a sun, and her kisses were warmer than spring. But the Dornish man's blade was made of black steel, and its kiss was a terrible thing. John knew the song, though it was strange to hear it here, in a shaggy hide tent beyond the wall, ten thousand leagues from the red mountains and warm winds of dawn. Rattleshirt took off his yellowed helm as he waited for the song to end. Beneath his bone and leather armor he was a small man, and the face under the giant's skull was ordinary, with a knobby chin, thin mustache, and sallow, pinched cheeks. His eyes were close-set, one eyebrow creeping all the way across his forehead, dark hair thinning back from a sharp widow's peak. The Dornish man's wife would sing as she bathed in a voice that was sweet as a peach, but the Dornish man's blade had a song of its own and a bite sharp and cold as a leech. Beside the brazier, a short but immensely broad man sat on the stool, eating a hen off a skewer. Hot grease was running down his chin and into his snow-white beard, but he smiled happily all the same. Thick gold bands, graven with runes, bound his massive arms, and he wore a heavy shirt of black ringmail that could only have come from a dead ranger. A few feet away, a taller, leaner man, in a leather shirt sewn with bronze scales, stood frowning over a map, a two-handed greatsword slung across his back in a leather sheath. He was straight as a spear, all long, wiry muscle, clean-shaven, bald, with a strong, straight nose and deep-set grey eyes. He might even have been comely, if he'd had ears, but he had lost both along the way. Whether to frostbite or some enemy's knife, John could not tell. Their lack made the man's head seem narrow and pointed. Both the white-bearded man and the bald one were warriors. That was plain to John at a glance. These two are more dangerous than Rattleshirt by far. He wondered which was Mance Raider. As he lay on the ground, with the darkness around, and the taste of his blood on his tongue— his brothers knelt by him and prayed him a prayer, and he smiled, and he laughed, and he sung. Brothers, oh brothers, my days here are done. The Dornish man's taken my life. But what does it matter, for all men must die, and I've tasted the Dornish man's wife. As the last strains of the Dornish man's wife faded, the bald, earless man glanced up from his map and scowled ferociously at Rattleshirt and Egret, with John between them. "'What's this?' he said. "'A crow?' "'The black bastard what gutted Orel,' said Rattleshirt, "'and a bloody wag as well. "'You were to kill them all.' "'This one's come over,' explained Egret. "'He slew Corin Halfhand with his own hand.' 
This boy? The earless one was angered by the news. The half-hand should have been mine. Do you have a name, Crow? John Snow, your grace. He wondered whether he was expected to bend the knee as well. Your grace! <laughs> the earless man looked at the big white-bearded one. You see? <laughs> he takes me for a king! <laughs> the bearded man laughed so hard he sprayed bits of chicken everywhere. He rubbed the grease from his mouth with the back of a huge hand. A blind boy must be. Who ever heard of a king without ears? <laughs> Why, his crown would fall straight down to his neck. <laughs> he grinned at John, wiping his fingers clean on his breeches. Close your beak, Crow. Spin yourself around. Might be you'd find who you're looking for. John turned. The singer rose to his feet. I'm Mans Raider, he said, as he put aside the loot, and you are Ned Stark's bastard, the snow of Winterfell. Stunned, John stood speechless for a moment, before he recovered enough to say, How, how could you know? That's a tale for later, said Mans Raider. How did you like the song, lad? Well enough. I'd heard it before. But what does it matter, for all men must die? The king beyond the wall said lightly, and I've tasted the Dornish man's wife. Tell me, does my lord of bones speak truly? Did you slay my old friend the half-hand? I did, though it was his doing more than mine. Ah, the Shadow Tower will never again seem as fearsome, the king said with sadness in his voice. Corrin was my enemy, but also my brother once. So, shall I thank you for killing him, Jon Snow, or curse you? Hmm? <laughs> he gave Jon a mocking smile. The king beyond the wall looked nothing like a king, nor even much a wilding. He was a middling height, slender, sharp-faced, with shrewd brown eyes and long brown hair that had gone mostly to grey. There was no crown on his head, no gold rings on his arms, no jewels at his throat, not even a gleam of silver. He wore wool and leather, and his only garment of note was his ragged black wool cloak, its long tears patched with faded red silk. "'You're to thank me for killing your enemy,' John said finally, "'and curse me for killing your friend.' Har! boomed the white-bearded man. Well answered. Agreed. Mans Raider beckoned John closer. If you would join us, you'd best know us. The man you took for me is Stir, Magnar of Thin. Magnar means Lord in the old tongue. The earless man stared at John coldly as Mans turned to the white-bearded one. Our ferocious chicken-eater here is my loyal Tormund. The woman... Tormund rose to his feet. Old, ye gave stir his style. Give me mine. Mans Raider laughed. Cast your wish. Jon Snow, before you stands Tormund Giant's Bean, tall talker, horn blower, and breaker of ice. And here also Tormund Thunderfist, husband to bears, the Mead King of Ready Hall, 
speaker to gods and father of hosts. <laughs> that sounds more like me, said Torman. Well met, John Snow, I am fond of wargs, as it happens, though not a Starks. The good woman at the brazier, Mansrader went on, is Dala. The pregnant woman smiled shyly. Treat her like you would any queen. She is carrying my child. He turned to the last two. This beauty is her sister Val. Young Jarl beside her is her latest pet. I'm no man's pet, said Jarl, dark and fierce. And Val's no man, white bearded Tormund snorted. You ought to have noticed that by now, lad. So there you have us, Jon Snow, said Man's Raider. The king be on the wall and his court, such as it is. And now some words from you, I think. Where did you come from? Winterfell, he said, by way of Castle Black. And what brings you up the milkwater so far from the fires of home? He did not wait for John to answer, but looked at once to Rattleshirt. How many were they? Five. Three's dead, and the boy's here. T'other went up a mountainside where no horse could follow. Raider's eyes met John's again. Was it only the five of you? Or are more of your brothers skulking about? We were four and the half-hand. Corran was worth twenty common men. The king beyond the wall smiled at that. Some thought so, still. A boy from Castle Black with rangers from the Shadowed Tower. How did that come to be? John had his lie already. The Lord Commander sent me to the half-hand for seasoning, so he took me on his ranging. Stir the Magnar frowned at that. Ranging, you call it? Why would crows come ranging up the Skirlin Pass? The villagers were deserted, John said truthfully. It was as if all the free folk had vanished. Vanished, eh? said Mansrader, and not just the free folk. Who told you where we were, John Snow? Tormund snorted. It were Craster, or I'm a blushing maid. I told you, Mans, that creature needs to be shorter by a head. The king gave the older man an irritated look. Tormund, some day, try thinking before you speak. I know it was Craster. I asked John to see if he would tell it true. Ah, Tormund spat. Well, I stepped in that. <laughs> he grinned at John. See, lad, that's why he's king and I'm not. I can out-drink, out-fight, and out-sing him, and my member's thrice the size of his. But man's has cunning. He was raised a crow, you know, and the crow's a tricksy bird. I would speak with the lad alone, my lord of bones, Mans Raider said to Rattleshirt. Leave us, all of you. What, me as well? said Tormund. No, you especially, said Mance. I ain't in no all where I'm not welcome. Tormund got to his feet. Me and the ends are leaving. He snatched another chicken off the brazier, shoved it into a pocket sewn into the lining of his cloak, said, Ha! and left, licking his fingers. The others followed him out, all but the woman Dala. Sit if you like, Raider said when they were gone. 
Are you hungry? Tormund left us two birds at least. I would be pleased to eat, Your Grace, and thank you. Your Grace, the king smiled. That's not a style one often hears from the lips of free folk. I'm manse to most. The manse to some. Will you take a horn of mead? Gladly, said John. The king poured himself, as Dalla cut the well-crisped hens apart and brought them each a half. John peeled off his gloves and ate with his fingers, sucking every morsel of meat off the bones. Tormund spoke truly, said Mansraider, as he ripped apart a loaf of bread. The black crow is a tricksy bird, that's so. But I was a crow when you were no bigger than the babe in Dalla's belly, John Snow. Sir, take care not to play tricksy with me. As you say, your, uh, manse. The king laughed. <laughs> your manse. <laughs> Why not? I promised you a tale before of how I knew you. Have you puzzled it out yet? John shook his head. Did Rattleshirt send word ahead? By wing? <laughs> we have no trained ravens, no. I knew your face. I've seen it before. Twice. It made no sense at first, but as John turned it over in his mind, dawn broke. When you were a brother of the watch? Very good, yes. That was the first time. You were just a boy, and I was all in black, one of a dozen riding escort to old Lord Commander Corgill when he came down to see your father at Winterfell. I was walking the wall around the yard when I came on you and your brother Rob. It had snowed the night before, and the two of you had built a great mountain above the gate and were waiting for someone likely to pass underneath. <laughs> I remember, said John with a startled laugh, a young black brother on the wall walk. Yes. You swore not to tell. And kept my vow, that one at least. We dumped the snow on fat Tom. He was father's slowest guardsman. Tom had chased them around the yard afterward until all three were red as autumn apples. But you said you saw me twice. When was the other time? When King Robert came to Winterfell to make your father hand, the king beyond the wall said lightly. John's eyes widened in disbelief. That can't be so. It was. When your father learned the king was coming, he sent word to his brother Benjamin on the wall so he might come down for the feast. There is more commerce between the black brothers and the free folk than you know, and soon enough word came to my ears as well. It was too choice a chance to resist. Your uncle did not know me by sight, so I had no fear from that quarter and I did not think your father was like to remember a young crow he'd met briefly years before. I wanted to see this Robert with me own eyes, king to king, and get the measure of your Uncle Benjamin as well. He was first ranger by then, and the bane of all my people. So I saddled my fleetest horse and rode. But, John objected, the wall. The wall can stop an army, but not a man alone. I took a lute and a bag of silver, scaled the ice near Long Barrow, walked a few leagues south of the new gift, and bought a horse.'
All in all, I made much better time than Robert, who was travelling with a ponderous great wheelhouse to keep his queen in comfort. A day south of Winterfell, I came upon him and fell in with his company. Free riders and hedge knights are always attaching themselves to royal processions, in hopes of finding service with the king, and my loot gained me easy acceptance. He laughed. I know every body song that's ever been made north or south of the wall. So there you are. The night your father feasted Robert, I sat in the back of his hall on a bench with the other free riders, listening to Orland of Old Town play the high harp and sing of dead kings beneath the sea. I betook of your lord father's meat and mead, and had a look at Kingslayer and Imp, and made passing note of Lord Eddard's children and the wolf pups that ran at their hills. Bail the bard, said John, remembering the tale that Egret had told him in the Frostfangs, the night he'd almost killed her. Ah, oh, would that I were! I will not deny that Bale's exploit inspired mine own, but I did not steal either of your sisters that I recall. Bale wrote his own songs and lived them. I only sing the songs that better men have made. Uh, more mead. Uh, no, said John. If you had been discovered, taken, your father would have had my head off. The king gave a shrug. Though once I had eaten at his board, I was protected by guest right. The laws of hospitality are as old as the first men, and sacred as a heart tree. He gestured at the board between them, the broken bread and chicken bones. Here you are the guest, and safe from harm at my hands, this night at least. So tell me truly, John Snow, are you a craven who turned your cloak from fear, or is there another reason that brings you to my tent? Guessed right or no, Jon Snow knew he walked on rotten ice here. One false step, and he might plunge through, into water cold enough to stop his heart. Weigh every word before you speak it, he told himself. He took a long draught of mead to buy time for his answer. When he set the horn aside, he said, Tell me why you turned your cloak. I'll tell you why I turned mine. Mance Raider smiled, as John had hoped he would. The king was plainly a man who liked the sound of his own voice. You will have heard stories of my desertion, I have no doubt. Some say it was for a crown, some say for a woman, others that you had the wilding blood. The wilding blood is the blood of the first men, the same blood that flows in the veins of the Starks. As to a crown— do you see one? I see a woman. He glanced at Dala. Mans took her by the hand and pulled her close. My lady is blameless. I met her on my return from your father's castle. The half-hand was carved of old oak, but I am made of flesh, and I have a great fondness for the charms of women, which makes me no different from three-quarters of the watch. There are men still wearing black, who have had ten times as many women as this poor king. You must guess again, John Snow. John considered for a moment. 
The half-hand said you had a passion for wilding music. I did. I do. That's closer to the mark, yes, but not a hit. Mansred arose, unfastened the clasp that held his cloak, and swept it over the bench. It was for this. A cloak? The black wool cloak of a sworn brother of the Night's Watch, said the king beyond the wall. One day, on arranging, we brought down a fine big elk. We were skinning it when the smell of blood drew a shadow cat out of its lair. I drove it off, but not before it shredded my cloak to ribbons. Do you see? Here. Here. And here. <laughs> he chuckled. It shredded my arm and back as well, and I bled worse than the elk. My brothers feared I might die before they got me back to Maester Mullen at the Shadow Tower, so they carried me to a wilding village where we knew an old wise woman did some healing. She was dead, as it happened, but her daughter saw to me, cleaned my wounds, sewed me up, and fed me porridge and potions until I was strong enough to ride again. And she sewed up the rents in my cloak as well, with some scarlet silk for Mashai that her grandmother had pulled from the wreck of a cog washed up on the frozen shore. It was the greatest treasure she had, and her gift to me. He swept the cloak back over his shoulders. But at the Shadow Tower I was given a new wool cloak from stores, black and black, and trimmed with black, to go with my black breeches and black boots, my black doublet and black mail. The new cloak had no frays, nor rips, nor tears, and most of all, no red. The men of the Night's Watch dressed in black, Sir Dennis Malister reminded me sternly, as if I had forgotten. My old cloak was fit for burning now, he said. I left the next morning for a place where a kiss was not a crime, and a man could wear any cloak he chose. He closed the clasp and sat back down again. And you, John Snow? John took another swallow of mead. There is only one tale that he might believe. You say you were at Winterfell, the night my father feasted King Robert? I did see it, for I was. Then you saw us all, Prince Joffrey and Prince Tommen, Princess Marcella, my brothers Rob and Bran and Rickon, my sisters Arya and Sansa. You saw them walk the center aisle with every eye upon them and take their seats at the table just below the dais where the king and queen were seated. I remember. And did you see where I was seated, Mance? He leaned forward. Did you see where they put the bastard? Mance Raider looked at John's face for a long moment. I think we had best find you a new cloak, the king said, holding out his hand. Daenerys Across the still blue water came the slow, steady beat of drums and the slow swish of oars from the galleys. The great cog groaned in their wake, the heavy lines stretched taut between. Valerian's sails hung limp, drooping forlorn from the masts. 
Yet even so, as she stood upon the forecastle, watching her dragons chase each other across a cloudless blue sky, Daenerys Targaryen was as happy as she could ever remember being. Her Dothraki called the sea the poison water, distrusting any liquid that their horses could not drink. On the day the three ships had lifted anchor at Carth, you would have thought they were sailing to hell instead of Pentos. Her brave young blood riders had stared off at the dwindling coastline with huge white eyes, each of the three determined to show no fear before the other two, while her handmaids, Iri and Jiqui, clutched the rail desperately and retched over the side at every little swell. The rest of Danny's tiny calisar remained below decks, preferring the company of their nervous horses to the terrifying landless world about the ships. When a sudden squall had enveloped them six days into the voyage, she heard them through the hatches, the horses kicking and screaming, the riders praying in thin, quavery voices each time Valerian heaved or swayed. No squall could frighten Danny, though. Daenerys Stormborn, she was called, for she had come howling into the world on distant Dragonstone as the greatest storm in the memory of Westeros howled outside, a storm so fierce that it ripped gargoyles from the castle walls and smashed her father's fleet to kindling. The narrow sea was often stormy, and Danny had crossed it half a hundred times as a girl, running from one free city to the next, half a step ahead of the usurper's hard knives. She loved the sea. She liked the sharp, salty smell of the air, and the vastness of horizons bounded only by a vault of azure sky above. It made her feel small, but free as well. She liked the dolphins that sometimes swam along beside Valerian, slicing through the waves like silvery spears, and the flying fish they glimpsed now and again. She even liked the sailors, with all their songs and stories. Once on a voyage to Bravus, as she watched the crew wrestle down a great green sail in a rising gale, she had even thought how fine it would be to be a sailor. But when she told her brother, Viserys had twisted her hair until she cried. "'You are blood of the dragon!' he had screamed at her. "'A dragon, not some smelly fish!' He was a fool about that, and so much else, Danny thought. If he had been wiser and more patient, it would be him sailing west to take the throne that was his by rights. Viserys had been stupid and vicious, she had come to realize, yet sometimes she missed him all the same. Not the cruel, weak man he had become by the end, but the brother who had sometimes let her creep into his bed, the boy who told her tales of the Seven Kingdoms and talked of how much better their lives would be once he claimed his crown. The captain appeared at her elbow. Would that this Valerian could soar as her namesake did, your grace, he said in bastard Valerian, heavily flavored with accents of Pentos. Then we should not need to row, nor tow, nor pray for wind. Just so, Captain, she answered with a smile, pleased to have won the man over. Captain Galio was an old Pentoshi, like his master, Elirio Mopatus and he had been nervous as a maiden about carrying three dragons on his ship. 
half a hundred buckets of seawater still hung from the gunwales in case of fires. At first Grillo had wanted the dragons caged, and Danny had consented to put his fears at ease. But their misery was so palpable that she soon changed her mind and insisted they be freed. Even Captain Grillo was glad of that now. There had been one small fire easily extinguished. Against that, Balerin suddenly seemed to have far fewer rats than she'd had before when she sailed under the name Sedulian. And her crew, once as fearful as they were curious, had begun to take a queer, fierce pride in their dragons. Every man of them, from captain to cook's boy, loved to watch the three fly, though none so much as Danny. They are my children, she told herself, and if the Magi spoke truly, they are the only children I'm ever like to have. The Syrian scales were the color of fresh cream, his horns, wing bones, and spinal crest a dark gold that flashed bright as metal in the sun. Regal was made of the green of summer and the bronze of fall. They soared above the ships in wide circles, higher and higher, each trying to climb above the other. Dragons always preferred to attack from above, Danny had learned. Should either get between the other and the sun, he would fold his wings and dive, screaming, and they would tumble from the sky, locked together in a tangled scaly ball, jaws snapping and tails lashing. The first time they had done it, she feared that they meant to kill each other, but it was only sport. No sooner would they splash into the sea than they would break apart and rise again, shrieking and hissing, the salt water steaming off them as their wings clawed at the air. Drogon was aloft as well, though not in sight. He would be miles ahead, or miles behind, hunting. He was always hungry, her Drogon. Hungry and growing fast. Another year, or perhaps two, and he may be large enough to ride. Then I shall have no need of ships to cross the great salt sea. But that time was not yet come. Regal and Viserion were the size of small dogs. Drogon only a little larger, and any dog would have outweighed them. They were all wings and neck and tail, lighter than they looked, and so Daenerys Targaryen must rely on wood and wind and canvas to bear her home. The wood and the canvas had served her well enough so far, but the fickle wind had turned traitor. For six days and six nights they had been becalmed, and now a seventh day had come, and still no breath of air to fill their sails. Fortunately, two of the ships that Magister Illyrio had sent after her were trading galleys, with two hundred oars apiece, and crews of strong-armed oarsmen to row them. But the great cog Balerion was a song of a different key a ponderous, broad-beam sow of a ship, with immense holes and huge sails, but helpless in a calm. Vagar and Moraxis had let out lines to tow her, but it made for painfully slow going. All three ships were crowded and heavily laden. "'I cannot see Drogon,' said Sir Jorah Mormont, as he joined her on the forecastle. "'Is he lost again?' We are the ones who are lost, sir. Drogon 
has no taste for this wet creeping no more than I do. Bolder than the other two, her black dragon had been the first to try his wings above the water, the first to flutter from ship to ship, the first to lose himself in a passing cloud, and the first to kill. The flying fish no sooner broke the surface of the water than they were enveloped in a lance of flame, snatched up and swallowed. "'How big will he grow?' Danny asked curiously. "'Do you know?' In the Seven Kingdoms there are tales of dragons who grew so huge that they could pluck giant krakens from the sea. Danny laughed. That would be a wondrous sight to see. It is only a tale, Khaleesi, said her exile knight. They talk of wise old dragons living a thousand years as well. Well, how long does the dragon live? She looked up as Viserion swooped low over the ship, his wings beating slowly and stirring the limp sails. Sir Jorah shrugged. A dragon's natural span of days is many times as long as a man's, or so the songs would have us believe, but the dragons the Seven Kingdoms knew best were those of House Targaryen. They were bred for war, and in war they died. It is no easy thing to slay a dragon, but it can be done. The squire, Whitebeard, standing by the figurehead with one lean hand curled about his tall, hardwood staff, turned toward them and said, "'Balerion, the Black Dread, was two hundred years old when he died during the reign of uh, Jairus, the Conciliator. He was so large he could swallow an oryx whole.' A dragon never stops growing, your grace, so long as he has food and freedom. His name was Arstan, but Strong Belwas had named him Whitebeard for his pale whiskers, and most everyone called him that now. He was taller than Sir Jorah, but not so muscular. His eyes were a pale blue, his long beard as white as snow and as fine as silk. Freedom... "'asked Danny, curious. "'What do you mean?' "'In King's Landing, your ancestors raised an immense domed castle for their dragons. "'The Dragon Pit, it is called. "'It still stands atop the Hill of Rainies, though all in ruins now. And "'That was where the royal dragons dwelt in days of yore.' and a cavernous dwelling it was with iron doors so wide that thirty knights could ride through them abreast. Yet even so it was noted that none of the pit dragons ever reached the size of their ancestors. The masters say it was because of the walls around them and the great dome above their heads. If walls could keep a small... "'Peasants would all be tiny, and kings as large as giants,' said Sir Jorah. "'I've seen huge men born in hovels, and dwarfs who dwelt in castles.' "'Men are men,' Whitebeard replied. "'Dragons are, um, dragons.' Sir Jorah snorted his disdain. "'How profound!' The exile knight had no love for the old man. He'd made that plain from the first. "'What do you know of dragons, anyway?' 
little enough, that's true. Yet I served for a time in King's Landing in the days when King Ares sat the Iron Throne and walked beneath the dragon skulls that looked down from the walls of his throne room. The Ceres talked of those skulls, said Danny. The usurper took them down and hid them away. He could not bear them looking down on him upon his stolen throne. She beckoned Whitebeard closer. Did you ever meet my royal father? King Ares II had died before his daughter was born. I had that great honor, your grace. Did you find him good and gentle? Whitebeard did his best to hide his feelings, but they were there, plain on his face. His grace was uh, often uh, pleasant. Often, Danny smiled, but not always. He could be very harsh to those he thought his enemies. A wise man never makes an enemy of a king, Danny said. Did you know my brother Rhaegar as well? It was said that no man ever knew Prince uh, Rhaegar, truly. I had the privilege of seeing him in Tawny, though, and, and often heard him play his harp with its uh, silver strings. Sir Jorah snorted. Along with a thousand others at some harvest feast. Next you'll claim you squired for him. I make no such claim, sir. Miles uh, Mooton was Prince Rhaegar's squire, and Richard uh, Longmouth after him. When they won their spurs, he knighted them himself, and they remained his close companions. Young Lord uh, Cunningham was dear to the prince as well, but his eldest friend was uh, Arthur Dane. The sword of the morning, said Danny, delighted. Viserys used to talk about his wondrous white blade. He said Sir Arthur was the only knight in the realm who was our brother's peer. Whitebeard bowed his head. It is not my own place to question the words of Prince uh, Viserys. King, Danny corrected. He was a king, though he never reigned. Viserys the third of his name. But what do you mean? His answer had not been one she'd expected. Sir Jorah named Rhaegar the last dragon once. He had to have been a peerless warrior to be called that, surely. Your Grace, said Whitebeard, the Prince of uh, Dragonstone was a most puissant warrior, but... Uh, Go on, she urged. You may speak freely to me. As you command. The old man leaned upon his hardwood staff, his brow furrowed. A warrior without a peer. Those are fine words, Your Grace, but words win no battles. Swords win battles, Sir Jorah said bluntly, and Prince Rhaegar knew how to use one. He did, sir, but uh, I have seen a hundred tournaments and more wars than I would wish, and however strong or fast or skilled a knight may be, there are others who can uh, match him. A man will win one tourney and uh, fall quickly in the next. A slick spot in the grass may mean defeat, or what you ate for supper the night before. 
A change in the wind may bring the gift of victory. He glanced at Sajara. Or a lady's favor knotted round an arm. Mormont's face darkened. Be careful what you say, old man. Arston had seen Sajara fight at Lannisport, Danny knew. In the tourney, Mormont had won with a lady's favor knotted round his arm. He had won the lady, too. Liness of House Hightower, his second wife, high-born and beautiful, but she had ruined him and abandoned him, and the memory of her was bitter to him now. Be gentle, my knight. She put a hand on Jorah's arm. Austin has no wish to give offence, I'm certain. Unless you say, Khaleesi. Sir Jorah's voice was grudging. Danny turned back to the squire. I know little of Rhaegar, only the tales Viserys told, and he was a little boy when her brother died. What was he truly like? The old man considered for a moment. Um, able, that above all, determined, deliberate, dutiful, single-minded. There is a tale told of him, but doubtless Sir Jorah knows it as well. I would hear it from you. "'As you wish,' said Whitebeard. "'As a young boy, the Prince of uh, Dragonstone was bookish to a fault. "'He was reading so early that men said Queen Rayella must have swallowed some books and a candle whilst he was in her womb. "'Rhaegar <laughs> took no interest in the play of other children. "'The masters were awed by his wits.' But his father's knights would jest sourly that Baylor the Blessed had been born again, until one day Prince Rhaegar found something in his scrolls that changed him. No one knows what it might have been, only that the boy suddenly appeared early one morning in the yard as the knights were donning their steel. He walked up to Sir Willem Derry, the master at arms, and said, I will require sword and armor. It seems I must be a warrior. And he was, said Danny, delighted. He was, indeed. Whitebeard bowed. My pardon, Your Grace. We speak of warriors, and I see the strong Belvis has arisen. I must attend him. Danny glanced aft. The eunuch was climbing through the hold amidships, nimble for all his size. Belwas was squat but broad, a good fifteen stone of fat and muscle, his great brown gut crisscrossed by faded white scars. He wore baggy pants, a yellow silk benny band, and an absurdly tiny leather vest dotted with iron studs. Strong Belwas is hungry, he roared at everyone and no one in particular. Strong Belwas will eat now. Turning, he spied Arston on the forecastle. White beard, you will bring food for Strong Belwas. You may go, Danny told the squire. He bowed again and moved off to tend the needs of the man he served. Sir Jorah watched with a frown on his blunt, honest face. Mormont was big and burly, strong of jaw and thick of shoulder. 
not a handsome man by any means, but as true a friend as Danny had ever known. "'You would be wise to take that old man's words well salted,' he told her when Whitebeard was out of earshot. "'A queen must listen to all,' she reminded him. "'The high-born and the low, the strong and the weak, the noble and the venal. "'One voice may speak you false, but in many there is always truth to be found.' She had read that in a book. "'Hear my voice, then, your grace,' the exile said. "'This Arston Whitebeard is playing you false. "'He is too old to be a squire, "'and too well-spoken to be serving that oaf of a eunuch.' "'That does seem queer,' Danny had to admit. "'Strong Belworth was an ex-slave, "'bred and trained in the fighting pits of Marine. "'Magister Illyrio had sent him to guard her, or so Bell was claimed, and it was true that she needed guarding. The usurper on his iron throne had offered land and lordship to any man who killed her. One attempt had been made already, with a cup of poisoned wine. The closer she came to Westeros, the more likely another attack became. Back in Carth, the warlock, Pyat Pri, had sent a sorrowful man after her, to avenge the undying she'd burned in their house of dust. Warlocks never forgot a wrong, it was said, and the sorrowful men never failed to kill. Most of the Dothraki would be against her as well. Karl Drogo's coes led Kalasars of their own now, and none of them would hesitate to attack her own little band on sight, to slay and slave her people, and drag Danny back to Vase Dothrak to take her proper place among the withered crones of the Dosh Colleen. She hoped that Zaro Zoandaxis was not an enemy, but the Carthine merchant had coveted her dragons, and there was Quaith of the Shadow, that strange woman in the red lacquer mask, with all her cryptic counsel. Was she an enemy too, or only a dangerous friend? Danny could not say. Sir Jorah saved me from the poisoner, and Arston Whitebeard from the manticore. Perhaps Strong Belwis will save me from the next. He was huge enough, with arms like small trees, and a great curved arrack so sharp he might have shaved with it, in the unlikely event of hair sprouting on those smooth brown cheeks. Yet he was childlike as well. As a protector, he leaves much to be desired. Thankfully, I have Sir Jorah, and my blood-riders, and my dragons, never forget. In time, the dragons would be her most formidable guardians, just as they had been for Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters three hundred years ago. Just now, though, they brought her more danger than protection. In all the world there were but three living dragons, and those were hers. They were a wonder, and a terror, and beyond price. She was pondering her next words when she felt a cool breath on the back of her neck, and a loose strand of her silver-gold hair stirred against her brow. Above the canvas creaked and moved, and suddenly a great cry went up from all over Balerion. "'Wind!' the sailors shouted. "'The wind returns! The wind!' Danny looked up to where the great cog sails rippled and belled as the lines thrummed and tightened and sang the sweet song they had missed for six long days. Captain Grillo rushed aft, shouting commands. 
The Pentoshier were scrambling up the masts, those that were not cheering. Even strong Belwas let out a great bellow and did a little dance. The guards are good, Danny said. You see, Jora, we are on our way once more. Yes, he said. But to what, my queen? All day the wind blew, steady from the east at first, and then in wild gusts. The sun set in a blaze of red. I'm still half a world from Westeros, Danny reminded herself. But every hour brings me closer. She tried to imagine what it would feel like when she first caught sight of the land she was born to rule. It will be as fair a shore as I have ever seen. I know it. How could it be otherwise? But later that night, as Balerion plunged onward through the dark, and Danny sat cross-legged on her bunk in the captain's cabin, feeding her dragons, Even upon the sea, Grolio had said so graciously, Queens take precedence over captains. A sharp knock came upon the door. Iri had been sleeping at the foot of her bunk. It was too narrow for three, and tonight was Jiqui's turn to share the soft feather bed with her Khaleesi. But the handmaid roused at the knock and went to the door. Danny pulled up the coverlet and tucked it under her arms. She was naked and had not expected a caller at this hour. "'Come,' she said, when she saw Sir Jorah standing without, beneath the swaying lantern. The exile knight ducked his head as he entered. "'Your Grace, I am sorry to disturb your sleep.' "'I was not sleeping, sir. Come and watch.' She took a chunk of salt pork out of the bowl in her lap and held it up for her dragons to see. All three of them eyed it hungrily. Rhaegal spread green wings and stirred the air, and Viserion's neck swayed back and forth like a long pale snake's as he followed the movement of her hand. "'Drogon,' Danny said softly, "'Dacaris,' and she tossed the pork in the air. Drogon moved quicker than a striking cobra. Flame roared from his mouth, orange and scarlet and black, searing the meat before it began to fall. As his sharp black teeth snapped shut around it, Rhaegar's head darted close, as if to steal the prize from his brother's jaws. But Drogon swallowed and screamed, and the smaller green dragon could only hiss in frustration. "'Stop that, Rhaegar,' Danny said in annoyance, giving his head a swat. You had the last one. I'll have no greedy dragons. She smiled at Sir Jorah. I won't need to char their meat over a brazier any longer. So I see. Dracarys? All three dragons turned their heads at the sound of that word, and Viserion let loose with a blast of pale gold flame that made Sir Jorah take a hasty step backward. Danny giggled. Be careful with that word, sir or they'll like to singe your beard off. It means dragonfire in High Valyrian. I wanted to choose a command that no one was like to utter by chance. Mormont nodded. Your Grace, he said, I wonder if I might have a few private words. Of course, Iri, leave us for a bit. She put a hand on Jiqui's bare shoulder and shook the other handmaid awake. You as well, sweetling. Sir Jorah needs to talk to me. Yes, Khaleesi. Jiqui tumbled from the bunk, naked and yawning. Her thick black hair tumbled about her head. She dressed quickly, 
and left with Iri, closing the door behind them. Danny gave the dragons the rest of the salt pork to squabble over and patted the bed beside her. Sit, good sir, and tell me what is troubling you. Three things, Sir Jorah sat. Strong Belwis, this Arston Whitebeard, and Illyrio Mopatus who sent them. Again? Danny pulled the coverlet higher and tugged one end over her shoulder. And why is that? The warlocks in Karth told you that you would be betrayed three times, the exile knight reminded her as Viserion and Rhaegal began to snap and claw at each other. Once for blood, and once for gold, and once for love. Danny was not like to forget. Miramaz Dur was the first. Which means two traitors yet remain. And are these two up here? I find that troubling, yes? Never forget, Robert offered a lordship to the man who slays you. Danny leaned forward and yanked Viserion's tail to pull him off his green brother. Her blanket fell away from her chest as she moved. She grabbed it hastily and covered herself again. The usurper is dead, she said. But his son rules in his place. So Jorah lifted his gaze, and his dark eyes met her own. A dutiful son pays his father's debts, even blood debts. This boy Joffrey might want me dead, if he recalls that I'm alive. What has that to do with Belwas and Arston Whitebeard? The old man does not even wear a sword. You've seen that. I. I've seen how deftly he handles that staff of his. Recall how he killed that manticore in Karth? It might as easily have been your throat he crushed. Might have been, but was not, she pointed out. It was a stinging manticore meant to slay me. He saved my life. Khaleesi, has it occurred to you that Whitebeard and Belwas might have been in league with the assassin? It might all have been a ploy to win your trust. <laughs> a sudden laughter made Drogon hiss and sent Viserion flapping to his perch above the porthole. The ploy worked well. The exile knight did not return her smile. These are Illyrio's ships, Illyrio's captains, Illyrio's sailors, and strong Belwas and Arstern are his men as well, not yours. Magister Illyrio has protected me in the past. Strong Belwas says that he wept when he heard my brother was dead. Yes, said Mormont, but did he weep for Viserys or for the plans he had made with him? His plans need not change. Magister Illyrio is a friend of House Targaryen and wealthy. He was not born wealthy. In the world as I have seen it, no man grows rich by kindness. The warlock said the second treason would be for gold. What does Illyrio Mopatus love more than gold? His skin. Across the cabin, Drogon stirred restlessly, steam rising from his snout. Miramaz Dur betrayed me. I burned her for it. Miramaz Dur was in your power. In Pentos, you shall be in Illyrio's power. It's not the same. I know the Magister as well as you. He is a devious man, and clever. I need clever men about me, if I am to win the Iron Throne. Sir Jorah snorted. <laughs> that wine-seller who tried to poison you was a clever man as well. Clever men hatch ambitious schemes. 
Danny drew her legs up beneath the blanket. You will protect me. You and my blood riders. Four men? Khaleesi, you believe you know Illyria Mopetus. Very well. Yet you insist on surrounding yourself with men you do not know, like this puffed-up eunuch and the world's oldest squire. Take a lesson from Piat Pri and Zero Zoan Dexus. He means well, Danny reminded herself. He does all he does for love. It seems to me that a queen who trusts no one is as foolish as a queen who trusts everyone. Every man I take into my service is a risk, I understand that. But how am I to win the Seven Kingdoms without such risks? Am I to conquer Westeros with one exile knight and three Dothraki bloodriders? His jaw set stubbornly. Your path is dangerous, I will not deny that. But if you blindly trust in every liar and schemer who crosses it, you will end as your brothers did. His obstinacy made her angry. He treats me like some child. Strong Belwas could not scheme his way to breakfast, and what lies has Aston Whitebeard told me? He is not what he pretends to be. He speaks to you more boldly than any squire would dare. He spoke frankly at my command. He knew my brother. A great many men knew your brother. Your Grace, in Westeros, the Lord Commander of the King's Guard sits on the small council and serves the King with his wits as well as his steel. If I am the first of your Queen's Guard, I pray you, hear me out. I have a plan to put to you. What plan? Tell me. Illyrio Mopatus wants you back in Pentos, under his roof. Very well. Go to him. But in your own time, and not alone. Let us see how loyal and obedient these new subjects of yours truly are. Command Grolio to change course for Slaver's Bay. Danny was not certain she liked the sound of that at all. Everything she'd ever heard of the flesh marts in the great slave cities of Yunkai, Marine, and Astapor was dire and frightening. What is there for me in Slaver's Bay? An army, said Sir Jorah. If strong Belwas is so much to your liking, you can buy hundreds more like him out of the fighting pits of Marine. But it is Astapor I'd set my sails for. In Astapor you can buy unsullied. The slaves in the spiked bronze hats? Danny had seen unsullied guards in the free cities, posted at the gates of magisters, archons, and dynasts. Why should I want unsullied? They don't even ride horses, and most of them are fat. The unsullied, you may have seen in Pentos and Myrrh, were household guards. That's soft service, and eunuchs tend to plumpness in any case. Food is the only vice allowed them. To judge all unsullied by a few old household slaves is like judging all squires by Aston Whitebeard, your grace. Do you know the tale of the three thousand of Cohor? No. The coverlet slipped off Danny's shoulder, and she tugged it back into place. It was four hundred years ago, or more, when the Dothraki first rode out of the east, sacking and burning every town and city in their path. 
The Carl who led them was named Temo. His calisar was not so big as Droger's, but it was big enough. Fifty thousand at the least, half of them braided warriors with bells ringing in their hair. The Kohoric knew he was coming. They strengthened their walls, doubled the size of their own guard, and hired two free companies besides, the Bright Banners and the Second Sons. And almost as an afterthought, they sent a man to Astapor to buy three thousand unsullied. It was a long march back to Kohor, however, and as they approached they saw the smoke and dust, and heard the distant din of battle. By the time the unsullied reached the city, the sun had set. Crows and wolves were feasting beneath the walls on what remained of the Kohoric heavy horse. The bright banners and second sons had fled, as sellswords are wont to do in the face of hopeless odds. With dark falling, the Dothraki had retired to their own camps to drink and dance and feast, but none doubted that they would return on the morrow to smash the city gates, storm the walls, and rape, loot, and slave as they pleased. But when dawn broke, and Temo and his blood riders led their calisar out of the camp, they found three thousand unsolid drawn up before the gates, with a black goat standard flying over their heads. So small a force could easily have been flanked. What you know, Dothraki. These were men on foot, and men on foot are fit only to be ridden down. The Dothraki charged. The unsolid locked their shields, lowered their spears, and stood firm against twenty thousand screamers with bells in their hair, they stood firm. Eighteen times the Dothraki charged, and broke themselves on those shields and spears like waves on a rocky shore. Thrice Temo sent his archers wheeling past, and arrows fell like rain upon the three thousand, but the unsolid melee lifted their shields above their heads until the squall had passed. In the end, only six hundred of them remained, but more than twelve thousand Dothraki lay dead upon that field, including Carl Temo, his blood riders, his Kos, and all his sons. On the morning of the fourth day, the new Carl led the survivors past the city gates in a stately procession. One by one, each man cut off his braid and threw it down before the feet of the three thousand. Since that day, the city guard of Kohor has been made up solely of unsolid, every one of whom carries a tall spear from which hangs a braid of human hair. That is what you will find in Astapor, your grace. Put ashore there, and continue on to Pentos overland. It will take longer, yes, but when you break bread with Magister Illyrio, you will have a thousand swords behind you, not just four. There is wisdom in this, yes, Danny thought. But how am I to buy a thousand slave soldiers? All I have of value is the crown the Tormeline Brotherhood gave me. Dragons will be as great a wonder in Astapor as they were in Kars. It may be that the slavers will shower you with gifts 
is the Carthine did. If not, these ships carry more than your Dothraki and their horses. They took on trade goods at Carth. I've been through the holes and seen for myself bolts of silk and bales of tiger skin, amber and jade carvings, saffron, myrrh. Slaves are cheap, your grace. Tiger skins are costly. Those are Illyrio's tiger skins, she objected. And Illyrio is a friend to House Targaryen. All the more reason not to steal his goods. What use are wealthy friends if they will not put their wealth at your disposal, my queen? If Magister Illyrio would deny you, he is only Zarozoandaxus with four chins. And if he is sincere in his devotion to your cause, he will not begrudge you three shiploads of trade goods. What better use for his tiger skins than to buy you the beginnings of an army? That's true. Danny felt a rising excitement. There will be dangers on such a long march. There are dangers at sea as well. Corsairs and pirates hunt the southern route, and north of Valyria the smoking sea is demon-haunted. The next storm could sink or scatter us. A kraken could pull us under. Or we might find ourselves becalmed again and die of thirst as we wait for the wind to rise. A march will have different dangers, my queen, but none greater. What if Captain Grillo refuses to change course, though? And Arstan, Strong Belwas, what will they do? Sir Jorah stood. Perhaps it's time you found that out. Yes, she decided. I'll do it. Danny threw back the coverlets and hopped from the bunk. I'll see the captain at once. Command him to set course for Astapor. She bent over her chest, threw open the lid, and seized the first garment to hand, a pair of loose, sand-silk trousers. Hand me my medallion belt, she commanded Jorah, as she pulled the sand-silk up over her hips. And my vest, she started to say, turning. Sir Jorah slid his arms around her. Oh! was all Danny had time to say, as he pulled her close and pressed his lips down on hers. He smelled of sweat and salt and leather, and the iron studs on his jerkin dug into her naked breasts as he crushed her hard against him. One hand held her by the shoulder, while the other slid down her spine to the small of her back, and her mouth opened for his tongue, though she never told it to. His beard is scratchy, she thought but his mouth is sweet. The Dothraki wore no beards, only long moustaches, and only Karl Drogo had ever kissed her before. He should not be doing this. I am his queen, not his woman. It was a long kiss, though how long Danny could not have said. When it ended, Sir Jorah let go of her, and she took a quick step backward. You... you should not have... I should not have waited so long, he finished for her. I should have kissed you in Carth, in Ray's Taloro. I should have kissed you in the Red Waste every night and every day. You were made to be kissed often and well. His eyes were on her breasts. Danny covered them with her hands before her nipples could betray her. I... that was 
not fitting. I am your queen. My queen, he said, and the bravest, sweetest, and most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Daenerys. Your grace. Oh, your grace, he conceded. The dragon has three heads, remember. You have wondered at that ever since you heard it from the warlocks in the House of Dust. Well, here's your meaning. Valerian, Maraxis, and Vagar, written by Aegon Rhaenys and Visenya, the three-headed dragon of House Dragarian. Three dragons and three riders. Yes, said Danny, but my brothers are dead. Rhaenys and Visenya were Aegon's wives, as well as his sisters. You have no brothers, but you can take husbands. And I tell you truly, Daenerys, there is no man in all the world who will ever be half so true to you as me. Bran The ridge slanted sharply from the earth, a long fold of stone and soil shaped like a claw. Trees clung to its lower slopes, pines and hawthorn and ash. But higher up the ground was bare, the ridgeline stark against the cloudy sky. He could feel the high stone calling him. Up he went, loping easily at first, then faster and higher, his strong legs eating up the incline. Birds burst from the branches overhead as he raced by, clawing and flapping their way into the sky. He could hear the wind sighing up amongst the leaves, the squirrels chittering to one another, even the sound a pinecone made as it tumbled to the forest floor. The smells were a song around him, a song that filled the good green world. Gravel flew from beneath his paws as he gained the last few feet to stand upon the crest. The sun hung above the tall pines, huge and red, and below him the trees and hills went on and on as far as he could see or smell. A kite was circling far above, dark against the pink sky. Prince, the man's sound came into his head suddenly, yet he could feel the rightness of it. Prince of the green, prince of the wolf's wood. He was strong and swift and fierce, and all that lived in the good green world went in fear of him. Far below, at the base of the woods, something moved against the trees, a flash of grey, quick glimpsed and gone again, but it was enough to make his ears prick up. Down there, beside a swift green brook, another form slipped by, running. Wolves, he knew. His little cousins, chasing down some prey. Now the prince could see more of them, shadows on fleet grey paws. A pack. He had a pack as well once. Five they had been, and a sixth who stood aside. Somewhere down inside him were the sounds the men had given them to tell one from the other, but it was not by their sounds he knew them. He remembered their scents, his brothers and his sisters. They all had smelled alike, had smelled of pack, but each was different too. His angry brother, with the hot green eyes, was near, the prince felt, though he had not seen him for many hunts. Yet with every sun that set he grew more distant, 
and he had been the last. The others were far scattered, like leaves blown by the wild wind. Sometimes he could sense them, though, as if they were still with him, only hidden from his sight by a boulder or a stand of trees. He could not smell them, nor hear their howls by night, yet he felt their presence at his back. All but the sister they had lost. His tail drooped when he remembered her. Four now, not five. Four, and one more, the white who has no voice. These woods belong to them, the snowy slopes and stony hills, the great green pines and the golden-leaf oaks, the rushing streams and blue lakes fringed with fingers of white frost. But his sister had left the wilds to walk in the halls of Manrock, where other hunters ruled, and once within those halls it was hard to find the path back out. The wolf prince remembered. The wind shifted suddenly. Deer and fear and blood. The scent of prey woke the hunger in him. The prince sniffed the air again, turning, and then he was off, bounding along the ridge-top with jaws half-parted. The far side of the ridge was steeper than the one he'd come up, but he flew sure-foot over stones and roots and rotting leaves, down the slope and through the trees, long strides eating up the ground. The scent pulled him onward ever faster. The deer was down and dying when he reached her, ringed by eight of his small grey cousins. The heads of the pack had begun to feed, the male first, and then his female, taking turns tearing flesh from the red underbelly of their prey. The others waited patiently, all but the tail, who paced in a wary circle a few strides from the rest, his own tail tucked low. He would eat last of all, whatever his brothers left him. The prince was downwind, so they did not sense him until he leapt upon a fallen log six strides from where they fed. The tail saw him first, gave a piteous whine, and slunk away. His pack-brothers turned at the sound and bared their teeth, snarling, all but the head male and female. The dire-wolf answered the snarls with a low, warning growl and showed them his own teeth. He was bigger than his cousins, twice the size of the scrawny tail, half again as large as the two pack-heads. He leapt down into their midst, and three of them broke, melting away into the brush. Another came at him, teeth snapping. He met the attack head-on, caught the wolf's leg in his jaws when they met, and flung him aside, yelping and limping. And then there was only the head wolf to face. The great grey male, with his bloody muzzle, fresh from his prey's soft belly. There was white on his muzzle as well, to mark him as an old wolf but when his mouth opened, red slaver ran from his teeth. He has no fear, the prince thought, no more than me. It would be a good fight. They went for each other. Long they fought, rolling together over roots and stones and fallen leaves and the scattered entrails of the prey, tearing at each other with tooth and claw, breaking apart, circling each round the other and bolting in to fight again. The prince was larger and much the stronger, but his cousin had a pack. The female prowled around them closely, snuffing and snarling, 
and would interpose herself whenever her mate broke off blooded. From time to time the other wolves would dart in as well, to snap at a leg or an ear when the prince was turned the other way. One angered him so much that he whirled in a black fury and tore out the attacker's throat. After that, the others kept their distance. And as the last red light was filtering through green boughs and golden, the old wolf lay down weary in the dirt and rolled over to expose his throat and belly. It was submission. The prince sniffed at him and licked the blood from fur and torn flesh. When the old wolf gave a soft whimper, the dire wolf turned away. He was very hungry now, and the prey was his. Hodor! The sudden sound made him stop and snarl. The wolves regarded him with green and yellow eyes, bright with the last light of day. None of them had heard it. It was a queer wind that blew only in his ears. He buried his jaws into the deer's belly and tore off a mouthful of flesh. Hodor? Hodor? No, he thought. No, I won't. It was a boy's thought, not a dire wolf's. The woods were darkening all about him, until only the shadows of the trees remained and the glow of his cousin's eyes. And through those, and behind those eyes, he saw a big man's grinning face and a stone vault whose walls were sputted with nitre. The rich warm taste of blood faded on his tongue. No, don't, don't, uh, I want to eat, I want to, I want Hodor, 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 Hodor chanted as he shook him softly by the shoulders, back and forth and back and forth. He was trying to be gentle, he always tried, but Hodor was seven feet tall and stronger than he knew, and his huge hands rattled Bran's teeth together. No, he shouted angrily, Hodor, leave off, I'm here, I'm here. Hodor stopped looking abashed. Hodor! The woods and wolves were gone. Bran was back again, down in the damp vault of some ancient watchtower that must have been abandoned thousands of years before. It wasn't much of a tower now. Even the tumbled stones were so overgrown with moss and ivy that you could hardly see them until you were right on top of them. Tumble-down tower! Bran had named the place. It was Mira who found the way down into the vault, however. You were gone too long. Jojen Reed was thirteen, only four years older than Bran. Jojen wasn't much bigger either, no more than two inches or maybe three, but he had a solemn way of talking that made him seem older and wiser than he really was. At Winterfell, old Nan had dubbed him Little Grandfather. Bran frowned at him. I wanted to eat. Mira will be back soon with supper. I'm sick of frogs. Mira was a frog-eater from the neck, so Bran couldn't really blame her for catching so many frogs, he supposed, but even so. I wanted to eat the deer. For a moment he remembered the taste of it, the blood, and the raw, rich meat, and his mouth watered. I won the fight for it. I won. Did you mark the trees? Bran flushed. 
Jojen was always telling him to do things when he opened his third eye and put on summer's skin. To claw the bark of a tree, to catch a rabbit, and bring it back in his jaws uneaten, to push some rocks in a line. Stupid things. I forgot, he said. You always forget. It was true. He meant to do the things that Jojen asked, but once he was a wolf, they never seemed important. There were always things to see and things to smell, a whole green world to hunt. And he could run. There was nothing better than running, unless it was running after prey. I was a prince, Jojen, he told the older boy. I was the prince of the woods. You are a prince, Jojen reminded him softly. You remember, don't you? Tell me who you are. You know. Jojen was his friend and his teacher, but sometimes Bran just wanted to hit him. I want you to say the words. Tell me who you are. Bran, he said sullenly. Bran the Broken. Brandon Stark, a crippled boy. The Prince of Winterfell. Of Winterfell, burned and tumbled, its people scattered and slain. The glass gardens were smashed, and hot water gushed from the cracked walls to steam beneath the sun. How can you be the prince of some place you might never see again? And who is Summer? Jojen prompted. My direwolf, he smiled. Prince of the Green. Bran the boy and Summer the wolf. You are two, then. Two, he sighed, and one. He hated Jojen when he got stupid like this. At Winterfell, he wanted me to dream my wolf dreams, and now that I know how, he's always calling me back. Remember that, Bran. Remember yourself, or the wolf will consume you. When you join, it's not enough to run and hunt and howl in summer's skin. It is for me, Bran thought. He likes summer's skin better than his own. What good is it to be a skin changer if you can't wear the skin you like? Will you remember? And next time, mark the tree. Any tree, it doesn't matter, so long as you do it. I will. I'll remember. I could go back and do it now, if you like. I won't forget this time. But I'll eat my deer first, and fight with those little wolves some more. Jojen shook his head. No, best stay and eat. With your own mouth. A war cannot live on what his beast consumes. How would you know? Bran thought resentfully. You've never been a warg. You don't know what it's like. Hodor jerked suddenly to his feet, almost hitting his head on the barrel-vaulted ceiling. Hodor! He shouted, rushing to the door. Mira pushed it open just before he reached it and stepped through into their refuge. Hodor! Hodor! the huge stable boy said, grinning. Mira Reed was sixteen, a woman grown, but she stood no higher than her brother. All the Cranog men were small, she told Bran once, when he asked why she wasn't taller. Brown-haired, green-eyed, and flat as a boy, she walked with a supple grace that Bran could only watch and envy. Mira wore a long, sharp dagger but her favourite way to fight was with a slender, three-pronged frog-spear in one hand and a woven net in the other. "'Who's hungry?' 
she asked, holding up her catch, two small silvery trout and six fat green frogs. I am, said Bran, but not for frogs. Back at Winterfell, before all the bad things had happened, the Walders used to say that eating frogs would turn your teeth green and make moss grow under your arms. He wondered if the Walders were dead. He hadn't seen their corpses at Winterfell, but there had been a lot of corpses, and they hadn't looked inside the buildings. We'll just have to feed you, then. Will you help me clean the catch, Bran? He nodded. It was hard to sulk with Mira. She was much more cheerful than her brother, and always seemed to know how to make him smile. Nothing ever scared her or made her angry. Well, except Jojen sometimes. Jojen Reed could scare most anyone. He dressed all in green. His eyes were murky as moss, and he had green dreams. What Jojen dreamed came true. Except he dreamed me dead, and I'm not. Only he was, in a way. Jojen sent Hodor out for wood and built them a small fire while Bran and Mira were cleaning the fish and frogs. They used Mira's helm for a cooking pot, chopping up the catch into little cubes and tossing in some water and some wild onions Hodor had found to make a froggy stew. It wasn't as good as deer, but it wasn't bad either, Bran decided as he ate. Thank you, Mira, he said. My lady, you are most welcome, your grace. Come the morrow, Jojen announced. We had best move on. Bren could see Mira tense. Have you had a green dream? No, he admitted. Why leave, then? his sister demanded. Tumbledown Tower is a good place for us. No villages near, the woods are full of game, there's fish and frogs in the streams and lakes, and who is ever going to find us here? This is not the place we are meant to be. It is safe, though. It seems safe, I know, said Jojen, but for how long? There was a battle at Winterfell. We sold the dead. Battles mean wars. If some army should take us unawares— it might be Rob's army, said Bran. Rob will come back from the south soon. I know he will. He'll come back with all his banners and chase the iron men away. Your maester said naught of Rob when he lay dying, Jojen reminded him. Iron men on the stony shore, he said, and east the bastard of Bolton. Moat Caelin and deep wood mot fallen, the heir to Serwin dead, and the Castellan of Turren Square. War everywhere, he said, each man against his neighbor. We have plowed this field before, his sister said. You want to make for the wall and your three-eyed crow. That's well and good, but the wall is a very long way, and Bran has no legs but Hodor. If we were mounted, if we were eagles, we might fly, said Jojen sharply. But we have no wings, no more than we have horses. There are horses to be had, said Mira. Even in the deep of the wolfswood there are foresters, crofters, hunters. Some will have horses. And if they do, should we steal them? Are we thieves? 
The last thing we need is men hunting us. We could buy them, she said. Trade for them. Look at us, Mirror. A crippled boy with a dire wolf, a simple-minded giant, and two Cranog men a thousand leagues from the neck. We will be known, and word will spread. So long as Bran remains dead, he is safe. Alive, he becomes prey for those who want him dead for good and true. Jojen went to the fire to prod the embers with a stick. Somewhere to the north, the three-eyed crow awaits us. Bran has need of a teacher wiser than me. How, Jojen? his sister asked. How? A foot, he answered. A step at a time. The road from Greywater to Winterfell went on forever, and we were mounted then. Do you want us to travel a longer road on foot without even knowing where it ends? Beyond the wall, you say? I haven't been there no more than you. But I know that beyond the wall's a big place, Jojen. Are there many three-eyed crows or only one? How do we find him? Perhaps he will find us. Before Mira could find a reply to that, they heard the sound, the distant howl of a wolf drifting through the night. Summer? asked Jojen, listening. No, Bren knew the voice of his dire wolf. Are you certain? said the little grandfather. Certain. Summer had wandered far afield today and would not be back till dawn. Maybe Jojen dreams green, but he can't tell a wolf from a dire wolf. He wondered why they all listened to Jojen so much. He was not a prince like Bran, nor big and strong like Hodor, nor as good a hunter as Mira, yet somehow it was always Jojen telling them what to do. We should steal horses like Mira once, Bran said, and ride to the Umbers up at last hearth, he thought a moment, or we could steal a boat and sail down the White Knife to White Harbour Town. That fight Lord Manderley rules there. He was friendly at the harvest feast. He wanted to build ships. Maybe he built some, and we could sail to River Run and bring Rob home with all his army. Then it wouldn't matter who knew I was alive. Rob wouldn't let anyone hurt us. Hodor! burped Hodor. Hodor! Hodor! He was the only one who liked Bran's plan, though. Mira just smiled at him, and Jojen frowned. They never listened to what he wanted, even though Bran was a Stark and a prince besides, and the reeds of the neck were Stark bannermen. Hodor! said Hodor, swaying. Hodor! 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 Sometimes he liked to do this, just saying his name different ways over and over and over. Other times he would stay so quiet you forgot he was there. There was never any knowing with Hodor. Hodor! 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 he shouted. He's not going to stop, Bren realized. Hodor, he said, why don't you go outside and train with your sword? The stable boy had forgotten about his sword, but now he remembered. Hodor! he burped. 
he went for his blade. They had three tomb swords taken from the crypts of Winterfell, where Bran and his brother Rickon had hidden from Theon Greyjoy's Iron Men. Bran claimed his uncle Brandon's sword, Mira, the one she found upon the knees of his grandfather, Lord Rickard. Hodor's blade was much older, a huge, heavy piece of iron, dull from centuries of neglect and well sputted with rust. He could swing it for hours at a time. There was a rotted tree near the tumble stones that he had hacked half to pieces. Even when he went outside, they could hear him through the walls, bellowing, Hold your! as he cut and slashed at his tree. Thankfully, the wolf's wood was huge, and there was not like to be anyone else around here. Jojen, what did you mean about a teacher? Bren asked. You're my teacher. I know I never marked the tree, but I will the next time. My third eye is open like you want it. So wide open that I fear you may fall through it and live all the rest of your days as a wolf of the woods. I won't, I promise. The boy promises. Will the wolf remember? You run with Summer. You aren't with him. Kill with him. But you bend to his will more than him to yours. I just forget, Bran complained. I'm only nine. I'll be better when I'm older. Even Florian the Fool and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight weren't great knights when they were nine. That is true, said Jojen, and a wise thing to say if the days were still growing longer. But they aren't. You are a summer child, I know. Tell me the words of Al Stark. Winter is coming. Just saying it made Bran feel cold. Jojen gave a solemn nod. I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to earth by chains of stone and came to Winterfell to free him. The chains are off you now, yet still you do not fly. Then you teach me. Bran still feared the three-eyed crow who haunted his dreams sometimes, pecking endlessly at the skin between his eyes and telling him to fly. You're a green seer. No, said Jojen, only a boy who dreams. The green seers were more than that. They were wargs as well as you are, and the greatest of them could wear the skins of any beast that flies or swims or crawls, and could look through the eyes of the weirwoods as well, and see the truth that lies beneath the world. The gods give many gifts, Bran. My sister is a hunter. It is given to her to run swiftly, and stand so still she seems to vanish. She has sharp ears, keen eyes, a steady hand with net and spear. She can breathe mud and fly through trees. I could not do these things no more than you could. To me the gods gave the green dreams, and to you, you could be more than me, Bran. You are the winged wolf, and there is no saying how far and high you might fly if you had someone to teach you. How can I help you master a gift I do not understand? We remember the first men in the neck, and the children of the forest who were their friends, but so much is forgotten, 
and so much we never knew. Mira took Bran by the hand. If we stay here, troubling no one, you'll be safe until the war ends. You will not learn, though, except what my brother can teach you, and you've heard what he says. If we leave this place to seek refuge at Last Hearth or beyond the wall, we risk being taken. You're only a boy, I know, but you are our prince as well, our lord's son, and our king's true heir. We have sworn you our faith by earth and water, bronze and iron, ice and fire. The risk is yours, Bran, as is the gift. The choice should be yours too, I think. We are your servants to command. She grinned. At least in this. You mean, Bran said, you'll do what I say, truly? Truly, my prince, the girl replied, so consider well. Bran tried to think it through, the way his father might have. The great John's uncles, Hotha Horsebane and Moore's Crow Food, were fierce men. But he thought they would be loyal, and the Carstarks them too. Carhold was a strong castle, father always said. We would be safe with the Umbers or the Carstarks, or they could go south to fat Lord Manderley. At Winterfell he'd laughed a lot, and never seemed to look at Bran with so much pity as the other lords. Castle Serwyn was closer than White Harbour, but Maester Lewin had said that Clay Serwyn was dead. The Umbers and the Carstocks and the Manderleys may all be dead as well, he realized, as he would be if he was caught by the Iron Men or the Bastard of Bolton. If they stayed here, hidden down beneath Tumbledown Tower, no one would find them. He would stay alive and crippled. Bran realized he was crying. Stupid baby, he thought to himself. No matter where he went, to Carhold or White Harbor or Greywater Watch, he'd be a cripple when he got there. He balled his hands into fists. I want to fly, he told them. Please, take me to the crow. Davis When he came up on deck, the long point of driftmark was dwindling behind them while Dragonstone rose from the sea ahead. A pale grey wisp of smoke blew from the top of the mountain to mark where the island lay. Dragonmont is restless this morning, Davis thought, or else Melisande is burning someone else. Melisande had been much in his thoughts, as Shayala's dance made her way across Blackwater Bay and through the gullet, tacking against perverse contrary winds. The great fire that burned atop the sharp point watchtower at the end of Massey's Hook reminded him of the ruby she wore at her throat, and when the world turned red at dawn and sunset, the drifting clouds turned the same color as the silks and satins of her rustling gowns. She would be waiting on Dragonstone as well, waiting in all her beauty and all her power, with her god and her shadows and his king. The red priestess had always seemed loyal to Stannis until now. She has broken him as a man breaks horse, 
she would ride him to power if she could, and for that she gave my sons to the fire. I will cut the living heart from her breast and see how it burns. He touched the hilt of the fine long lysine dirk that the captain had given him. The captain had been very kind to him. His name was Corain Sathmantes, a Lysene like Salador San, whose ship this was. He had the same pale blue eyes you often saw on lice, set in a bony, weather-worn face, but he had spent many years trading in the Seven Kingdoms. When he learned that the man he had plucked from the sea was a celebrated onion knight, he gave him the use of his own cabin and his own clothes, and a pair of new boots that almost fit. He insisted that Davis share his provisions as well, though that turned out badly. His stomach could not tolerate the snails and lampreys and other rich food Captain Corain so relished, and after his first meal at the captain's table, he spent the rest of the day with one end or the other dangling over the rail. Dragonstone loomed larger with every stroke of the oars. Davis could see the shape of the mountain now, and on its side the great black citadel with its gargoyles and dragon towers. The bronze figurehead at the bow of Sheala's dance set up wings of salt spray as it cut the waves. He leaned his weight against the rail, grateful for its support. His ordeal had weakened him. If he stood too long, his leg shook, and sometimes he fell prey to uncontrollable fits of coughing and brought up gubs of bloody phlegm. "'There's nothing,' he told himself. Surely the gods did not bring me safe through fire and sea, only to kill me with a flux. As he listened to the pounding of the oarmaster's drum, the thrum of the sail, and the rhythmic swish and creak of the oars, he thought back to his younger days, when these same sounds woke dread in his heart on many a misty morn. They heralded the approach of old Sir Tristaman's Sea Watch, and the Sea Watch was death to smugglers, when Aerys Targaryen sat the Iron Throne. Another lifetime, he thought. That was before the Onion Ship, before Storm's End, before Stannis shortened my fingers. That was before the War, or the Red Comet, before I was a Seaworth, or a Knight. I was a different man in those days, before Lord Stannis raised me high. Captain Corain had told him of the end of Stannis's hopes. On the night, the river burned. The Lannises had taken him from the flank, and his fickle bannermen had abandoned him by the hundreds in the hour of his greatest need. King Orenly's shade was seen as well, the captain said, slaying right and left as he led the Lion Lord's van. It said his green armor took a ghostly glow from the wildfire, and his antlers ran with golden flames. Randy Shade! Davis wondered if his sons would return as shades as well. He had seen too many queer things on the sea to say that ghosts did not exist. Did none keep faith? he asked. Some few, the captain said. The queen's kin, them in chief. We took off many who wore the fox and flowers, there were many more were left ashore with all manner of badges. Lord Florent is the king's hand on Dragonstone now. The mountain grew taller, crowned all in pale smoke. 
The sail sang, the drum beat, the oars pulled smoothly, and before very long the mouth of the harbour opened before them. So empty, Davis thought, remembering how it had been before, with the ships crowding every quay and rocking at anchor off the breakwater. He could see Salador San's flagship Valerian moored at the quay, where Fury and her sisters had once tied up. The ships on either side of her had striped lysine hulls as well. In vain he looked for any sign of Lady Mariah or Wraith. They pulled down the sail as they entered the harbour to dock on oars alone. The captain came to Davis as they were tying up. My prince will wish to see you at once. A fit of coughing seized Davis as he tried to answer. He clutched the rail for support and spat over the side. The king, <laughs> he wheezed. I must go to the king. For where the king is, I will find Melisande. No one goes to the king, Corain Sathmentes replied firmly. A Salador's son will tell you. Him first. Davis was, too, Davis was too weak to defy him. He could only nod. Salador's son was not aboard his Valerian. They found him at another quay, a quarter-mile distant, down in the hold of a big-bellied pentoshi cog named Bountiful Harvest, counting cargo with two eunuchs. One held a lantern, the other a wax tablet, and stylus. Thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, the old rogue was saying when Davis and the captain came down the hatch. Today he wore a wine-colored tunic and high boots of bleached-white leather inlaid with silver scrollwork. Pulling the stopper from a jar, he sniffed, sneezed, and said, "'Er, a coarse kind, and of the second quality. My nose declares. The bill of lading is saying forty-three jars, eh? Where have the others gotten to, I am wondering? These pentoshi, do they think I am not counting, eh?' When he saw Davis, he stopped suddenly. Is it pepper stinging my eyes or tears? Is that the knight of the onions who stands before me? No, how can it be? My dear friend Davis died on the burning river, all agree. Why has he come to haunt me? Are I no ghost, Haller? What else? My onion knight was never so thin or so pale as you. Salador San threaded his way between the jars of spice and bolts of cloth that filled the hole of the merchant, wrapped Davis in a fierce embrace, then kissed him once on each cheek and a third time on his forehead. You are still warm, sir, and I feel your heart thumpity thumping. Can it be true? Huh? The sea that swallowed you has spit you up again? Davis was reminded of Patchface. Princess Shireen's lackwit fool. He had gone into the sea as well, and when he came out, he was mad. Am I mad as well? <coughs> he coughed into a gloved hand and said, I swam beneath a chain and washed ashore on a spear of the Merlin King. I would have died there if Shehala's dance had not come upon me. Salador San threw an arm around the captain's shoulder. This was well done, Corain. You will be having a fine reward, I am thinking. 
Mais oh my, be a good eunuch, eh, and take my friend, Davos, to the honor's cabin. Fetch him some hot wine with cloves. I am misliking the sound of that cough. <laughs> Squeeze some lime in it as well, and bring white cheese and a bowl of those cracked green olives we counted earlier. Davis, I will join you soon, once I have bespoken our good captain. You will be forgiving me, eh, I know. You do not eat all the olives, or I must be cross with you. Davis let the elder of the two eunuchs escort him to a large and lavishly furnished cabin at the stern of the ship. The carpets were deep, the windows stained glass, and any of the great leather chairs would have seated three of Davis quite comfortably. The cheese and olives arrived shortly, and a cup of steaming hot red wine. He held it between his hands and sipped it gratefully. The warmth felt soothing as it spread through his chest. Salador San appeared not long after. You must be forgiving me for the wine, my friend. These uh, Pentashi would drink their own water if it were purple. It will help my chest, said Davis. A wine is better than a compress, my mother used to say. You shall be needing compresses as well, I am thinking. Sitting on a spear all this long time, eh? Oh, my! How are you finding that excellent chair? He has uh, fat cheeks, eh? Does he not? Who? asked Davis between sips of hot wine. Illyrio Mopatis, a whale with whiskers. <laughs> I am telling you truly, <laughs> these chairs were built to his measure, though he is seldom bestirring himself from Pentas to sit in them. A fat man always sits comfortably, eh? I'm thinking. For, for he carries his pillow with him wherever he goes, eh? <laughs> How is it you come by a Pentashi ship? asked Davis. Have you gone pirate again, my lord? He set his empty cup aside. Vile calumny! Who has suffered more from pirates than Salador San? I ask only what is due to me. Much gold is owed, oh, yes, but I am not without reason, eh? So, in place of coin, I have taken a handsome parchment, very crisp. It bears the name and seal of Lord Alistair Florent, the hand of the king. I am made Lord of Blackwater Bay, and no vessel may be crossing my lordly waters without my lordly leave. No? And when these outlaws are trying to steal past me in the night to avoid my lawful duties and customs, why, they are no better than smugglers. Eh? So I am well within my rights to seize them. <laughs> the old pirate laughed. I cut off no man's fingers, though. What good are bits of fingers? The ships I am taking, the cargoes, a few ransoms, nothing unreasonable. He gave Davis a sharp look. You are unwell, my friend, eh? that cough, and so thin. I am seeing your bones through your skin, and yet I am not seeing your little bag of finger bones. Old habit made Davis reach for the leather pouch that was no longer there. I lost her in the river. My luck. Oh, 
The river was terrible, Salador Zahn said solemnly. Even from the bay I was seeing and shuddering. Davis coughed, spat, and coughed again. I, I saw Black Brother burning, <laughs> and Fury as well, he finally managed hoarsely. Did none of our ships escape the fire? Part of him still hoped. Lord Stefan, Ragged Jenner, Swift Sword, Laughing Lord, and some others were upstream of the pyromancer's pissing, yes. They did not burn, but with the chain raised, neither could they be flying. Some few were surrendering, eh? Most rode far up the black water, away from the battling, and then were sunk by their crews, so they would not be falling into Lannister hands, eh? Ragged Jenner and Laughing Lord are still playing pirate on the river, I have heard, but who can say if it is so, eh? Lady Mariah? Davis asked. Wraith? Salador San put a hand on Davis's forearm and gave a squeeze. No, of them, no. I am sorry, my friend. They were good men, your Dale and Allard, but this comfort I can give you. Your young Devon was among those we took off at the end. The brave boy never once left the king's side, or so they say. For a moment he felt almost dizzy. His relief was so palpable. He had been afraid to ask about Devon. The mother is merciful. I must go to him, Salar. I must see him. Yes, said Salador San, and you will be wanting to sail to Cape Wrath, I know, to see your wife and your two little ones. Eh? You must be having a new ship, I am thinking. His Grace will give me a ship said Davis. The Lysini shook his head. Of ships his grace has none, but Saladosan has many. Eh? The king's ships burned up on the river, but not mine. You shall have one, old friend. You will sail for me, yes? You will dance into Bravas and Myrrh and Valentis in the black of night, all unseen, and dance out again with silks and spices, we will be having fat purses, yes? You are kind, Salar, but my duty is to my king, not your purse. The war will go on. Stannis is still the rightful heir by all the laws of the Seven Kingdoms. All the laws are not helping when all the ships burn up, I am thinking. And your king will. You will be finding him changed, I am fearing. Since the battle, he sees no one but broods in his stone drum. Queen Celeste keeps court for him, with her uncle, the Lord Alistair, who is naming himself the Hand. The king's seal she has given to this uh, uncle to fix to the letters he writes, even to my pretty parchment. But it is a little kingdom they are ruling, poor and rocky, yes? There is no gold, not even a little bit, to pay faithful Salador San what is owed him, and only those nights that we took off at the end, and no ships, but my little brave few, eh? A sudden racking cough bent Davis over. Salador San moved to help him, but he waved him off, and after a moment he recovered. No one, 
he wheezed. What do you mean? He sees no one. His voice sounded wet and thick even in his own ears, and for a moment the cabin swam dizzily around him. No one but her, said Salador Sam, and Davis did not have to ask who he meant. My friend, you tire yourself. It is a bed you are needing, not Salador Sam, a bed and many blankets with a hot compress for your chest and more wine and cloves. Davis shook his head. I will be fine. <laughs> Tell me, Seller, I must know. No one but Melisandre? The Lysene gave out for long, doubtful look, and continued reluctantly. The guards keep all others away, even his queen and his little daughter. Servants bring meals that no one eats. He leaned forward and lowered his voice. Queer talking, I have heard of hungry fires within the mountain, and how Stannis and the Red Woman go down together to watch the flames, eh? There are shafts, they say, and secret stairs down into the mountain's heart, into hot places where only she may walk unburned. It is enough and more to give an old man such terrors that sometimes he can scarcely find the strength to eat. Melisandre, Davis shivered. The red woman did this to him, he said. She sent the fire to consume us, to punish Tannis for setting her aside, to teach him that he could not hope to win without her sorceries. The Lysene chose a plump olive from the bowl between them. You are not the first to be saying this, my friend. But if I am you, I am not saying it so loudly, eh? Dragonstone crawls with these queen's men. Oh, yes, and they have sharp ears and sharper knives. He popped the olive into his mouth. I have a knife myself. Captain Corrine made me a gift of it. He pulled out the dirk and laid it on the table between them. A knife to cut out Melisande's art, if she has one. Salador San spit out an olive pit. Devers, good Devers, you must not be saying such things, even in jest. No jest, or you meet a killer. If she can be killed by mortal weapons? Davis was not certain that she could. He had seen old Maester Cresson slip poison into her wine. With his own eyes he had seen it. But when they both drank from the poison cup, it was a maester who died not the red priestess. A knife through the art, though. Even demons can be killed by cold iron, the singers say. These are dangerous talkings, my friend. Salador San warned him. I am thinking you are still sick from the sea. The fever has cooked your wits, yes? Best you are taking to your bed for a long resting until you are stronger. Until my resolve weakens, you mean. Davis got to his feet. He did feel feverish and a little dizzy, but it did not matter. You are a treacherous old rogue, Salador Sarn, but a good friend all the same. Lyseni stroked his pointed silver beard. So, with this great friend you will be staying, yes? No, I will be going. <coughs> he coughed. Go, look at you. You cough, you tremble, you are thin and weak. 
Where will you be going? To the castle. My bed is there, and my son. And uh, the red woman? Salador-san said suspiciously. She is in the castle also. Her too. Dabba slid the dirt back into its sheath. You are an onion smuggler. What do you know of skulkings and stabbings? And you are ill. You cannot even hold the dirk. Do you know what will happen to you if you are caught? While we were burning on the river, the queen was burning traitors. Servants of the dark, she named them, poor men. And the red woman sang as the fires were lit. Davis was unsurprised. I knew, he thought, I knew, before he told me. She took Lord Sunglass from the dungeons, he guessed, and Hubbard Rampton's sons. Just so, and burn them, as she will burn you. If you kill the red woman, they will burn you for revenge, and if you fail to kill her, they will burn you for the trying. She will sing, and you will scream, and then you will die. And you have only just come back to life. And this is why, said Davis, to do this thing, to make an end of Melisande of Ashai and all her works. Why else would the sea have spit me out? You know Blackwater Bay as well as I do, Seller. No sensible captain would ever take his ship through the spears of the Merlin King and risk ripping out his bottom. Shayala's dance should never have come near me. A wind, eh? insisted Salador San loudly. An ill wind is all. A wind drove her too far to the south. And who set the wind? Salar, the mother, spoke to me. The old Lyseni blinked at him. Your mother is dead. The mother! She blessed me with seven sons, and yet I let them burn her. She spoke to me. We call the fire, she said. We call the shadows, too. I rode Melisande into the bowels of Storm's End and watched her birth a horror. He saw it still in his nightmares, the gaunt black hands pushing against her thighs as it wriggled free of her swollen womb. She killed Cresson and Lord Renly and a brave man named Courtney Penrose, and she killed my sons as well. Now it is time someone killed her. Someone, said Salador-san. Yes, just so, someone, but not you. You are weak as a child and no warrior. Stay, I beg you. We will talk more and you will eat, and perhaps we will sail to brave us and hire a faceless man to do this thing, yes? But you, no, you must sit and eat. He is making this much harder thought Davis wearily, and it was personally hard to begin with. I have a vengeance in my belly, Salah. It leaves no room for food. Let me go now, for our friendship wish me luck, and let me go. Salador-san pushed himself to his feet. You are no true friend, I am thinking. When you are dead, who will be bringing your ashes and bones back to your lady-wife, eh? and telling her that she has lost a husband and four sons. Only sad old Salador-san. 
But so be it, brave Sir Knight. Go rushing to your grave. I will gather your bones in a sack and bring them to the sons you leave behind to wear in little bags around their necks, eh? He waved an angry hand with rings on every finger. Go! Go, 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 go! Davis did not want to leave like this. Salar, go! Or stay better, but if you are going, go! He went. His walk up from the bountiful harvest to the gates of Dragonstone was long and lonely. The dockside streets where soldiers and sailors and small folk had thronged were empty and deserted. Where once he had stepped around squealing pigs and naked children, rats scurried. His legs felt like pudding beneath him, and thrice the coughing racked him so badly that he had to stop and rest. No one came to help him, nor even peered through a window to see what was the matter. The windows were shuttered, the doors barred, and more than half the houses displayed some mark of mourning. Thousands sailed up the Blackwater Rush, and hundreds came back, Davis reflected. My sons did not die alone. May the mother have mercy on them all. When he reached the castle gates, he found them shot as well. Davis pounded on the iron-studded wood with his fist. When there was no answer, he kicked at it again and again. Finally, a crossbowman appeared atop the barbican, peering down between two towering gargoyles. Who goes there? He craned his head back and cupped his hands around his mouth. Sir Davis Seaworth, to see his grace. Are you drunk? Go away and stop that pounding. Salador San had warned him. Davis tried a different tack. Send for my son, then. Devon, the king's squire. The guard frowned. Who did you say you were? Davis, he shouted. The Onion Knight. The head vanished to return a moment later. Be off with you. The Onion Knight died on the river. His ship burned. His ship burned, Davis agreed. But he lived, and here he stands. Is Jate still captain of the gate? Who? Jate, Blackberry. He knows me well enough. I never heard of him. Most like he's dead. Lord Chittering, then. Oh, that one, I know. He burned on the black water. Hookface will howl the hug. Dead and dead, the crossbowman said, but his face betrayed a sudden doubt. You wait there. He vanished again. Davis waited. Gone, all gone, he thought dully. Remembering how Fat Hal's white belly always showed beneath his grease-stained doublet, the long scar the fish-hook had left across Will's face, the way Jate always duffed his cap at the women, be they five or fifty, high-born or low. Drowned or burned, with my sons and a thousand others, gone to make a king in hell. Suddenly the crossbowman was back. Go round to the sally port, and they'll admit you. Davis did as he was bid. The guards who ushered him inside were strangers to him. They carried spears, and on their breasts they wore the fox and flower sigil of House Florent. 
They escorted him not to the stone drum, as he'd expected, but under the arch of the dragon's tail and down to Agen's garden. Wait here, the sergeant told him. Does his grace know that I've returned? asked Davis. Bugger all if I know. Wait, I said. The man left, taking his spearman with him. Aegon's garden had a pleasant piney smell to it, and tall dark trees rose on every side. There were wild roses as well, and towering thorny hedges, and a boggy spot where cranberries grew. Why have they brought me here? Davis wondered. Then he heard a faint ringing of bells, and a child's giggle, and suddenly the fool, Patchface, popped from the bushes, shambling along as fast as he could go, with Princess Shireen hot on his heels. "'You come back now!' she was shouting after him. "'Patches, you come back!' When the fool saw Davis, he jerked to a sudden halt, the bells on his antlered tin helmet going tingling, tingling. Hopping from one foot to the other, he sang, Fool's blood, king's blood, blood on the maiden's thigh, but chains for the guests and chains for the bridegroom, aye, aye, aye. Shireen almost caught him then, but at the last instant he hopped over a patch of bracken and vanished among the trees. The princess was right behind him. The sight of them made Davis smile. He had turned a cuff into his gloved hand when another small shape crashed out of the hedge and bowled right into him, knocking him off his feet. The boy went down as well, but he was up again almost at once. "'What are you doing here?' he demanded as he brushed himself off. Jet-black hair fell to his collar, and his eyes were a startling blue. "'You shouldn't get in my way when I'm running.' "'No,' Davis agreed, "'I shouldn't.' Another fit of coughing seized him as he struggled to his feet. "'Are you unwell?' The boy took him by the arm and pulled him to his feet. "'Should I summon the maester?' Davis shook his head. "'A cuff. It will pass.' The boy took him in his work. "'We were playing monsters and maidens,' he explained. "'I was the monster. It's a childish game, but my cousin likes it. Do you have a name?' "'Sir Davis Seaworth.' The boy looked him up and down dubiously. "'Are you certain? You don't look very knightly.' "'I am the Knight of the Onions, my lord.' The blue eyes blinked. "'The one with the black ship.' "'You know the tale?' "'You brought my uncle Stannis fish to eat before I was born, when Lord Tyrell had him under siege.' The boy drew himself up tall. "'I am Edric Storm,' he announced. "'King Robert's son.' Of course you are. Davis had known that almost at once. The lad had the prominent ears of a florent, but the hair, the eyes, the jaw, the cheekbones, those were all Baratheon. Did you know my father? Edric Storm demanded. I saw him many a time, while calling on your uncle at court, but we never spoke. My father taught me to fight, the boy said proudly. He came to see me almost every year and sometimes we trained together. On my last name day, he sent me a war hammer, just like his, only smaller. They made me leave it at Storm's End, though. Is it true my Uncle Stannis cut off your fingers? Only the last joint. I still have fingers, only shorter. Show me. Davis peeled his glove off. 
The boy studied his hand carefully. He did not shorten your thumb? No, Davis coughed. No, he left me that. He should not have chopped any of your fingers, the lad decided. That was ill done. I was a smuggler. Yes, but you smuggled him fish and onions. Lord Stannis knighted me for the onions and took my fingers for the smuggling. He pulled his glove back on. My father would not have chopped your fingers. As you say, my lord. Robert was a different man than Stannis, true enough. The boy is like him, aye, and like Renly as well. That thought made him anxious. The boy was about to say something more when they heard steps. Davis turned. Sir Axel Florent was coming down the garden path with a dozen guards in quilted jerkins. On their breasts they wore the fiery heart of the Lord of Light. Queen's men, Davis thought. A cough came on him suddenly. Sir Axel was short and muscular, with a barrel chest, thick arms, bandy legs, and hair growing from his ears. The Queen's uncle, he had served as Castellan of Dragonstone for a decade, and had always treated Davis courteously, knowing he enjoyed the favour of Lord Stannis. But there was neither courtesy nor warmth in his tone as he said, Sir Davis, an undrowned. How can that be? Onions float, sir. Have you come to take me to the king? I've come to take you to the dungeon. Sir Axel waved his men forward. Seize him and take his dirk. He means to use it on our lady. Jamie Jamie was the first to spy the inn. The main building hugged the south shore where the river bent, its long low wings outstretched along the water as if to embrace travellers sailing downstream. The lower story was grey stone, the upper whitewashed wood, the roof slate. He could see stables as well, and an arbour heavy with vines. No smoke from the chimneys, he pointed out as they approached, nor lights in the windows. The inn was still open when last I passed this way, said Sir Cleos Frey. They brewed a fine ale. Perhaps there's still some to be had in the cellars. There may be people, Brian said, hiding or dead. Frightened of a few corpses, wench, Jamie said. She glared at him. My name is Brian, yes. Wouldn't you like to sleep in a bed for a night, Brian? We'd be safer than on the open river, and it might be prudent to find what's happened here. She gave no answer, but after a moment she pushed at the tiller to angle the skiff in toward the weathered wooden dock. Sir Clea scrambled to take down the sail. When they bumped softly against the pier, he climbed out to tie them up. Jamie clambered after him, made awkward by his chains. At the end of the dock, a flaking shingle swung from an iron post, painted with the likeness of a king upon his knees, his hands pressed together in a gesture of fealty. Jamie took one look and laughed aloud. <laughs> we could not have found a better inn. Is this some special place? the wench asked suspiciously. Sir Cleos answered, This is the inn of the kneeling man, my lady. 
It stands upon the very spot where the last king in the north knelt before Aegon the Conqueror to offer his submission. Uh, that's him on the sign, I suppose. Torren had brought his power south after the fall of the two kings on the field of fire, said Jamie. But when he saw Aegon's dragon and the size of his host, he chose a path of wisdom and bent his frozen knees. He stopped at the sound of a horse's whinny. Horses in a stable, one at least. And one is all I need to put the wench behind me. Let's see who's home, shall we? Without waiting for an answer, Jamie went clinking down the dock, put a shoulder to the door, shoved it open, and found himself eye to eye with a loaded crossbow. Standing behind it was a chunky boy of fifteen. Lion, fish, or wolf? the lad demanded. We were hoping for Capon. Jamie heard his companions entering behind him. The crossbow is a coward's weapon. It'll put a bolt through your heart all the same. Perhaps, but before you can wind it again, my cousin here will spill your entrails on the floor. Don't be scaring the lad now, Sir Clear said. We mean no harm, the wench said, and we have coin to pay for food and drink. She dug a silver piece from her pouch. The boy looked suspiciously at the coin and then at Jamie's manacles. Why is this one in irons? Killed some crossbowman said Jamie. Do you have ale? Yes, the boy lowered the crossbow an inch. Undo your sword belts and let them fall, and might be we'll feed you. He edged around to peer through the thick, diamond-shaped window panes and see if any more of them were outside. That's a tully sail. We come from River Run, Brian undid the clasp on her belt and let it clatter to the floor. Sir Cleos followed suit. A sallow man with a pucked, doughy face stepped through the cellar door, holding a butcher's heavy cleaver. See, aye, we got horse meat enough for three. The horse was old and tough, but the meat's still fresh. Is there bread? asked Brian. Hard bread and stale oat cakes. Jamie grinned. Now, there's an honest innkeep. They all serve you stale bread and stringy meat but most don't own up to it so freely. I'm no innkeep. I buried him out back with his women. Uh, did you kill them? Would I tell you if I did? The man spat. Likely it were wolves' work, or maybe lions. What's the difference? The wife and I found them dead. The way we see it, this place is ours now. Where is this wife of yours? Sir Cleos asked. The man gave him a suspicious squint. And why will you be wanting to know that? She's not here. No more than you three will be, unless I like the taste of your silver. Brian tossed the coin to him. He caught it in the air, bit it, and tucked it away. She's got more, the boy with a crossbow announced. So she does, boy. Go down and find me some onions. The lad raised the crossbow to his shoulder, gave them one last sullen look, and vanished into the cellar. Your son? Sir Cleos asked. Just a boy the wife and me took in. We had two sons, but the lions killed one, and the other died of the flux. 
The boy lost his mother to the bloody mummers. These days a man needs someone to keep watch while he sleeps. He waved the cleaver at the tables. Might as well sit. The hearth was cold, but Jamie picked the chair nearest the ashes and stretched out his long legs under the table. The clink of his chains accompanied his every movement. An irritating sound. Before this is done, I'll wrap these chains around that wench's throat. See how she likes them then. The man, who wasn't an innkeep, charred three huge horse steaks and fried the onions in bacon grease, which almost made up for the stale oat cakes. Jamie and Cleos drank ale, Brian a cup of cider. The boy kept his distance, perching atop the cider barrel with his crossbow across his knees, cocked and loaded. The cook drew a tankard of ale and sat with them. "'What news from River Run?' he asked Sir Cleos, taking him for their leader. Sir Cleos glanced at Brian before answering. "'Lord Hoster is failing, but his son holds the fords of the Red Fork against the Lannisters. There have been battles. "'Battles everywhere. Where are you bound, sir?' "'King's Landing.' Sir Cleos wiped grease off his lips. Their host snorted. Then <laughs> you're three fools. Last I heard, King Stannis was outside the city walls. They say he has a hundred thousand men and a magic sword. Jamie's hands wrapped around the chain that bound his wrists, and he twisted it taut, wishing for the strength to snap it in two. Then I'd show Stannis where to sheathe his magic sword. I'd stay well clear of Black King's Road, if I were you, the man went on. It's worse than bad, I hear. Wolves and lions both, and bands of broken men preying on anyone they can catch. Vermin, declared Sir Cleos with contempt. Such would never dare to trouble armed men. "'Begging your pardon, sir, but I see one armed man travelling with a woman and a prisoner in chains.' Brian gave the cook a dark look. "'The wench does hate being reminded that she's a wench,' Jamie reflected, twisting at the chains again. The links were cold and hard against his flesh, the iron implacable. The manacles had chafed his wrists raw.' "'I mean to follow the trident to the sea,' the wench told their host. "'We'll find mounts at Maidenpool, and ride by way of Duskendale and Rusby. "'That should keep us well away from the worst of the fighting.' "'Their host shook his head. "'You'll never reach Maidenpool by river. "'Not thirty miles from here, a couple of boats burned and sank, "'and the channel's been silting up around them.' There's a nest of outlaws there, praying on anyone tries to come by, and more of the same down river, around the skipping stones and Red Deer Island. And the lightning lord's been seen in these parts as well. He crosses the river wherever he likes, riding this way and that way, never still. And who is this lightning lord? demanded Sir Cleos Frey. "'Lord Beret, as it please you, sir. "'They call him that, cos he strikes so sudden. 
like lightning from a clear sky. It said he cannot die. They all die when you shove a sword through them, Jamie thought. Does Thoris of Myrrh still ride with him? Aye, the Red Wizard. I've heard tell he has strange powers. Well, he had the power to match Robert Baratheon drink for drink, and there were few enough who could say that. Jamie had once heard Thoris tell the king that he became a red priest because the robes hid the wine stain so well. Robert had laughed so hard he'd spit ale all over Cersei's silken mantle. Far be it from me to make objection, he said, but perhaps the trident is not our safest course. I'd say that's true, the cook agreed. Even if you get past Red Deer Island and don't meet up with Lord Berwick and the Red Wizard, there's still the Ruby Ford before you. Last I heard, it was the Leech Lord's wolves held the ford, but that was some time past. By now, it could be lions again, or Lord Berwick, or anyone. Or no one. Brian suggested. If my lady cares to wager a skin on that, I won't stop her, but if I was you, I'd leave this here river cut over land. If you stay off the main roads and shelter under the trees of a night, hidden, as it were, well, I still wouldn't want to go with you, <laughs> but you might stand a mummer's chance. The big wench was looking doubtful. We would need horses. There are horses here, Jamie pointed out. I heard one in the stable. Aye, there are, said the innkeep, who wasn't an innkeep. Three of them, as it happens, but they're not for sale. Jamie had to laugh. Of course not, but you'll show them to us anyway. Brian scowled but the man who wasn't an innkeep met her eyes without blinking, and after a moment, reluctantly, she said, "'Show me,' and they all rose from the table. The stables had not been mucked out in a long time from the smell of them. Hundreds of fat black flies swarmed amongst the straw, buzzing from stall to stall, and crawling over the mounds of horse dung that lay everywhere. But there were only the three horses to be seen.' They made an unlikely trio, a lumbering brown plough-horse, an ancient white gelding blind in one eye, and a knight's palfrey, dapple-grey and spirited. They're not for sale at any price, their alleged owner announced. How did you come by these horses? Brian wanted to know. The dray was stable there when the wife and me come on the inn the man said. Along with the one you just ate, the gelding come wandering up one night, and the boy caught the palfrey running free, still saddled and bridled. Here, I'll show you. The saddle he showed them was decorated with silver inlay. The saddlecloth had originally been checkered pink and black, but now it was mostly brown. Jamie did not recognize the original colors, but he recognized bloodstains easily enough. Well, her owner won't be coming to claim her any time soon. He examined the palfrey's legs, counted the gelding's teeth. Give him a gold piece for the grey, if he'll include the saddle, advised Brian. 
a silver for the plough-horse. He ought to pay us for taking the white off his hands. Don't speak discourteously of your horse, sir. The wench opened the purse Lady Catelyn had given her and took out three golden coins. I will pay you a dragon for each. He blinked and reached for the gold, then hesitated and drew his hand back. Oh, I don't know. I, I can't ride no golden dragon if I need to get away, nor eat one if I'm hungry. You can have our skiff as well, she said. Sail up the river or down as you like. Let me have a taste of that gold. The man took one of the coins from her palm and bit it. <laughs> Real enough, I'd say. Three dragons and the skiff. He's rubbing you blind, wench, Jamie said amiably. I want provisions too, Brian told their host, ignoring Jamie. Whatever you have that you can spare. There's more oat cakes. The man scooped the other two dragons from her palm and jingled them in his fist, smiling at the sound they made. Aye, and smoked salt fish. That will cost you silver. My beds will be costing as well. <laughs> You'll be wanting to stay the night. No, Brian said at once. The man frowned at her. Woman, you don't want to go riding at night through strange country and horses you don't know. You like to blunder into some bug or break your horse's leg. The moon will be bright tonight, Brian said. We'll have no trouble finding our way. Their host chewed on that. If you don't have the silver, might be some coppers would buy you them beds, and a coverlet or two to keep you warm. It's not like I'm turning travellers away, if you get my meaning. That sounds more than fair, said Sir Cleos. The coverlets is fresh washed, too. My wife sorted that before she had to go off. Not a flea to be found, neither. You have my word on that. He jingled the coins again, smiling. Sir Cleos was plainly tempted. A proper bed would do us all good, my lady, he said to Brian. We'd, we'd make better time on the morrow once refreshed. He looked to his cousin for support. No, cause the wench is right. We have promises to keep, and long leagues before us. We ought to ride on. But, said Cleos, you said yourself, then, when I thought the inn deserted. Now I have a full belly, and a moonlight ride would be just the thing. He smiled for the wench. But unless you mean to throw me over the back of that plough-horse like a sack of flour, someone had best do something about these irons— it's difficult to ride with your ankles chained together. Brian frowned at the chain. The man who wasn't an innkeep rubbed his jaw. There's a smithy round back of his stable. Show me, Brian said. Yes, said Jamie, and the sooner the better. There's far too much horse shit about here for my taste. I would hate to step in it. He gave the wench a sharp look wondering if she was bright enough to take his meaning. He hoped she might strike the odds of his wrist as well, but Brian was still suspicious. She split the ankle chain in the centre with a half-dozen sharp blows 
from the smith's hammer delivered to the blunt end of a steel chisel. When he suggested that she break the wrist chain as well, she ignored him. Six miles down river, you'll see a burned village, their host said, as he was helping them saddle the horses and load their packs. This time he directed his counsel at Brian. The road splits there. If you turn south, you'll come to Sir Warren Stone Tower House. Sir Warren went off and died, so I couldn't see who owes it now, but it's a place best shunned. You'd do better to follow the track through the woods south by east. Ah, we shall, she answered. You have my thanks. More to the point, he has your gold. Jamie kept the thought to himself. He was tired of being disregarded by this huge, ugly cow of a woman. She took the plough-horse for herself and assigned the palfrey to Sir Cleos. As threatened, Jamie drew the one-eyed gelding, which put an end to any thoughts he might have had of giving his horse a kick and leaving the wench in his dust. The man and the boy came out to watch them leave. The man wished them luck, and told them to come back in better times while the lad stood silent, his crossbow under his arm. "'Take up the spear, or maul,' Jamie told him. "'They'll serve you better.' The boy stared at him distrustfully. "'So much for friendly advice?' He shrugged, turned his horse, and never looked back. Sir Cleus was all complaints as they rode out, still in mourning for his lost feather-bed, they rode east along the bank of the moonlit river. The red fork was very broad here, but shallow, its banks all mud and reeds. Jamie's mount plodded along placidly, though the poor old thing had a tendency to want to drift off to the side of his good eye. It felt good to be mounted once more. He had not been on a horse since Rob Stark's archers had killed his destrier under him in the Whispering Wood. When they reached the burned village, a choice of equally unpromising roads confronted them. Narrow tracks, deep rutted by the carts of farmers hauling their grain to the river. One wandered off towards the southeast and soon vanished amidst trees they could see in the distance, while the other, straighter and stonier, arrowed due south. Brian considered them briefly, and then swung her horse onto the southern road. Jamie was pleasantly surprised. It was the same choice he would have made. But this is the road the innkeep warned us against, Sir Clear subjected. He was no innkeep. She hunched gracelessly in the saddle, but seemed to have a sure seat nonetheless. The man took too great an interest in our choice of route, and those woods, such places, are notorious haunts of outlaws. He may have been urging us into a trap. Clever wench, Jamie smiled at his cousin. Our host has friends down that road, I would venture, the ones whose mounds gave that stable such a memorable aroma. He may have been lying about the river as well, to put us on these horses, the wench said, but he could not take the risk. There will be soldiers at the Ruby Ford and the crossroads. Well, she may be ugly, but she's not entirely stupid. Jamie gave her a grudging smile. 
The ruddy light from the upper windows of the stone tower house gave them warning of its presence a long way off, and Brian led them off into the fields. Only when the stronghold was well to the rear did they angle back and find the road again. Half the night passed before the wench allowed that it might be safe to stop. By then all three of them were drooping in their saddles. They sheltered in a small grove of oak and ash beside a sluggish stream. The wench would allow no fire, so they shared a midnight supper of stale oat cakes and salt fish. The night was strangely peaceful. The half-moon sat overhead in a black felt sky surrounded by stars. Off in the distance, some wolves were howling. One of their horses wickered nervously. There was no other sound. The war has not touched this place, Jamie thought. He was glad to be here, glad to be alive, glad to be on his way back to Circe. I'll take the first watch, Brian told Sir Cleus, and Frey was soon snoring softly. Jamie sat against the bole of an oak, and wondered what Circe and Tyrion were doing just now. Do you have any siblings, my lady? he asked. Brian squinted at him suspiciously. No, I was my father's only child. Jamie chuckled. Son, you meant to say. Does he think of you as a son? You make a queer sort of daughter, to be sure. Wordless, she turned away from him, her knuckles tight on her sword hilt. What a wretched creature this one is. She reminded him of Tyrion in some queer way, though at first blush two people could scarcely be more dissimilar. Perhaps it was that thought of his brother that made him say, I did not intend to give offence, Brain, forgive me. Your crimes are past forgiving, Kingslayer. That name again. Jamie twisted idly at his chains. Why do I enrage you so? I've never done you harm that I know of. You've armed others, those you were sworn to protect, the weak, the innocent. The king? It always came back to Ares. Don't presume to judge what you do not understand, wench. My name is Brain, yes. Has anyone ever told you you're as tedious as you are ugly? You will not provoke me to anger, Kingslayer. Oh, I might, if I cared enough to try. Why did you take the oath, she demanded? Why done the white cloak if you meant to betray all it stood for? Why? <laughs> what could he say that she might possibly understand? I was a boy, fifteen. It was a great honor for one so young. That is no answer, she said scornfully. You would not like the truth. He had joined the king's guard for love, of course. Their father had summoned Circe to court when she was twelve, hoping to make her a royal marriage. He refused every offer for her hand, preferring to keep her with him in the Tower of the Hand while she grew older and more womanly and ever more beautiful. No doubt he was waiting for Prince Viserys to mature, or perhaps for Rhaegar's wife to die in childbed. Elia of Dawn was never the healthiest of women. Jamie, meantime, had spent four years as choir to Sir Sumner Craighall, 
and earned his spurs against the Kingswood Brotherhood. But when he made a brief call at King's Landing on his way back to Casterly Rock, chiefly to see his sister, Cersei took him aside and whispered that Lord Tywin meant to marry him to Lysa Tully, had gone so far as to invite Lord Huster to the city to discuss dower. But if Jamie took the white, he could be near her always. Old Sir Harlan Grandison had died in his sleep, as was only appropriate for one whose sigil was a sleeping lion. Ares would want a young man to take his place, so why not a roaring lion in place of a sleepy one? Father will never consent, Jamie objected. The king won't ask him, and once it's done, father can't object, not openly. Ares had Sir Ilian Payne's tongue torn out just for boasting that it was the Hand who truly ruled the Seven Kingdoms. The captain of the Hand's guard, and yet father dare not try and stop it. He won't stop this either. But, Jamie said, there's Castley Rock. Is it a rock you want, or me? He remembered that night as if it were yesterday. They spent it in an old inn in Eel Alley, well away from watchful eyes. Cersei had come to him dressed as a simple serving wench, which somehow excited him all the more. Jamie had never seen her more passionate. Every time he went to sleep she woke him again. By morning Castle Rock seemed a small price to pay to be near her always. He gave his consent, and Cersei promised to do the rest. A moon's turn later, a royal raven arrived at Castle Rock to inform him that he had been chosen for the king's guard. He was commanded to present himself to the king during the great tourney at Harrenhal to say his vows and don his cloak. Jamie's investiture freed him from Lysatoli. Elsewise, nothing went as planned. His father had never been more furious. He could not object openly. Cersei had judged that correctly, but he resigned the handship on some thin pretext and returned to Castley Rock, taking his daughter with him. Instead of being together, Cersei and Jamie just changed places, and he found himself alone at court, guarding a mad king, while four lesser men took their turns dancing on knives in his father's ill-fitting shoes. So swiftly did the hands rise and fall that Jamie remembered their heldry better than their faces. The Horn of Plenty hand and the Dancing Griffin's hand had both been exiled. The Mason Dagger hand dipped in wildfire and burned alive. Lord Russart had been the last. His sigil had been a burning torch, an unfortunate choice, given the fate of his predecessor, but the alchemist had been elevated largely because he shared the king's passion for fire. I ought to have drowned Rossard instead of gutting him. Brian was still awaiting his answer. Jamie said, You are not old enough to have known Ares Targaryen. She would not hear it. Ares was mad and cruel. No one has ever denied that. He was still king, crowned and anointed, and you had sworn to protect him. I know what I swore. And what you did. She loomed above him, six feet of freckled, frowning, horse-toothed disapproval. Yes, and what you did as well. We're both kingslayers here, 
if what I've heard is true. I never arm Renly. I'll kill the man who says I did. Best start with Cleos, then, and you'll have a deal of killing to do after that, the way he tells a tale. Lies! Lady Catelyn was there when his grace was murdered. She saw. There was a shadow. The candles guttered, and the air grew cold, and there was blood. <laughs> Very good, <laughs> Jamie laughed. Your wits are quicker than mine, I, I confess it. When they found me standing over my dead king, I never thought to say, No, no, it wasn't me, it was a shadow, a terrible cold shadow. <laughs> he laughed again. Tell me true, one kingslayer to another, did the Starks pay you to slit his throat, or was it Stannis? Had Renly spurned you? Was that the way of it? Or perhaps your moon's blood was on you? Never give a wench a sword when she's bleeding. For a moment Jamie thought Brian might strike him. A step closer, and I'll snatch that dagger from her sheath and bury it up her womb. He gathered a leg under him, ready to spring, but the wench did not move. It is a rare and precious gift to be a knight, she said, and even more so a knight of the king's guard. It is a gift given to few, a gift you scorned and soiled. A gift you want desperately, wench, and can never have. I earned my knighthood. Nothing was given to me. I won a tawny melee at thirteen, when I was yet a squire. At fifteen, I rode with Sir Arthur Dane against the King's Wood Brotherhood, and he knighted me on the battlefield. It was that white cloak that soiled me, not the other way around. So spare me your envy. It was the gods who neglected to give you a cock, not me. The look Brian gave him was full of loathing. She would gladly hack me to pieces, but for her precious vow, he reflected. Good. I've had enough her feeble pieties and maiden's judgments. The wench stalked off without saying a word. Jamie curled up beneath his cloak, hoping to dream of Circe. But when he closed his eyes, it was Ares Targaryen he saw, pacing alone in his throne room, picking at his scabbed and bleeding hands. The fool was always cutting himself on the blades and barbs of the Iron Throne. Jamie had slipped in through the king's door, clad in his golden armor, sword in hand. The golden armor, not the white, but no one ever remembers that. Would that I had taken off that damn cloak as well. When Ares saw the blood in his blade, he demanded to know if it was Lord Tywin's. I want him dead, the traitor. I want his head. You'll bring me his head, or you'll burn with all the rest. All the traitors, Rossart says, they are inside the walls. He's gone to make them a warm welcome. Whose blood? Whose? Rossart's, answered Jamie. Those purple eyes grew huge then, and the royal mouth drooped open in shock. He lost control of his bowels, turned, and ran for the Iron Throne. Beneath the empty eyes of the skulls on the walls, Jamie hauled the last dragon king bodily off the steps, squealing like a pig and smelling like a privy. A single slash across his throat was all it took to end it. So easy, he remembered thinking. 
A king should die harder than this. Rossart at least tried to make a fight of it, though if truth be told, he fought like an alchemist. Queer they never ask who killed Rossard, but of course he was no one, low-born, hand for a fortnight, just another mad fancy of the mad king. Sir Ellis Westerling and Lord Craighall and others of his father's knights burst into the hall in time to see the last of it, so there was no way for Jamie to vanish and let some braggart steal the praise or blame. It would be blame, he knew at once, when he saw the way they looked at him, though perhaps that was fear. Lannister or no, he was one of Ares Seven. The castle is ours, sir, and the city, Roland Craighall told him, which was half true. Targaryen loyalists were still dying on the Serpentine Steps and in the armory. Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch were scaling the walls of Magar's Holfast, and Ned Stark was leading his northmen through the King's Gate even then. But Craighall could not have known that. He had not seemed surprised to find Ares slain. Jaime had been Lord Tywin's son long before he had been named to the King's Guard. "'Tell them the Mad King is dead,' he commanded. "'Spare all those who yield, and hold them captive. "'Shall I proclaim a new king as well?' Craighall asked, and Jamie read the question plain. Shall it be your father, or Robert Baratheon, or do you mean to try to make a new dragon king? He thought for a moment of the boy Viserys, fled to Dragonstone, and of Rhaegar's infant son, Aegon, still in Magor's with his mother. A new Targaryen king, and my father's hand. How the wolves will howl! and the storm-lords choke with rage. For a moment he was tempted, until he glanced down again at the body on the floor, in its spreading pool of blood. His blood is in both of them, he thought. Proclaim who you bloody well like, he told Craycall. Then he climbed the iron throne, and seated himself with his sword across his knees to see who would come to claim the kingdom. As it happened, it had been Eddard Stark. You had no right to judge me either, Stark. In his dreams, the dead came burning, gowned in swirling green flames. Jamie danced around them with a golden sword, but for every one he struck down, two more arose to take his place. Brian woke him with a boot in the ribs. The world was still black and it had begun to rain. They broke their fast on oat cakes, salt fish, and some blackberries that Sir Cleos had found, and were back in the saddle before the sun came up. Tyrion The eunuch was humming tunelessly to himself as he came through the door, dressed in flowing robes of peach-coloured silk and smelling of lemons. When he saw Tyrion seated by the hearth, he stopped and grew very still. My lord Tyrion came out in a squeak, punctuated by a nervous giggle. So you do remember me. I had begun to wonder. It is so very good to see you looking so strong and well, 
Varys smiled his slimiest smile. Though I confess I had not thought to find you in mine own humble chambers. They are humble, excessively so in truth. Tyrion had waited until Varys was summoned by his father before slipping in to pay him a visit. The eunuch's apartments were sparse and small, three snug windowless chambers under the north wall. I'd hoped to discover bushel baskets of juicy secrets to while away the waiting, but there's not a paper to be found. He'd search for hidden passages, too, knowing the spider must have ways of coming and going unseen, but those had proved equally elusive. There was water in your flagon. God's have mercy, he went on. Your sleeping cell is no wider than a coffin, and that bed, is it actually made of stone, or does it only feel that way? Varys closed the door and barred it. I am plagued with backaches, my lord, and prefer to sleep upon a hard surface. I would have taken you for a feather bed man. I am full of surprises. Are you cross with me for abandoning you after the battle? It made me think of you as one of my family. It was not for want of love, my good lord. I have such a delicate disposition, and your scar is so dreadful to look upon. Ugh. He gave an exaggerated shudder. Your poor nose. Tyrion rubbed irritably at the scab. Perhaps I should have a new one made of gold. What sort of nose would you suggest, Varys? One like yours to smell out secrets? Or should I tell the goldsmith that I want my father's nose? He smiled. My noble father labors so diligently that I scarce see him any more. Tell me, is it true that he is restoring Grand Maester Pycelle to the small council? It is, my lord. Do I have my sweet sister to thank for that? Pycelle had been his sister's creature. Tyrion had stripped the man of office, beard, and dignity, and flung him down into a black cell. Not at all, my lord. Thank the archmaesters of Old Town, those who wish to insist on Pycelle's restoration, on the grounds that only the conclave may make or unmake a grand maester. Bloody fools, thought Tyrion. I seem to recall that Magor the Cruel's headsman unmade three with his axe. Quite true, Varys said, and the second, Aegon, fed Grand Maester Gerardis to his dragon. Alas, I am quite dragonless. I suppose I could have dipped Pycelle in wildfire and set him ablaze. Would the Citadel have preferred that? Well, it would have been more in keeping with tradition, <laughs> the eunuch tittered. Thankfully, wiser heads prevailed, and the conclave accepted the fact of Pycelle's dismissal and set about choosing his successor. 
after giving due consideration to Master Turquin, the Cordwain's son, and Master Eric, the Hedge Knight's bastard, and thereby demonstrating to their own satisfaction that ability counts for more than birth in their order, the Conclave was on the verge of sending us Master Gorman, a Tyrell of Highgarden, when I told your lord father, he acted at once. The conclave met in Old Town behind closed doors, Turin knew. Its deliberations were supposedly a secret. So Varius has little birds in the citadel, too. I see. So my father decided to nip the rose before it bloomed. He had to chuckle. Pysel is a toad. But better a Lannister toad than a Tyrell toad, no? Grand Maester Pycelle has always been a good friend to your house, Varys said sweetly. Perhaps it will console you to learn that Sir Boris Blunt is also being restored. Cersei had stripped Sir Boris of his white cloak for failing to die in the defence of Prince Tommen, when Bronn had seized the boy on the Rosby Road. The man was no friend of Tyrion's, but after that he likely hated Cersei almost as much. I suppose that's something. Blunt is a blustering coward, he said amiably. Is he? Oh, dear. Still, the knights of the King's Guard do serve for life, traditionally. Perhaps Sir Boris will prove braver in future. He will, no doubt, remain very loyal. To my father, said Tyrion pointedly, while we're on the subject of the King's Guard, I wonder, could this delightfully unexpected visit of yours happen to concern Sir Boris's fallen brother, the gallant Sir Mandon Moore? The eunuch stroked a powdered cheek. Your man, Bronn, seems most interested in him of late. Bronn had turned up all he could on Sir Mandon, but no doubt Varys knew a deal more, should he choose to share it. The man seems to have been quite friendless, Tyrion said carefully. Sadly, said Varys, oh, sadly. You might find some kin if you turned over enough stones back in the vale, but here Lord Aaron brought him to King's Landing, and Robert gave him his white cloak, but neither loved him much, I fear, nor was he the sort the small folk cheer in the tawnies, despite his undoubted prowess. Why, even his brothers of the King's Guard never warmed to him. Sir Barristan was once heard to say that the man had no friend but his sword and no life but duty. But, you know, I do think Selby meant it altogether as praise, which is queer when you consider it, is it not? Those are the very qualities we seek in our King's Guard, it could be said. Men who live not for themselves, but for their king. By those lights, our brave Shemendon was the perfect white knight, and he died as a knight of the king's guard ought, with sword in hand, defending one of the king's own blood. 
The eunuch gave him a slimy smile and watched him sharply. Trying to murder one of the king's own blood, you mean? Tyrion wondered if Varys knew rather more than he was saying. Nothing he'd just heard was new to him. Bronn had brought back much the same reports. He needed a link to Cersei, some sign that Sir Mandon had been his sister's cat's paw. What we want is not always what we get, he reflected bitterly, which reminded him. It is not Sir Mandon who brings me here. Look to be sure, the eunuch crossed the room to his flagon of water. May I serve you, my lord? he asked as he filled a cup. Yes, but not with water. He folded his hands together. I want you to bring me Shay. Varius took a drink. Is that wise, my lord? The dear, sweet child. It would be such a shame if your father hanged her. It did not surprise him that Varius knew. No, it's not wise. It's bloody madness. I want to see her one last time before I send her away. I cannot abide having her so close. I understand. How could you? Tyrion had seen her only yesterday, climbing the serpentine steps with a pail of water. He had watched as a young knight had offered to carry the heavy pail. The way she had touched his arm and smiled for him had tied Tyrion's guts into knots. They passed within inches of each other, him descending and her climbing, so close that he could smell the clean, fresh scent of her hair. "'My lord,' she said to him, with a little curtsy, and he wanted to reach out and grab her and kiss her right there, but all he could do was nod stiffly and waddle on past. "'I've seen her several times,' he told Varys, "'but I dare not speak to her. I suspect that all my movements are being watched. "'You are wise to suspect, sir, my good lord.' Who? He cocked his head. The Kettleblacks report frequently to your sweet sister. When I think of how much coin I paid those wretched... Do you think there's any chance that more gold might win them away from Cersei? There's always a chance, but I should not care to wager on the likelihood. They are knights now, all three, and your sister has promised them further advancement. A wicked little titter burst from the eunuch's lips. And the eldest, <laughs> Sir Osmond of the King's Guard, dreams of certain other favors as well. You can match the queen, coin for coin, I have no doubt, but she has a second purse. That is quite inexhaustible. Seven L's, thought Tyrion. Are you suggesting that Cersei's fucking Usman Kettleblack? Oh, dear, we know that will be dreadfully dangerous, don't you think? No, the Queen only hints. Perhaps on the morrow, or when the wedding's done, and then a smile, a whisper, a ribald jest. A breast brushing lightly across his sleeve as they pass, and yet it seems to serve. But what would a eunuch know of such things? The tip of his tongue ran across his lower lip like a shy pink animal. 
If I could somehow push them beyond sly fondling, arrange for father to catch them a bed together. Tyrion fingered the scab on his nose. He did not see how it could be done, but perhaps some plan would come to him later. Are the Kettleblacks the only ones? Would they were true, my lord. I fear there are many eyes upon you. You are, shall we say, conspicuous, and not well loved. It grieves me to tell you. Janus Slint's sons would gladly inform on you to avenge their father, and our sweet Lord Tatar has friends in half the brothels of King's Landing. Should you be so unwise as to visit any of them, he will know at once, and your Lord Father soon thereafter. It's even worse than I feared. And my father? Who does he have spying on me? This time the eunuch laughed aloud. <laughs> Why, me, my lord? Tyrion laughed as well. He was not so great a fool as to trust Varys any further than he had to, but the eunuch already knew enough about Shay to get her well and thoroughly hanged. You will bring Shay to me through the walls, hidden from all these eyes, as you have done before. Varys wrung his hands. Oh, my lord, nothing would please me more, but King Magor wanted no rats in his own walls, hmm? If you take my meaning, he did require a means of secret egress, should he ever be trapped by his enemies, but that door does not connect with any other passages. I can steal your share away from Lady Lolly's for a time, to be sure, but I have no way to bring her to your bedchamber without us being seen. Then bring her somewhere else. But where? There's no safe place. There is, Tyrion grinned, here. It's time to put that rock-hard bed of yours to better use, I think. The eunuch's mouth opened. Then he giggled. <laughs> Lolly's tires easily these days. She's great with a child. I imagine she will be safely asleep by moonrise. Tyrion hopped down from the chair. Moonrise, then. See that you lay in some wine and two clean cups. Varys bowed. It shall be as my lord commands. The rest of the day seemed to creep by as slow as a worm in molasses. Tyrion climbed to the castle library and tried to distract himself with Beldicar's history of the Rhoynish Wars, but he could hardly see the elephants for imagining Shay's smile. Come the afternoon, he put the book aside and called for a bath. He scrubbed himself until the water grew cool, and then had Pod even out his whiskers. His beard was a trial to him, a tangle of yellow, white, and black hairs, patchy and coarse. It was seldom less than unsightly, but it did serve to conceal some of his face, and that was all to the good. When he was as clean and pink and trimmed as he was like to get, Tyrion looked over his wardrobe and chose a pair of tight satin breeches in Lannister crimson and his best doublet, the heavy black velvet with the lion's head studs. 
he would have done his chain of golden hands as well, if his father hadn't stolen it while he lay dying. It was not until he was dressed that he realized the depths of his folly. Seven hells, dwarf! Did you lose all your sense along with your nose? Anyone who sees you is going to wonder why you've put on your court clothes to visit the eunuch. Cursing, Tyrion stripped and dressed again in simpler garb, black woolen breeches, an old white tunic, and a faded brown leather jerkin. It doesn't matter, he told himself as he waited for moonrise. Whatever you wear, you're still a dwarf. You'll never be as tall as that knight on the steps, him with his long, straight legs and hard stomach and wide, manly shoulders. The moon was peeping over the castle wall when he told Podrick Payne that he was going to pay a call on Varys. "'Will you be long, my lord?' the boy asked. "'Oh, I hope so.' With the red keep so crowded, Tyrion could not hope to go unnoticed. Sir Balan Swan stood guard on the door, Sir Loras Tyrell on the drawbridge. He stopped to exchange pleasantries with both of them. It was strange to see the Knight of Flowers, all in white, when before he had always been as colourful as a rainbow. "'How old are you, Sir Loras?' Tyrion asked him. Seventeen, my lord.' Seventeen and beautiful, and already a legend. Half the girls in the Seven Kingdoms want to bed him, and all the boys want to be him. If you will pardon my asking, sir, why would anyone choose to join the King's Guard at seventeen? Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight took his vows at seventeen, Sir Loras said, and your brother Jamie was younger still. I know their reasons, but what are yours? The honour of serving beside such paragons as Merrin Trent and Boris Blunt? He gave the boy a mocking grin. To guard the king's life, you surrender your own. You give up your lands and titles, give up hopes of marriage, children. House Tyrell continues through my brothers, Sir Laura said. It is not necessary for a third son to wed or breed. Not necessary, but some find it pleasant. What of love? When the sun has set, no candle can replace it. Is that from a song? Tyrion cocked his head, smiling. Yes, you are seventeen. I see that now. Sir Loras tensed. Do you mock me? A prickly lad. No, if I've given offence, forgive me. I had my own love once, and we had a song as well. I loved a maid as fair as summer, with sunlight in her hair. He bid Sir Loras a good evening, and went on his way. Near the kennels a group of men-at-arms were fighting a pair of dogs. Tyrion stopped long enough to see the smaller dog tear half the face off the large one, and earned a few coarse laughs by observing that the loser now resembled Sandor Clegane. Then, hoping he had disarmed their suspicions, he proceeded to the north wall and down the short flight of steps to the eunuch's meagre abode. The door opened as he was lifting his hand to knock. Varys? Tyrion slipped inside. Are you there? A single candle lit the gloom, 
spicing the air with a scent of jasmine. My lord, a woman sidled into the light, plump, soft, matronly, with a round pink moon of a face and heavy dark curls. Tyrion recoiled. Is something amiss? she asked. Varys, he realized with annoyance. For one hurried moment I thought you'd brought me lollies instead of she. Where is she? Here, my lord. She put her hands over his eyes from behind. Can you guess what I'm wearing? Nothing. Oh, you're so smart. She pouted, snatching her hands away. How did you know? You're very beautiful in nothing. Am I? she said. Am I truly? Oh, yes. Then shouldn't you be fucking me instead of talking? We need to rid ourselves of Lady Varys first. I am not the sort of dwarf who likes an audience. He's gone, she said. Tyrion turned to look. It was true. The eunuch had vanished, skirts and all. The hidden doors are here somewhere. They have to be. That was as much as he had time to think before Shay turned his head to kiss him. Her mouth was wet and hungry, and she did not even seem to see his scar or the raw scab where his nose had been. Her skin was warm silk beneath his fingers. When his thumb brushed against her left nipple, it hardened at once. Hurry, she urged between kisses as his fingers went to his laces. Oh, hurry, hurry, I want you in me, in me, in me. He did not even have time to undress properly. Shea pulled his cock out of his breeches, then pushed him down onto the floor and climbed on top of him. She screamed as he pushed past her lips and rode him wildly, moaning, oh, My giant, my giant, my giant! Every time she slammed down on him, Tyrion was so eager that he exploded on the fifth stroke. But Shay did not seem to mind. She smiled wickedly when she felt him spurting and leaned forward to kiss the sweat from his brow. My giant of Lannister, she murmured. Stay inside me, please. I'd like to feel you there. So Tyrion did not move, except to put his arms around her. It feels so good to hold her, and to be held, he thought. How can something this sweet be a crime worth hanging her for? She, he said, sweetling, this must be our last time together. The danger is too great. If my lord father should find you, I'll light your scar, she traced it with her finger. It makes you look very fierce and strong. He laughed. Very ugly, you mean. My lord will never be ugly in my eyes. She kissed the scab that covered the ragged stub of his nose. It's not my face that need concern you. It's my father. He does not frighten me. Will my lord give me back my jewels and silks now? I asked Varys if I could have them when you were hurt in the battle, but he wouldn't give them to me. What would have become of them if you'd died? I didn't die. Here I am. I know, Shay wriggled atop him, smiling. Just where you belong. Her mouth turned pouty. 
But how long must I go on with lollies now that you're well? Have you been listening? Tyrion said. You can stay with lollies if you like, but it would be best if you left the city. I don't want to leave. You promised you'd move me into a manse again after the battle. Her cunt gave him a little squeeze, and he started to stiffen again inside her. A Lannister always pays his debts, you said. Shay, gods be damned, stop that. Listen to me. You have to go away. The city's full of Tyrells just now, and I am closely watched. You don't understand the dangers. Can I come to the king's wedding feast? Lollies won't go. I told her no one's like to rape her in the king's own throne room, but she's so stupid. When Shay rolled off, his cock slid out of her with a soft, wet sound. Simon says there'll be a singer's tawny and tumblers, even a fool's joust. Tyrion had almost forgotten about Shay's thrice-damned singer. How is it? You spoke to Simon. I told Lady Tender about him, and she hired him to play for lollies. The music calms her when the baby starts to kick. Simon says there's to be a dancing bear at the feast and wines from the arbor. I've never seen a bear dance. They do it worse than I do. It was the singer who concerned him, not the bear. One careless word in the wrong ear, and Shay would hang. Simon says there's to be seventy-seven courses and a hundred doves baked into a great pie. Shay gushed. When their crust opened, they'll all burst out and fly. After which they will roost in the rafters and rain down bird shit on the guests. Tyrion suffered such wedding pies before. The doves liked to shit on him especially, or so he had always suspected. Couldn't I dress in my silks and velvets and go as a lady instead of a maid servant? No one would know I wasn't. Everyone would know you weren't, thought Tyrion. Lady Tunder might wonder where Lolly's bedmaid found so many jewels. There's to be a thousand guests, Simon says. She'd never even see me. I'd find a place in some dark corner below the salt. But whenever you got up to go to the privy, I could slip out and meet you. She cupped his cock and stroked it gently. I won't wear any small clothes under my gown, so my lord won't even need to unlace me. Her fingers teased him up and down. Or, if he liked, I could do this for him. She took him in her mouth. Tyrion was soon ready again. This time he lasted much longer. When he finished, Shay crawled back up him and curled up naked under his arm. You'll let me come, won't you? Shay, he groaned, it is not safe. For a time she said nothing at all. Tyrion tried to speak of other things, but he met a wall of sullen courtesy as icy and unyielding as the wall he'd once walked in the north. God's be good, he thought wearily, as he watched the candle burn down and begin to gutter. How could I let this happen again after Taisha? Am I as great a fool as my father thinks? Gladly would he have given her the promise she wanted, and gladly walked her back to his own bedchamber on his arm,
to let her dress in the silks and velvets she loved so much. Had the choice been his, she could have sat beside him at Joffrey's wedding feast and danced with all the bears she liked. But he could not see her hang. When the candle burned out, Tyrion disentangled himself and lit another. Then he made a round of the walls, tapping on each in turn, searching for the hidden door. Shay sat with her legs drawn up and her arms wrapped around them, watching him. Finally she said, They're under the bed, the secret steps. He looked at her, incredulous. The bed? The bed is solid stone. It weighs half a ton. There's a place where Varys pushes, and it floats right up. I asked him how, and he said it was magic. Yes, Tyrion had to grin. A counterweight spell. Shea stood. I should go back. Sometimes a baby kicks and lollies wakes and calls for me. Varys should return shortly. He's probably listening to every word we say. Tyrion set the candle down. There was a wet spot on the front of his breeches, but in the darkness it ought to go unnoticed. He told Shay to dress and wait for the eunuch. I will, she promised. You are my lion, aren't you? My giant of Lannister? I am, he said. And you're... you're whore. She laid a finger to his lips. I know. I'd be your lady, but I never can. Else you'd take me to the feast. It doesn't matter. I like being a whore for you, Tyrion. Just keep me, my lion, and keep me safe. I shall, he promised. Fool, fool. The voice inside him screamed. Why did you say that? You came here to send her away. Instead, he kissed her once more. The walk back seemed long and lonely. Podrick Payne was asleep in his trundle bed at the foot of Tyrion's, but he woke the boy. Brun, he said. Sir Brun? Pod rubbed the sleep from his eyes. Oh, should I get him, my lord? Why no, he woke you up so we could have a little chat about the wee dresses, said Tyrion, but his sarcasm was wasted. Pod only gaped at him in confusion until he threw up his hands and said, Yes, get him, bring him, now. The lad dressed hurriedly and all but ran from the room. Am I really so terrifying? Tyrion wondered as he changed into a bedrobe and poured himself some wine. He was on his third cup and half the night was gone before Pod finally returned with a sellsword knight in tow. I hope the boy had a damn good reason dragging me out of Shatayas, Bron said as he seated himself. Shatayas, Tyrion said, annoyed. It's good to be a knight, no more looking for the cheaper brothels down the street, Bron grinned. Now it's Alayaya and Marai in the same feather bed with Sir Bron in the middle. Tyrion had to bite back his annoyance. Bronn had as much right to bed Alayaya as any other man, but still, I never touched her, much as I wanted to, but Bronn couldn't know that. He should have kept his cock out of her. 
He dare not visit Shatayas himself. If he did, Cersei would see that his father heard of it, and Yaya would suffer more than a whipping. He'd sent the girl a necklace of silver and jade and a pair of matching bracelets by way of apology. But other than that, this is fruitless. There is a singer who calls himself Simon Silvertongue, Tyrion said wearily, pushing his guilt aside. He plays for Lady Tander's daughter sometimes. What of him? Kill him, he might have said. But the man had done nothing but sing a few songs, and fill Shea's sweet head with visions of doves and dancing bears. Find him, he said instead. Find him before someone else does. Aria. She was grubbing for vegetables in a dead man's garden when she heard the singing. Aria stiffened, still as stone, listening, the three stringy carrots in her hand suddenly forgotten. She thought of the bloody mummers and Roos Bolton's men, and a shiver of fear went down her back. It's not fair, not when we finally found the trident, not when we thought we were almost safe. Only why would the mummers be singing? The song came drifting up the river from somewhere beyond the little rise to the east. Off to go down to see the fair maid, hey-ho, hey-ho! Aria rose, carrots dangling from her hand. It sounded like the singer was coming up the river road. Over among the cabbages, Hot Pie had heard it too, to judge by the look on his face. Gendry had gone to sleep in the shade of the burned cottage and was past hearing anything. I'll steal a sweet kiss with a point of my blade, hey-ho, hey-ho! She thought she heard a wood-harp, too, beneath the soft rush of the river. Do you hear? Hot Pie asked in a hoarse whisper, as he hugged an armful of cabbages. Someone's coming! Go wake Gendry, Aria told him. Just shake him by the shoulder. Don't make a lot of noise. Gendry was easy to wake, unlike Hot Pie, who needed to be kicked and shouted at. I'll make her my love and we'll rest in the shade. Hey-ho! Hey-ho! The song swelled louder with every word. Hot Pie opened his arms. The cabbages fell to the ground with soft thumps. We have to hide. Where? The burnt cottage and its overgrown garden stood hard beside the banks of the Trident. There were a few willows growing along the river's edge and reed beds in the muddy shallows beyond, but most of the ground hereabouts was painfully open. I knew we should never have left the woods, she thought. They'd been so hungry, though, and the garden had been too much a temptation. The bread and cheese they had stolen from Harrenhal had given out six days ago, back in the thick of the woods. Take Gendry and the horses behind the cottage, she decided. There was part of one wall still standing, big enough, maybe, to conceal two boys and three horses. If the horses don't whinny, and that singer doesn't come poking around the garden. What about you? I'll hide by the tree. He's probably alone. If he bothers me, I'll kill him. Go! Hot Pie went, and Arya dropped her carrots and drew the stolen sword from over her shoulder. She had strapped the sheath across her back. 
The longsword was made for a man grown, and it bumped against a gran when she wore it on her hip. It's too heavy besides, she thought, missing needle the way she did every time she took this clumsy thing in her hand. But it was a sword, and she could kill with it. That was enough. Lightfoot, she moved to the big old willow that grew beside the bend in the road, and went to one knee in the grass and mud, within the veil of trailing branches. You old gods, she prayed, as the singer's voice grew louder, you tree gods, hide me, and make him go past. Then a horse wickered, and the song broke off suddenly. He's heard, she knew, but maybe he's alone, or if he's not, maybe they'll be as scared of us as we are of them. Did you hear that? the man's voice said. There's something behind that wall, I would say. Aye, replied a second voice, deeper. What do you think it might be, Archer? Two, then. Arya bit her lip. She could not see them from where she knelt, on account of the willow, but she could hear. A bear, a third voice, or the first one again. A lot of meat on a bear, the deep voice said. A lot of fat as well, in fall. Good to eat, if it's cooked up right. Ah, could be a wolf, maybe a lion. With four feet, you think, or two. Makes no matter, does it? Not so as I know. Archer, what do you mean to do with all them arrows? Drop a few shafts over the wall. Whatever's hiding back there will come out quick enough. Watch and see. What if it's some honest man back there, though, or some poor woman with a little babe at her breast? An honest man would come out and show us his face. Only an outlaw would skulk and hide. Oi, that's so. Go on, and loose your shafts, then. Aria sprang to her feet. Don't! She showed them her sword. There were three she saw. Only three. Sirio could fight more than three, and she had Hot Pie and Gendry to stand with her. Maybe. But they're boys, and these are men. They were men afoot, travel-stained and mud-specked. She knew the singer by the wood harpy cradled against his jerkin, as a mother might cradle a babe. A small man, fifty by the look of him, he had a big mouth, a sharp nose, and thinning brown hair. His faded greens were mended here and there with old leather patches, and he wore a brace of throwing knives on his hip, and a woodman's axe slung across his back. The man beside him stood a good foot taller, and he had the look of a soldier. A longsword and dirk hung from his studded leather belt. Rows of overlapping steel rings were sewn onto his shirt, and his head was covered by a black iron half-helm shaped like a cone. He had bad teeth and a bushy brown beard, but it was his hooded yellow cloak that drew the eye, thick and heavy, stained here with grass and there with blood, frayed along the bottom and patched with deerskin on the right shoulder. The great cloak gave the big man the look of some huge yellow bird. The last of the three was a youth, as skinny as his longbow, if not quite as tall. Red-haired and freckled, he wore a studded brigantine, high boots, fingerless leather gloves, and a quiver on his back. 
His arrows were fletched with grey goose feathers, and six of them stood in the ground before him like a little fence. The three men looked at her, standing there in the road with her blade in hand. Then the singer idly plucked a string. Boy, he said, put up that sword now, unless you're wanting to be hurt. It's too big for you, lad, and besides, Angai here could put three shafts through you before you could hope to reach us. He could not, Arya said, and I'm a girl. So you are, the singer bowed. My pardons. You go on down the road. Just walk right past here, and you keep on singing, so we'll know where you are. Go away, and leave us be, and I won't kill you. The freckle-faced archer laughed. Lem, she won't kill us. Did you hear? I heard, said Lem, the big soldier with a deep voice. Child, said the singer, put up that sword, and we'll take you to a safe place and get some food in that belly. There are wolves in these parts, and lions, and worse things. No place for a little girl to be wandering alone. She's not alone. Gendry rode out from behind the cottage wall, and behind him Hot Pie leading her horse. In his chain-mail shirt, with a sword in his hand, Gendry looked almost a man grown and dangerous. Hot Pie looked like Hot Pie. Do like she says, and leave us be, warned Gendry. Two and three, the singer counted. And is that all of you? And horses, too, lovely horses. Where did you steal them? They're ours. Arya watched them carefully. The singer kept distracting her with his talk. But it was the archer who was the danger. If he should pull an arrow from the ground. Will you give us your names like honest men? The singer asked the boys. I'm Hot Pie, said Hot Pie at once. Ay, and good for you. The man smiled. It's not every day I meet a lad with such a tasty name. And what would your friends be called? Mutton chop and squab? Gendry scowled down from his saddle. Why should I tell you my name? I haven't heard yours. Well, as to that, I'm Tom of Seven Streams. But Tom Seven Strings is what they call me, or Thomas Evans. This great lout with the brown teeth is Lem, short for Lemon Cloak. It's yellow, you see, and Lem's a sour sort. <laughs> and young feller, me lad, over there is Angai, or Archer, as we like to call him. Now who are you? demanded Lem, in the deep voice that Arya had heard through the branches of the willow. She was not about to give up her true name as easy as that. Squab, if you want, she said. I don't care. The big man laughed. A squab with a sword, he said. Now there's something you don't often see. I'm the bull, said Gendry, taking his lead for Maria. She could not blame him for preferring bull to mutton chop. Tom Sevenstrings strummed his harp. Hot pie, squab, and the bull. Escape from Lord Bolton's kitchen, did you? How did you know? Arya demanded, uneasy. You bury sigil on your chest, little one. She had forgotten that for an instant. Beneath her cloak, she still wore her fine page's doublet with the flayed man of the dreadfort sewn on her breast. 
Don't call me little one. Why not? said Lem. You're little enough. I'm bigger than I was. I'm not a child. Children didn't kill people, and she had. I can see that, Squab. You're none of you children, not if you were Balkans. We never were. Hot Pie never knew when to keep quiet. We were at Hallenhall before he came, that's all. So you're lion cubs, is that the way of it? said Tom. Not that either, we're nobody's men. Whose men are you? Angai, the archer said, we're king's men. Arya frowned. Which king? King Robert, said Lem in his yellow cloak. That old drunk, said Gendry scornfully, is dead. Some boar killed him. Everyone knows that. Aye, lad, said Tom Sevenstrings, and more's the pity. He plucked a sad chord from his harp. Arya didn't think they were king's men at all. They looked more like outlaws, all tattered and ragged. They didn't even have horses to ride. King's men would have had horses. But Hot Pie piped up eagerly. We're looking for River Run, he said. How many days' ride is it, do you know? Arya could have killed him. You be quiet, or I'll stuff rocks in your big stupid mouth. River Run is a long way upstream, said Tom. A long, hungry way. Might be you'd like a hot meal before you set out. There's an inn not far ahead, kept by some friends of ours. We could share some ale and a bite of bread, instead of fighting one another. An inn? The thought of hot food made Arya's belly rumble, but she didn't trust this Tom. Not everyone who spoke you friendly was really your friend. It's near, you say? Two miles upstream, said Tom. A league at most. Gendry looked as uncertain as she felt. What do you mean, friends? he asked wearily. Friends? Have you forgotten what friends are? Sharner is the innkeep's name, Tom put in. She has a sharp tongue and a fierce eye. I'll grant you that, but her heart's a good one, and she's fond of little girls. I'm not a little girl, she said angrily. Who else is there? You said friends. Sharner's husband and an orphan boy they took in. They won't arm you. There's ale, if you think you're old enough. Fresh bread and maybe a bit of meat. Tom glanced towards the cottage. And whatever you stole from old Pate's garden besides. We never stole, said Arya. Are you old Pate's daughter, then? A sister? A wife? Tell me no lies, squab. I buried old Pate myself right there under that willow tree where you were hiding, and you don't have his look. He drew a sad sound from his harp. We've buried many a good man this past year, but we've no wish to bury you. I swear it on my harp. Archer, show her. The archer's hand moved quicker than Arya would have believed. His shaft went hissing past her head, within an inch of her ear, and buried itself in the trunk of the willow behind her. By then the bowman had a second arrow, notched and drawn. She'd thought she understood what Syria meant, by quick as a snake and smooth as summer silk, but now she knew she hadn't. The arrow thrummed behind her like a bee. "'You missed,' she said. "'More fool, if you think so,' said Angai. 
They go where I send them. That they do, agreed Lem Lemoncloak. There were a dozen steps between the archer and the point of her sword. We have no chance, Arya realized, wishing she had a bow like his and the skill to use it. Glumly, she lowered her heavy longsword till the point touched the ground. We'll come see this inn, she conceded, trying to hide the doubt in her heart behind bold words. You walk in front, and we'll ride behind, so we can see what you're doing. Tom Sevenstrings bowed deeply and said, Before, behind, it makes no matter. Come along, lads, let's show them the way. Angai, best pull up those arrows. We won't be needing them here. Arya sheathed her sword and crossed the road to where her friends sat on their horses, keeping her distance from the three strangers. Hot pie, get those cabbages, she said as she vaulted into her saddle, and the carrots too. For once he did not argue. They set off as she had wanted, walking their horses slowly down the rutted road a dozen paces behind the three on foot. But before very long, somehow they were riding right on top of them. Tom Seven Strings walked slowly and liked to strum his wood harp as he went. Do you know any songs? he asked them. I dearly love someone to sing with. That I would. Lem can't carry a tune, and our longbow lad only knows marcher ballads, every one of them a hundred verses long. We sing real songs in the marches, Angai said mildly. Singing is stupid, said Arya. Singing makes noise. We heard you a long way off. We could have killed you. Tom Smile said he did not think so. There are worse things than dying with a song on your lips. If there were wolves hereabout, we'd know it, grasped Lem. All lions, these are our woods. You never knew we were there, said Gendry. No, lad, you shouldn't be so certain of that, said Tom. Sometimes a man knows more than he says. Hot Pie shifted his seat. I know the song about the bear, he said. Some of it, anyhow. Tom ran his fingers down his strings. Then let's hear it, pie boy. He threw back his head and sang. A bear there was, a bear, a bear, all black and brown and covered with hair. Hot Pie joined in lustily, even bouncing in his saddle a little on the rhymes. Arya stared at him in astonishment. He had a good voice, and he sang well. He never did anything well, except bake, she thought to herself. A small brook flowed into the trident a little farther on. As they waded across, their singing flushed a duck from among the reeds. Angai stopped where he stood, unslung his bow, notched an arrow, and brought it down. The bird fell in the shallows not far from the bank. Lem took off his yellow cloak and waded in knee-deep to retrieve it, complaining all the while. "'Do you think Shana might have lemons down in that cellar of hers?' said Angai to Tom, as they watched Lem splash around, cursing. "'A Dornish girl once cooked me duck with lemons.' He sounded wistful. Tom and Hot Pie resumed their song on the other side of the brook, with the duck hanging from Lem's belt beneath his yellow cloak. Somehow the singing made the miles seem shorter. It was not very long at all, until the inn appeared before them, rising from the riverbank, where the trident made a great bend to the north. Arya squinted at it suspiciously as they neared.
It did not look like an outlaw's lair, she had to admit. It looked friendly, even homey, with its whitewashed upper story and slate roof and the smoke curling up lazy from its chimney. Stables and other outbuildings surrounded it, and there was an arbor in back, and apple trees, a small garden. The inn even had its own dock, thrusting out into the river. And— Gendry, she called, her voice low and urgent. They have a boat. We could sail the rest of the way up to River Run. It would be faster than riding, I think. He looked dubious. Did you ever sail a boat? You put up the sail, she said, and the wind pushes it. What if the wind is blowing the wrong way? Then there's oars to row. Against the current? Gendry frowned. Wouldn't that be slow? And what if the boat tips over and we fall into the water? It's not our boat anyway. It's the inn's. We could take it. Aria chewed her lip and said nothing. They dismounted in front of stables. There were no other horses to be seen, but Aria noticed fresh manure in many of the stalls. One of us should watch the horses, she said, wary. Tom overheard her. There's no need for that, Squab. Come eat. They'll be safe enough. I'll stay, Gentry said, ignoring the singer. You can come get me after you've had some food. Nodding, Arya set off after hot pie and lem. Her sword was still in its sheath across her back, and she kept a hand close to the hilt of the dagger she had stolen from Ruth Bolton, in case she didn't like whatever they found within. The painted sign above the door showed a picture of some old king on his knees. Inside was the common room, where a very tall, ugly woman with a knobbly chin stood with her hands on her hips glaring. "'Don't just stand there, boy,' she snapped, "'or are you a girl? Either one, you're blocking my door. Get in or get out. Lem, what did I tell you about my floor? You're all mud.' "'We shot a duck.' Lem held it out like a peace banner. The woman snatched it from his hand. And guy shot a duck, is that what you're meaning? Get your boots off, are you deaf or just stupid? She turned away. Husband! She called loudly. Get up here, the lads are back. Husband! Up the cellar steps came a man in a stained apron, grumbling. He was a head shorter than the woman, with a lumpy face and loose, yellowish skin that still showed the marks of some pox. I'm here, woman. Quit your bellowing. What is it now? Hang this, she said, handing in the duck. Angai shuffled his feet. We were thinking we might eat it, Shana, with lemons, if you had some. Lemons? And where would we get lemons? Does this look like dawn to you, you freckle fool? Why don't you part back to the lemon trees and pick us a bushel and some nice olives and bummy granites too? She shook a finger at him. Now, I suppose I could cook it with Lem's cloak, if you like, but not till it's on for a few days. You'll eat rabbit or you won't eat. Roast rabbit on a spit would be quickest if you got hunger. Or might be you'd like it stewed with ale and onions. Arya could almost taste the rabbit. 
We have no coin, but we bought some carrots and cabbages we could trade you. Did you now? And where would they be? Hot pie, give her the cabbages, Arya said, and he did, though he approached the old woman as gingerly as if she were Rorg or Biter or Vargo Hote. The woman gave the vegetables a close inspection, and the boy a closer one. Where is this hot pie? Here, me, it's my name, and she's a squab. Not under my roof. I give my diners and my dishes different names, so as to tell them apart. Husband? Husband had stepped outside, but at her shout he hurried back. Ye jok song! What is it now, woman? Wash these vegetables, she commanded. The rest of you sit down while I start the rabbits. The boy will bring you drink. She looked down her long nose at Arya and Hot Pie. I'm not in the habit of serving ale to children, but the cider's run out. There's no cows for milk, and the river water tastes of war, with all the dead men drifting downstream. If I served you a cup of soup full of dead flies, would you drink it? Harry would, said Hot Pie. I mean, squab. So would Lem, offered Angai with a sly smile. Never you mind about Lem. "'Sharna said, "'It's ale for all.' "'She swept off toward the kitchen. "'Angai and Tom Sevenstrings took the table near the hearth "'while Lem was hanging his big yellow cloak on a peg. "'Hot Pie plopped down heavily on a bench at the table by the door, "'and Arya wedged herself in beside him. "'Tom unslung his harp. "'A lonely inn on a forest road,' he sang slowly, picking out a tune to go with the words. The innkeep's wife was plain as a toad. Shut up with that now, or we won't be getting no rabbit. Lem warned him. You know how she is. Arya leaned close to Hot Pie. Can you sail a boat? she asked. Before he could answer, a thick-set boy of fifteen or sixteen appeared with tankards of ale. Hot Pie took his reverently in both hands, and when he sipped, he smiled wider than Arya had ever seen him smile. Ale, he whispered, and rabbit. Well, here's to his grace. Angai the archer called out cheerfully, lifting a toast. Seven, save the king. All twelve of them, Lem Lemoncloak muttered. He drank and wiped the foam from his mouth with the back of his hand. Husband came bustling in through the front door with an apron full of washed vegetables. "'There's strange arches in the stable,' he announced, as if they hadn't known. "'Aye,' said Tom, setting the wood-harp aside, "'and better horses than the three you gave away.' Husband dropped the vegetables on a table, annoyed. "'I never gave them away. I sold them for a good price, and got us a skiff as well. Anyways, you lot were supposed to get them back.' I knew they were outlaws, Arya thought, listening. Her hand went under the table to touch the hilt of her dagger and make sure it was still there. If they try to rub us, they'll be sorry. They never came our way, said Lem. Well, I sent them. They must have been drunk or asleep. Us drunk? Tom drank a long draught of ale. 
Never. You could have taken them yourself, Lem told husband. What, with only the boy here? I told you twice the old woman was up to Lamswold, helping that fern birth her babe, and like as not, it was one of you planted the bastard in the poor girl's belly. He gave Tom a sour look. You, I'll wager, with that harp of yours, singing all them sad songs just to get poor fern out of her small clothes. If a song makes a maid want to slip off her clothes and feel the good warm sun kiss her skin, why is that the singer's fault? asked Tom. And twas Angai she fancied besides. Can I touch your bow? I heard her ask him. Ooh, it feels so smooth and hard. Could I give it a little pull, do you think? Husband snorted. You and Angai makes no matter which... You're as much to blame as me for them horses. They was three, you know. What can one man do against three? Three, said Lem scornfully. But one a woman and t'other in chains. You said so yourself. Husband made a face. A big woman dressed like a man, and the one in chains, I didn't fancy the look in his eyes. And Guy smiled over his ale. When I don't fancy a man's eyes, I'll put an arrow through one. Arya remembered the shaft that had brushed by her ear. She wished she knew how to shoot arrows. Husband was not impressed. You be quiet when your elders are talking. Drink your ale and mind your tongue, or I'll have the old woman take a spoon to you. My elders talk too much, and I don't need you to tell me to drink my ale. He took a big swallow to show that it was so. Arya did the same. After days of drinking from brooks and puddles, and then the muddy trident, the ale tasted as good as the little sips of wine her father used to allow her. A smell was drifting out from the kitchen that made her mouth water, but her thoughts were still of that boat. Sailing it will be harder than stealing it, if we wait until they're all asleep. The serving boy reappeared with big round loaves of bread. Aria broke off a chunk hungrily and tore into it. It was hard to chew, though, sort of thick and lumpy, and burned on the bottom. Hot Pie made a face as soon as he tasted it. That's bad bread, he said. It's burned and tough besides. It's better when there's stew to sop up, said Lem. No, it isn't, said Angai, but you're less likely to break your teeth. You can eat it or go hungry, said husband. Do I look like some bloody baker? I'd like to see you make better. I could, said Hot Pie. It's easy. You needed the dough too much. That's why it's so hard to chew. He took another sip of ale and began talking lovingly of breads and pies and tarts, all the things he loved. Aria rolled her eyes. Tom sat down across from her. Squab, he said, or Harry, or whatever your true name might be, this is for you. He placed a dirty scrap of parchment on the wooden tabletop between them. She looked at it suspiciously. What is it? Three golden dragons. We need to buy those horses. 
Arya looked at him warily. There are horses. Meaning you stole them yourselves, is that it? No shame in that girl. War makes thieves of many honest folk. Tom tapped the folded parchment with his finger. I'm paying you handsome price. More than any horse is worth, if truth be told. Hot Pie grabbed the parchment and unfolded it. There's no gold, he complained loudly. It's only writing. Aye, said Tom, and I'm sorry for that, but after the war we mean to make that good. You have my word as a king's man. Arya pushed back from the table and got to her feet. You're no king's men. You're robbers. If you'd ever met a true robber, you'd know they do not pay, not even in paper. It's not for us we take your horses, child. It's for the good of the realm, so we can get about more quickly and fight the fights that need fighting, the king's fights. Would you deny the king? They were all watching her, the archer, big limb, husband, with his sallow face and shifty eyes, even Shana, who stood in the door to the kitchen, squinting. They are going to take our horses no matter what I say, she realized. We'll need to walk to River Run, unless— We don't want paper. Aria slapped the parchment out of Hot Pie's hand. You can have our horses for that boat outside, but only if you show us how to work it. Tom Sevenstrings stared at her for a moment, and then his wide, homely mouth quirked into a rueful grin. He laughed aloud. Angai joined in, and then they were all laughing. Lem, Lemon Cloak, Shana, and Husband, even the serving boy, who had stepped out from behind the casks with a crossbow under one arm. Arya wanted to scream at them, but instead she started to smile. Riders! Gentry's shout was shrill with alarm. The door burst open, and there he was. Soldiers! he panted. Coming down the river road! A dozen of them! Hot Pie leapt up knocking over his tankard, but Tom and the others were unperturbed. "'There's no cause for spilling good ale on my floor,' said Shana. "'Sit back down and calm yourself, boy. There's rabbit coming. You too, girl. Whatever harm's been done you, it's over, and it's done, and you're with King's men now. We'll keep you safe as best we can.' Arya's only answer was to reach over her shoulder for her sword, but before she had it halfway drawn, Lem grabbed her wrist. We'll have no more of that now. He twisted her arm until her hand opened. His fingers were hard with callous and fearsomely strong. Again, Arya thought, it's happening again, like it happened in the village with Chiswick and Raff and the mountain that rides. They were going to steal her sword and turn her back into a mouse. A free hand closed around her tankard and she swung it at Lem's face. The ale slushed over the rim and splashed into his eyes, and she heard his nose break and saw the spurt of blood. When he roared, his hands went to his face, and she was free. "'Run!' she screamed, bolting. But Lem was on her again at once, with his long legs that made one of his steps equal to three of hers. She twisted and kicked, but he yanked her off her feet effortlessly and held her dangling while the blood ran down his face. "'Stop it, you little fool!' he shouted, shaking her back and forth. "'Stop it now!' Gendry moved to help her, until Tom Sevenstrings stepped in front of them with a dagger. By then 
It was too late to flee. She could hear horses outside and the sound of men's voices. A moment later, a man came swaggering through the open door, a Tyroshi even bigger than Lem, with a great thick beard, bright green at the ends, but growing out grey. Behind came a pair of crossbowmen, helping a wounded man between them, and then others. A more ragged band Arya had never seen, but there was nothing ragged about the swords, axes, and bows they carried. One or two gave her curious glances as they entered, but no one said a word. A one-eyed man in a rusty pothelm sniffed the air and grinned, while an archer with a head of stiff yellow hair was shouting for ale. After them came a spearman in a lion-crested helm, an older man with a limp, a brave Vossi sellsword, a... Harwin, Arya whispered. It was. Under the beard and the tangled hair was the face of Hullen's son, who used to lead her pony around the yard, ride at Quinton, with John and Rob, and drink too much on feast days. He was thinner, harder somehow, and at Winterfell he'd never worn a beard, but it was him, her father's man. Harwin! Squirming, she threw herself forward, trying to wrench free of Lem's iron grip. It's me! she shouted. Harwin, it's me! Don't you know me? Don't you? The tears came, and she found herself weeping like a babe, just like some stupid little girl. Harwin, it's me! Harwin's eyes went from her face to the flayed man on her doublet. How do you know me? he said, frowning suspiciously. The flayed man? Who are you? Some serving boy to Lord Leech? For a moment she did not know how to answer. She'd had so many names. Had she only dreamed Arya Stark? I'm a girl, she sniffed. I was Lord Bolton's cup-bearer, but he was going to leave me for the goat, so I ran off with Gendry and Hot Pie. You have to know me. You used to lead my pony when I was little. His eyes went wide. Cards be good, he said in a choked voice. Arya underfoot? Lem let go of her. She broke my nose. Lem dumped her unceremoniously to the floor. Who in seven hells is she supposed to be? The hand's daughter. Harwin went to one knee before her. Arya Stark of Winterfell. Catelyn. Rob! She knew the moment she heard the kennels erupt. Her son had returned to River Run and Grey Wind with him. Only the scent of the great grey direwolf could send the hounds into such a frenzy of baying and barking. He will come to me, she knew. Edmure had not returned after his first visit, preferring to spend his days with Mark Piper and Patrick Malister, listening to Ryman the Rhymer's verses about the battle at the stone mill. Rob is not Edmure, though. Rob will see me. It had been raining for days now, a cold grey downpour that well suited Catelyn's mood. Her father was growing weaker and more delirious with every passing day, waking only to mutter, Tansy, 
and beg forgiveness. Edmure shunned her, and Sir Desmond Grail still denied her freedom of the castle, however unhappy it seemed to make him. Only at the return of Sir Robin Ryger and his men, foot-weary and drenched to the bone, served to lighten her spirits. They had walked back, it seemed. Somehow the Kingslayer had contrived to sink their galley and escape, Maester Vyman confided. Catelyn asked if she might speak with Sir Robin to learn more of what had happened, but that was refused her. Something else was wrong as well. On the day her brother returned, a few hours after their argument, she had heard angry voices from the yard below. When she climbed to the roof to see, there were knots of men gathered across the castle beside the main gate. Horses were being led from the stable, saddled and bridled, and there was shouting, though Catelyn was too far away to make out the words. One of Rob's white banners lay on the ground, and one of the knights turned his horse and trampled over the dire wolf as he spurred toward the gate. Several others did the same. Those are men who fought with Edmure on the fords, she thought. What could have made them so angry? Has my brother slighted them somehow? Given them some insult? She thought she recognized Sir Perwin Frey, who had traveled with her to Bitterbridge and Storm's End and back, and his bastard half-brother Martin Rivers as well, but from this vantage it was hard to be certain. Close to forty men poured out through the castle gates, to what end she did not know. They did not come back. Nor would Maester Vyman tell her who they had been, where they had gone, or what had made them so angry. I'm here to say to your father, and only that, my lady, he said. Your brother will soon be Lord of Riveron. What he wishes you to know, he must tell you. But now Rob was returned from the west, returned in triumph. He will forgive me, Catelyn told herself. He must forgive me. He is my own son, and Arya and Sansa are as much his blood as mine. He will free me from these rooms, and then I will know what has happened. By the time Sir Desmond came for her, she had bathed and dressed and combed out her auburn hair. King Rob has returned from the west, my lady, the knight said and commands that you attend him in the great hall. It was the moment she had dreamed of and dreaded. Have I lost two sons, or three? She would know soon enough. The hall was crowded when they entered. Every eye was on the dais, but Catelyn knew their backs. Lady Mormont's patched ringmail, the great John and his son looming over every other head in the hall. Lord Jason Malister, white-haired with his winged helm in the crook of his arm, Titus Blackwood in his magnificent raven-feather cloak. Half of them will want to hang me now. The other half may only turn their eyes away. She had an uneasy feeling that someone was missing, too. Rob stood on the dais. He is a boy no longer, she realized with a pang. He is sixteen now. A man grown. Just look at him. War had melted all the softness from his face and left him hard and lean. He had shaved his beard away, but his auburn hair fell uncut to his shoulders. The recent rains had rusted his mail 
and left brown stains on the white of his cloak and surcoat. Perhaps the stains were blood. On his head was the sword crown they had fashioned him of bronze and iron. He bears it more comfortably now. He bears it like a king. Edmure stood below the crowded dais, head bowed modestly as Rob praised his victory. Fell at the stone mill. Shall never be forgotten. Small wonder Lord Tywin ran off to fight Stannis. He'd had his fill of Northmen and Rivermen both. That brought laughter and approving shouts, but Rob raised a hand for quiet. Make no mistake, though, the Lannisters will march again, and there will be other battles to win before the kingdom is secure. The great John roared out, King in the North! and thrust a male fist into the air. The river lords answered with a shout of, King of the Trident! The hall grew thunderous with pounding fists and stamping feet. Only a few noted Catelyn and Sir Desmond amidst the tumult, but they elbowed their fellows, and slowly a hush grew around her. She held her head high and ignored the eyes. Let them think what they will. It is Rob's judgment that matters. The sight of Sir Brynden Tully's craggy face on the dais gave her comfort. A boy she did not know seemed to be acting as Rob's squire. Behind him stood a young knight in a sand-coloured surcoat blazoned with seashells, and an older one who wore three black pepper-pots on a saffron bend across a field of green and silver stripes. Between them were a handsome older lady and a pretty maid who looked to be her daughter. There was another girl as well, near Sansa's age. The seashells were the sigil of some lesser house, Catelyn knew. The older man's she did not recognize. Prisoners? Why would Rob bring captives onto the dais? Authorized Wayne banged his staff on the floor as Sir Desmond escorted her forward. If Rob looks at me as Edmure did, I do not know what I will do. But it seemed to her that it was not anger she saw in her son's eyes, but something else. Apprehension, perhaps. No, that made no sense. What should he fear? He was the young wolf, king of the Trident and the North. Her uncle was the first to greet her. As black a fish as ever, Sir Brynden had no care for what the others might think. He leapt off the dais and pulled Catelyn into his arms. When he said, "'It's good to see you home, Cut,' she had to struggle to keep her composure. "'And you?' she whispered. "'Mother!' Catelyn looked up at her tall, kingly son. "'Your Grace, I have prayed for your safe return. I had heard you were wounded.' I took an arrow through the arm while storming the crag, he said. It healed well, though. I had the best of care. The guards are good, then. Catelyn took a deep breath. Say it. It cannot be avoided. They will have told you what I did. Did they tell you my reasons? For the girls? I had five children. Now I have three. I, my lady... Lord Rickard Carstark pushed past the great John, like some grim spectre with his black mail and long, ragged grey beard, 
his narrow face pinched and cold. And I have one son who once had three. You have robbed me of my vengeance. Catelyn faced him calmly. Lord Rickard, the king says dying would not have bought life for your children. His living may buy life for mine. The lord was unappeased. Jamie Lannister has played you for a fool. You bought a bag of empty words no more. My Turin and my Eddard deserved better of you. Leave off, Castark, grumbled the great John, crossing his huge arms against his chest. It was a mother's folly. Women are made that way. A mother's folly? Lord Castark rounded on Lord Umber. I name it treason. Enough! For just an instant, Rob sounded more like Brandon than his father. No man calls my lady Winterfell a traitor in my hearing, Lord Rickard. When he turned to Catelyn, his voice softened. If I could wish the Kingslayer back in chains, I would. You freed him without my knowledge or consent. But what you did, I know you did for love, for Arya and Sansa, and out of grief for Bran and Rickon. Love's not always wise, I've learned. It can lead us to great folly. But we follow our hearts wherever they take us. Don't we, Mother? Is that what I did? If my heart led me into folly, I would gladly make whatever amends I can to Lord Carstark and yourself. Lord Rickard's face was implacable. Will your amends warm Torren and Eddard in their cold graves, where the Kingslayer laid them? He shouldered past the great John and Mage Mormont and left the hall. Rob made no move to detain him. Forgive him, mother. If you will forgive me, I have. I know what it is to love so greatly you can think of nothing else. Catelyn bowed her head. Thank you. I have not lost this child, at least. We must talk, Rob went on. You and my uncles, of this and other things. Stuart, call an end. Authorized Wayne slammed his staff on the floor and shouted the dismissal, and river lords and northerners alike moved toward the doors. It was only then that Catelyn realized what was amiss. The wolf. The wolf is not here. Where is Grey Wind? She knew the dire wolf had returned with Rob. She had heard the dogs, but he was not in the hall not at her son's side where he belonged. Before she could think to question Rob, however, she found herself surrounded by a circle of well-wishers. Lady Mormont took her hand and said, My lady, if Cersei Lannister held two of my daughters, I would have done the same. The great John, no respecter of proprieties, lifted her off her feet and squeezed her arms with his huge hairy hands. Your wolf pup maul the Kingslayer once. He'll do it again, if need be. Gorbart Glover and Lord Jason Malister were cooler, and Jonas Bracken almost icy, but their words were courteous enough. Her brother was the last to approach her. I pray for your girls as well, Cat. I hope you do not doubt that. Of course not. She kissed him. I love you for it. When all the words were done, the Great Hall of Riveron was empty, save for Rob, the three Tullys, and the six strangers Catelyn could not place. 
She eyed them curiously. My lady, sirs, are you new to my son's cause? New, said the younger knight, him of the seashells, but fierce in our courage and firm in our loyalties, as I hope to prove to you, my lady. Rob looked uncomfortable. Mother, he said, may I present the Lady Sybil, the wife of Lord Gawain Westerling of the Crag. The older woman came forward with solemn mien. Her husband was one of those we took captive in the Whispering Wood. Westerling, yes, Catelyn thought. Their banner is six seashells, white on sand, a minor house sworn to the Lannisters. Rob beckoned the other strangers forward, each in turn. Sir Rolf Spicer, Lady Sybil's brother, he was Castellan at the crag when we took it. The pepperpot knight inclined his head, a square-built man with a broken nose and a close-cropped grey beard. He looked doughty enough. The children of Lord Gawain and Lady Sybil, Sir Reynard Westerling, the seashell knight smiled beneath a bushy moustache. Young, lean, rough-hewn, he had good teeth and a thick mop of chestnut hair. Elenia, the little girl did a quick curtsy. Rolam Westerly, my squire. The boy started to kneel, saw no one else was kneeling, and bowed instead. The honour is mine, Catelyn said. Can Rob have won the crag's allegiance? If so, it was no wonder the Westlings were with him. Custly Rock did not suffer such betrayals gently, not since Tywin Lannister had been old enough to go to war. The maid came forward last, and very shy. Rob took her hand. Mother, he said, I have the great honour to present you the Lady Jane Westerling, Lord Gawain's elder daughter, and my, uh, um, my lady wife. The first thought that flew across Catelyn's mind was, No, that cannot be. You're only a child. The second was, And besides, you have pledged another. The third was, Mother, have mercy. Rob, what have you done? Only then came her belated remembrance. Follies done for love? He has bagged me neat as a hare in the snare. I see him to have already forgiven him. Mixed with her annoyance was a rueful admiration. The scene had been staged with a cunning worthy of a master mummer, or a king. Catelyn saw no choice but to take Jane Westling's hands. I have a new daughter, she said, more stiffly than she'd intended. She kissed the terrified girl on both cheeks. Be welcome to our hall and hearth. Thank you, my lady. I shall be a good and true wife to Rob, I swear, and as wise a queen as I can. Queen? Yes, this pretty little girl is a queen. I must remember that. She was pretty, undeniably, with her chestnut curls and heart-shaped face and that shy smile. Slender, but with good hips, Catelyn noted. She should have no trouble bearing children, at least. Lady Sybil took a hand before any more was said. We are honoured to, to be joined to Hastark, my lady, but we are also very wary. We have come a long way in a short time. Perhaps we might retire to our chambers. 
so you may visit with your son? That would be best. Rob kissed his Jane. The steward will find you suitable accommodations. I'll take you to him, Sir Edmure Tully volunteered. You are m most kind, said Lady Sybil. Must I go too? asked the boy Roland. I'm your squire. Rob laughed. But I'm not in need of squiring just now. Oh, his grace has gotten along for sixteen years without you, Roland, said Sir Reynold of the Seashells. He will survive a few hours more, I think. Taking his little brother firmly by the hand, he walked him from the hall. Your wife is lovely, Catelyn said, when they were out of earshot. And the westerlings seem worthy, though Lord Gawain is Tywin Lannister's sworn man, is he not? Yes, Jason Malister captured him in the Whispering Wood and has been holding him at sea guard for ransom. Of course I'll free him now, though he may not wish to join me. We wed without his consent, I fear, and this marriage puts him in dire peril. The crag is not strong. For love of me, Jane may lose all. And you, she said softly, have lost the phrase. His wince told all. She understood the angry voices now, why Perwin Frey and Martin Rivers had left in such haste, trampling Rob's banner into the ground as they went. Dare I ask how many swords come with your bride, Rob? Fifty, a dozen knights. His voice was glum, as well it might be. When the marriage contract had been made at the Twins, old Lord Walder Frey had sent Rob off with a thousand mounted knights and near three thousand foot. Jane is bright as well as beautiful, and kind as well. She has a gentle heart. It is swords you need, not gentle hearts. How could you do this, Rob? How could you be so heedless, so stupid? How could you be so, so very young? Reproaches would not serve here, however. All she said was, Tell me how this came to be. I took her castle, and she took my heart. Rob smiled. The crag was weakly garrisoned, so we took it by storm one night. Black Walder and the small John led scaling parties over the walls, while I broke through the main gate with a ram. I took an arrow in the arm just before Sir Rolf yielded us the castle. It seemed nothing at first, but it festered. Jane had me taken to her own bed, and she nursed me until the fever passed. And she was with me when the great John brought me the news of... of Winterfell, Bran, and Rickin. He seemed to have trouble saying his brother's names. That night she... she comforted me, mother. Catelyn did not need to be told what sort of comfort Jane Westling had offered her son. And you wed her the next day? He looked in her eyes, proud and miserable all at once. It was the only honourable thing to do. She's gentle and sweet, mother. She will make me a good wife. Perhaps that will not appease Lord Frey. I know, her son said, stricken. I've made a botch of everything but the battles, haven't I? I thought the battles would be the hard part, but... If I had listened to you and kept Theon as my hostage, I still rule the North, and Bran and Rickon would be alive and safe in Winterfell. 
Perhaps. Or not. Lord Balin might still have chanced war. The last time he reached for a crown, it cost him two sons. He might have thought it a bargain to lose only one this time. She touched his arm. What happened with the phrase? After you wed. Rob shook his head. With Sir Stevron, I might have been able to make amends, but Sir Ryman is dull-witted as a stone. And Blackwalder, <laughs> that one was not named for the colour of his beard, I promise you. He went so far as to say that his sisters would not be loath to wed a widower. I would have killed him for that, if Jane had not begged me to be merciful. You have done House Frey a grievous insult, Rob. I never meant to. Sir Stevron died for me, and Oliver was as loyal a squire as any king could want. He asked to stay with me, but Sir Ryman took him with the rest, all their strength. The great John urged me to attack them. Fighting your own in the midst of your enemies, she said, it would have been the end of you. Yes, I thought perhaps we could arrange other matches for Lord Walder's daughters. Sir Wendell Mandley has offered to take one, and the great John tells me his uncles wish to wed again. If Lord Walder will be reasonable— He is not reasonable, said Catelyn. He is proud and prickly to a fault. You know that. He wanted to be grandfather to a king. You will not appease him with the offer of two hoary old brigands and the second son of the fattest man in the Seven Kingdoms? Not only have you broken your oath, but you've slighted the honour of the twins by choosing a bride from a lesser house. Rob bristled at that. The Westerlings are better blood than the Freys. They're an ancient line, descended from the first men. The kings of the rock sometimes wed Westerlings before the conquest, and there was another Jane Westerling who was queen to King Magor three hundred years ago. All of which will only salt Lord Walder's wounds. It has always rankled him that older houses look down on the phrase as upstarts. This insult is not the first he's born to hear him tell it. John Aaron was disinclined to foster his grandsons, and my father refused the offer of one of his daughters for Edmure. She inclined her head toward her brother as he rejoined them. "'Your Grace,' Brynden Blackfish said, Perhaps we had best continue this in private. Yes, Rob sounded tired. I would kill for a cup of wine. The audience chamber, I think. As they started up the steps, Catelyn asked the question that had been troubling her since she entered the hall. Rob, where is Grey Wind? In the yard, with a haunch of mutton. I told the kennelmaster to see that he was fed. You always kept him with you before. A hall is no place for a wolf. He gets restless, you've seen, growling and snapping. I should never have taken him into battle with me. He's killed too many men to fear them now. Jane's anxious around him, and he terrifies her mother. And there's the heart of it, Catelyn thought. He is part of you, Rob. To fear him is to fear you. I'm not a wolf no matter what they call me. Rob sounded cross. Greywind killed a man at the crag, another at Ashmark, and six or seven at Oxcross. If you had seen— I saw Bran's wolf tear out a man's throat at Winterfell, she said sharply. 
and loved him for it. That's different. The man at the crag was a knight. Jane had known all her life. You can't blame her for being afraid. Grey Wynne doesn't like her uncle, either. He bears his teeth every time Sir Rolf comes near him. A chill went through her. Send Sir Rolf away. At once. Where? Back to the crag, so the Lannisters can mount his head on a spike? Jane loves him. He's her uncle. And a fair knight, besides. I need more men like Rolf Spicer, not fewer. I'm not going to banish him just because my wolf doesn't seem to like the way he smells. Rob. She stopped and held his arm. I told you once to keep Theon Greyjoy close, and you did not listen. Listen now. Send this man away. I'm not saying you must banish him. Find some task that requires a man of courage, some honourable duty. What it is matters not, but do not keep him near you. He frowned. Should I have Greywind sniff all my nights? There might be others who smell he mislikes. Any man Grey Wind mislikes is a man I do not want close to you. These wolves are more than wolves, Rob. You must know that. I think perhaps the gods sent them to us. Your father's gods, the old gods of the north. Five wolf pups, Rob. Five for five stark children. Six, said Rob. There was a wolf for John as well. I found them, remember? I know how many there were and where they came from. I used to think the same as you, that the wolves were our guardians, our protectors, until... Until? she prompted. Rob's mouth tightened. Until they told me that Theon had murdered Bran and Rickon. Small good their wolves did them. I'm no longer a boy, mother. I'm a king, and I can protect myself. He sighed. I will find some duty for Sir Rolf, some pretext to send him away, not because of his smell, but to ease your mind. You have suffered enough. Relieved, Catelyn kissed him lightly on the cheek before the others could come around the turn of the stair, and for a moment he was her boy again, not her king. Lord Huster's private audience chamber was a small room above the great hall, better suited to intimate discussions. Rob took the high seat, removed his crown, and set it on the floor beside him as Catelyn rang for wine. Edmure was filling his uncle's ear with the whole story of the fight at the stone mill. It was only after the servants had come and gone that the blackfish cleared his throat and said, <clears throat> I think we've all heard sufficient of your boasting, nephew. Edmure was taken aback. Boasting? What do you mean? I mean, said the blackfish, that you owe his grace your thanks for his forbearance. He played out that mama's farce in the great hall, so as not to shame you before your own people. Had it been me, I would have flayed you for your stupidity rather than praising this folly of the fords. Good men died to defend those fords, uncle, Edmure sounded outraged. What, is no one to win victories by the young wolf? Did I steal some glory meant for you, Rob? "'Your grace,' Rob corrected, icy. "'You took me for your king, uncle.' 
or have you forgotten that as well? The blackfish said, You were commanded to hold River Run, Edmure, no more. I held River Run, and I blooded Lord Tywin's nose. So you did, said Rob. But a bloody nose won't win the war, will it? Did you ever think to ask yourself why we remained in the West so long after Oxcross? You knew I did not have enough men to threaten Lannisport or Casterly Rock. Why? There were other castles, gold, cattle. You think we stayed for plunder? Rob was incredulous. Uncle, I wanted Lord Tywin to come west. We were all horsed, Sir Brynden said. The Lannister host was mainly foot. We planned to run Lord Tywin a merry chase up and down the coast, then slip behind him to take a strong defensive position athwart the gold road at a place my scouts had found where the ground would have been greatly in our favour. If he had come at us there, he would have paid a grievous price. But if he did not attack, he would have been trapped in the west a thousand leagues from where he needed to be. All the while, we would have lived off his land instead of him living off ours. Lord Stannis was about to fall upon King's Landing, Rob said. He might have rid us of Joffrey, the Queen, and the Imp in one red stroke. Then we might have been able to make a peace. Edmure looked from uncle to nephew. You never told me. I told you to hold River Run, said Rob. What part of that command did you fail to comprehend? When you stopped Lord Tywin on the Red Fork, said the Blackfish, you delayed him just long enough for riders out of Bitterbridge to reach him with word of what was happening to the east. Lord Tywin turned to his host at once, joined up with Mathis Rowan, and Randall Tarley neared the headwaters of the Blackwater, and made a forced march to Tumblers Falls, where he found Mace Tyrell and two of his sons waiting with a huge host and a fleet of barges. They floated down the river, disembarked half a day's ride from the city, and took Stannis in the rear. Catelyn remembered King Renly's court, as she had seen it at Bitterbridge. A thousand golden roses streaming in the wind, Queen Marjorie's shy smile and soft words, her brother, the knight of flowers, with a bloody linen around his temples. If you had to fall in a woman's arms, my son, why couldn't they have been Marjorie Tyrell's? The wealth and power of Highgarden could have made all the difference in the fighting yet to come, and perhaps Grey Wind would have liked the smell of her as well. Edmure looked ill. I never meant, never, Rob, you must let me make amends. I will lead the van in the next battle. For amends, brother, or for glory? Catelyn wondered. The next battle, Rob said. Well, that will be soon enough. Once Joffrey is wed, the Lannisters will take the field against me once more. I don't doubt. And this time the Tyrells will march beside them. And I may need to fight the Freys as well, if Black Walder has his way. So long as Theon Greyjoy sits in your father's seat, with your brother's blood on his hands, these other foes must wait, Catelyn told her son. Your first duty is to defend your own people, win back Winterfell, and hang Theon in a crow's cage to die slowly. Or else, 
put off that crown for good, Rob, for men will know that you are no true king at all. From the way Rob looked at her, she could tell that it had been a long while since anyone had dared speak to him so bluntly. When they told me Winterfell had fallen, I wanted to go north at once, he said, with a hint of defensiveness. I wanted to free Bran and Rickon, but I thought, I never dreamed that Theon could harm them, truly. If I had, it's too late for ifs and too late for rescues, Catelyn said. All that remains is vengeance. The last word we had from the north, Sir Roderick had defeated a force of iron men near Torren Square and was assembling a host at Castle Serwin to retake Winterfell, said Rob. By now he may have done it. There has been no news for a long time. And what of the trident? If I turn north, I can't ask the river lords to abandon their own people. No, said Catelyn. Leave them to guard their own, and win back the north with north men. How will you get the northmen to the north? Her brother Edmure asked. The iron men control the sunset sea. The Greyjoys hold Moat Caelan as well. No army has ever taken Moat Caelan from the south. Even to march against it is madness. We could be trapped on the causeway, with the ironborn before us and angry Freys at our back. We must win back the Freys, said Rob. With them, we still have some chance of success, however small. Without them, I see no hope. I'm willing to give Lord Walder whatever he requires. Apologies, honours, lands, gold. There must be something that would soothe his pride. Not something, said Catelyn. Someone. John. Big enough for you, Snowflake speckled Tormund's broad face, melting in his hair and beard. The giants swayed slowly atop the mammoths as they rode past two by two. John's garron shied, frightened by such strangeness, but whether it was the mammoths or their riders that scared him, it was hard to say. Even Ghost backed off a step, baring his teeth in a silent snarl. The dire wolf was big, but the mammoths were a deal bigger, and there were many and more of them. John took the horse in hand and held him still, so he could count the giants emerging from the blowing snow and pale mist that swirled along the milk water. He was well beyond fifty when Tormund said something, and he lost the count. There must be hundreds. No matter how many went past, they just seemed to keep coming. In old Nan's stories, giants were outsized men who lived in colossal castles, fought with huge swords, and walked about in boots a boy could hide in. These were something else, more bear-like than human, and as woolly as the mammoths they rode. Seated, it was hard to say how big they truly were. Ten feet tall, maybe, or twelve, John thought, maybe fourteen, but no taller. Their sloping chests might have passed for those of men, but their arms hung down too far, and their lower torsos looked half again as wide as their upper. Their legs were shorter than their arms, but very thick, and they wore no boots at all. Their feet were broad-splayed things, 
hard and horny and black. Neckless, their huge heavy heads thrust forward from between their shoulder blades, and their faces were squashed and brutal. Rats' eyes, no larger than beads, were almost lost within the folds of horny flesh, but they snuffled constantly, smelling as much as they saw. They're not wearing skins, John realized. That's hair. Shaggy pelts covered their bodies, thick below the waist, sparser above. The stink that came off them was choking, but perhaps that was the mammoths. And Joraman blew the horn of winter and woke giants from the earth. He looked for great swords ten feet long, but saw only clubs. Most were just the limbs of dead trees, some still trailing shattered branches. A few had stone balls lashed to the ends to make colossal mauls. The song never says if the horn can put them back to sleep. One of the giants coming up on them looked older than the rest. His pelt was grey and streaked with white, and the mammoth he rode larger than any of the others was grey and white as well. Tormund shouted something up to him as he passed, harsh, clanging words, in a tongue that John did not comprehend. The giant's lips split apart to reveal a mouth full of huge square teeth, and he made a sound half belch and half rumble. After a moment, John realized he was laughing. The mammoth turned his massive head to regard the two of them briefly, one huge tusk passing over the top of John's head as a beast lumbered by, leaving huge footprints in the soft mud and fresh snow along the river. The giant shouted down something in the same coarse tongue that Tormund had used. "'Was that their king?' asked John. "'Giants have no kings, no more than mammoths do, nor snow bears, nor the great whales of the grey sea.' That was Magma Tondorwag, Mag the Mighty. You can kneel to him if you like, he won't mind. I know your kneeler's knees must be itching for want of some king to bend to. Watch out he don't step on you, though. <laughs> Giants have bad eyes, and might be he wouldn't see some little crow all the way down there by his feet. What did you say to him? Was that the old tongue? Aye. I asked him... If that was his father he was forking, they looked so much alike, except his father had a better smell. And what did he say to you? Tormund Thunderfist cracked a gap-toothed smile. He asked me if that was my daughter riding there beside me with her smooth pink cheeks. <laughs> the wildling shook snow from his arm and turned his horse about. It may be he never saw a man without a beard before. Come, we start back. Mans grow sore wroth when I'm not found in my accustomed place. John wheeled and followed Tormund back toward the head of the column, his new cloak hanging heavy from his shoulders. It was made of unwashed sheepskins, worn fleece side in, as the wildling suggested. It kept the snow off well enough, and at night it was good and warm, but he kept his black cloak as well, folded up beneath his saddle. "'Is it true you killed a giant once?' he asked Tormund as they rode. Ghosts loped silently beside them, leaving poor prints in the new-fallen snow. "'Now why would you doubt a mighty man like me? It was winter, and I was half a boy, and stupid the way boys are. I went too far, 
and my horse died, and then a storm caught me, a true storm, not no little dusting such as this. Ah! I knew I'd freeze to death before it broke, so I found me a sleeping giant, cut open her belly, and crawled up right inside her. Kept me warm enough, she did, but the stink ne'er did for me. The worst thing was, she woke up when the spring come, and took me for a babe, suckled me for three whole moons before I could get away. Ah, there's times I miss the taste of giant's milk, though. If she nursed you, you couldn't have killed her. I never did. But see, you don't go spreading that about. Tormund Giant's Bane has a better ring to it than Tormund Giant's Babe, and that's the honest truth of it. So how did you come by your other names? John asked. Mans called you the Hornblower, didn't he? Mead King of Ruddy Hall, husband to bears, father to hosts. It was the Hornblowing he particularly wanted to hear about, but he dare not ask too plainly. And Jorriman blew the horn of winter and woke giants from the earth. Is that where they had come from? Them and their mammoths? Had Mance Raider found the horn of Joraman and given it to Thorman Thunderfist to blow? Are all crows so curious? asked Thorman. Well, here's a tale for you. It were another winter, colder even than the one I spent inside the giant, and snowing day and night, snowflakes as big as a head, not these little things. It snowed so hard the old village was half buried. I was in me ruddy hall, with only a cask of mead to keep me company, and nothing to do but drink it. The more I drank, the more I got to thinking about this woman lived close by, a fine, strong woman, with the biggest pair of tits she ever saw. She had a temper on her, that one. But, oh, she could be warm, too, and in the depth of winter a mad needs his warmth. The more I drank, the more I thought about her, and the more I thought, the harder me member got, till I couldn't suffer it no more. Fool that I was, I bundled myself up in furs from head to heels, wrapped a winding wool around me face, and set off to find her. The snow was coming down so hard, I got turned around once or twice, and the wind blew right through me and froze me bones, but finally I come on her, all bundled up like I was. The woman had a terrible temper, and she put up quite a fight when I laid hands on her. It was all I could do to carry her home and get her out of them furs. But when I did, oh, she was hotter even than I remembered, and we had a fine old time. And then I went to sleep. Next morning, when I woke, the snow had stopped, and the sun was shining. But I was in no fit state to enjoy it. All ripped and torn I was, and half my member bit right off. And there, on the floor, was a she-bear's pelt. And soon enough, the free folk were telling tales of this bald bear seen in the woods, with the queerest pair of cubs behind her. Ah! He slapped a meaty thigh. Would that I could find her again. She was fine to lay with, that bear. Never was a woman gave me such a fight, nor such strong sons neither. 
What could you do if you did find her? John asked, smiling. You said she bit your member off. Only half, and half my member is twice as long as any other man's, Tormund snorted. Now, as to you, is it true they cut your members off when they take you for the wall? No, John said, affronted. I think it must be true. Else, why refuse Ygritte? She'd hardly give you any fight at all, seems to me. The girl wants you in her. That's plain enough to see. Too bloody plain, thought John, and it seems that half the column has seen it. He studied the falling snow so Tormund might not see him redden. I am a man of the night's watch, he reminded himself. So why did he feel like some blushing maid? He spent most of his days in Egret's company, and most nights as well. Mans Raider had not been blind to Rattleshirt's mistrust of the crow come over. So after he had given John his new sheepskin cloak, he had suggested that he might want to ride with Tormund Giantsbane instead. John had happily agreed, and the very next day, Egret and Longspear Rick left Rattleshirt's band for Tormund's as well. Free folk raid with who they want, the girl told him, and we had a bellyful of bag of bones. Every night when they made camp, Egret threw her sleeping skins down beside his own, no matter if he was near the fire or well away from it. Once he woke to find her nestling against him, her arm across his chest. He lay listening to her breathe for a long time, trying to ignore the tension in his groin. Rangers often shared skins for warmth, but warmth was not all Egret wanted, he suspected. After that he had taken to using ghosts to keep her away. Old Nan used to tell stories about knights and their ladies who would sleep in a single bed with a blade between them for honour's sake, but he thought this must be the first time where a direwolf took the place of the sword. Even then Egret persisted. The day before last John had made the mistake of wishing he had hot water for a bath. Cold is better, she had said at once. If you've got someone to warm you up after, the river's only part ice yet. Go on. John laughed. You'd freeze me to death. Are all crows afraid of goose prickles? A little ice won't kill you. I'll jump in with you to prove it so. And ride the rest of the day with wet clothes, frozen to our skins? He objected. John Snow, you know nothing. You don't go in with clothes. I don't go in at all, he said firmly, just before he heard Tormund Thunderfist bellowing for him. He hadn't, but never mind. The wildling seemed to think Egret a great beauty because of her hair. Red hair was rare among the free folk, and those who had it were said to be kissed by fire, which was supposed to be lucky. Lucky it might be, and red it certainly was, but Egret's hair was such a tangle that John was tempted to ask her if she only brushed it at the changing of the seasons. At a lord's court, the girl would never have been considered anything but common, he knew. She had a round, peasant face, a pug nose, and slightly crooked teeth, and her eyes were too far apart. John had noticed all that the first time he'd seen her, when his dirk had been at her throat. Lately, though, he was noticing some other things. When she grinned, the crooked teeth didn't seem to matter, and maybe her eyes were too far apart, but they were a pretty blue-gray color, 
and lively as any eyes he knew. Sometimes she sang in a low, husky voice that stirred him, and sometimes, by the cook-fire, when she sat hugging her knees, with the flames waking echoes in her red hair, and looked at him just smiling, well, that stirred some things as well. But he was a man of the night's watch. He had taken a vow. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. He had said the words before the weirwood, before his father's gods. He could not unsay them. No more than he could admit the reason for his reluctance to torment Thunderfist, father to bears. Do you mislike the girl? Tormund asked him as they passed another twenty mammoths, these bearing wildlings in tall wooden towers instead of giants. No, but I... What can I say that he will believe? I am still too young to wed. Wed? Tormund laughed. Who spoke of wedding? In the south must a man wed every girl he beds? John could feel himself turning red again. She spoke for me when Rattleshirt would have killed me. I would not dishonor her. You're a free man now, and Egret is a free woman. What dishonor if you lay together? I might get her with child. Aye, I'd hope so. A strong son or a lively laughing girl kissed by fire, eh? Where's the arm in that? Words failed him for a moment. The boy, the, the child, would be a bastard. A bastard's weaker than other children. More sickly, more like to fail. No, but you bastard born yourself. And if Egret does not want a child, she will go to some woods witch and drink a cup of moon tea. You do not come into it once the seed is planted. I will not father a bastard. Tormund shook his shaggy head. What fools your kneelers be? Why did you steal the girl if you don't want her? Steal? I never— You did, said Tormund. You slew the two she was with and carried her off. What do you call it? I took her prisoner. You made her yield to you. Yes, but, Tormund, I swear, I, I've, I've never touched her. Are you certain they never cut your member off? Tormund gave a shrug, as if he would never understand such madness. Well, you're a free man now. But if you will not have the girl, best find yourself a she-bear. If a man does not use his member, it grows smaller and smaller, until one day he wants to piss and cannot find it. John had no answer for that. Small wonder that the seven kingdoms thought the free folk scarcely human. They have no laws, no honour not even simple decency. They steal endlessly from each other, breed like beasts, prefer rape to marriage, and fill the world with base-born children. Yet he was growing fond of Tormund Ginesbane, great bag of wind and lies though he was. Longspear as well. And Egret? No, I, I will not think about Egret. Along with the Tormunds and the Longspears, rode other sorts of wildlings, though, men like Rattleshirt and the Weeper, who would as soon slit you as spit on you. There was Harmer Dogshead, a squat keg of a woman, with cheeks like slabs of white meat, who hated dogs, and killed one every fortnight, 
to make a fresh head for her banner. Earless Stir, Magna of Then, whose own people thought him more god than lord. Varamir Sixkins, a small mouse of a man, whose steed was a savage white snow bear that stood thirteen feet tall on its hind legs. And wherever the bear and Varamir went, three wolves and a shadow cat came following. John had been in his presence only once, and once had been enough. The mere sight of the man had made him bristle, even as the fur on the back of Ghost's neck had bristled at the sight of the bear and that long black-and-white cat. And there were folks fiercer even than Varamir. From the northernmost reaches of the haunted forest, the hidden valleys of the Frostfangs, and even queerer places, the men of the frozen shore, who rode in chariots made of walrus bones, pulled along by packs of savage dogs, the terrible Ice River clans, who were said to feast on human flesh, the cave dwellers, with their faces dyed blue and purple and green. With his own eyes, John had beheld the Hornfoot men trotting along in columns on bare soles as hard as boiled leather. He had not seen any snarks or grumpkins, but for all he knew, Tormund would be having some to supper. Half the wilding host had lived all their lives without so much as a glimpse of the wall, John judged, and most of those spoke no word of the common tongue. It did not matter. Mansraider spoke the old tongue, even sang in it, fingering his lute and filling the night with strange, wild music. Mans had spent years assembling this vast, plodding host, talking to this clan mother and that magna, winning one village with sweet words and another with a song and a third with the edge of his sword, making peace between Harmer Dogshead and the Lord of Bones, between the Hornfoots and the Night Runners, between the walrus men of the frozen shore and the cannibal clans of the great ice rivers, hammering a hundred different daggers into one great spear aimed at the heart of the Seven Kingdoms. He had no crown nor scepter, no robes of silk and velvet, but it was plain to John that Man's Raider was a king in more than name. John had joined the wildlings at Corran Halfhand's command. Ride with them, eat with them, fight with them, the ranger had told him, the night before he died. And watch. But all his watching had learned him little. The half-hand had suspected that the wildlings had gone up into the bleak and barren frostfangs in search of some weapon, some power, some fell sorcery with which to break the wall. But if they had found any such, no one was boasting of it openly, or showing it to John. Nor had Mansraider confided any of his plans or strategies. Since that first night, he had hardly seen the man save at a distance. I will kill him, if I must. The prospect gave John no joy. There would be no honour in such a killing, and it would mean his own death as well. Yet he could not let the wildlings breach the wall to threaten Winterfell and the north, the Barrowlands and the Rills, White Harbour and the Stony Shore, even the Neck. For eight thousand years the men of House Stark had lived and died to protect their people against such ravagers and reavers. And, bastard-born or no, the same blood ran in his veins. Bran and Rickon, 
are still at Winterfell besides. Maester Lewin, Sir Roderick, Old Nan, Farlan the Kennelmaster, Micken at his forge, and Gage by his ovens, every one I ever knew, every one I ever loved. If John must slay a man he half admired and almost liked, to save them from the mercies of Rattleshirt and Harmer Dogshead and the earless Magnar Then, that was what he meant to do. Still he prayed his father's guards might spare him that bleak task. The host moved but slowly, burdened as it was by all the wildlings' herds and children and mean little treasures, and the snows had slowed its progress even more. Most of the column was out of the foothills now, oozing down along the west bank of the milk water like honey on a cold winter's morning, following the course of the river into the heart of the haunted forest. And somewhere close ahead, John knew, the fist of the first men loomed above the trees, home to three hundred black brothers of the Night's Watch, armed, mounted, and waiting. The old bear had sent out other scouts besides the half-hand, and surely Jarman Buckwell or Thorin Smallwood would have returned by now with word of what was coming down out of the mountains. Mormont will not run, John thought. He is too old. He has come too far. He will strike and damn the numbers. One day soon he would hear the sound of war horns and see a column of riders pounding down on them with black cloaks flapping and cold steel in their hands. Three hundred men could not hope to kill a hundred times their number, of course, but John did not think they would need to. He need not slay a thousand, only one. Mance is all that keeps them together. The king beyond the wall was doing all he could, yet the wildlings remained hopelessly undisciplined, and that made them vulnerable. Here and there, within the league's long snake that was their line of march, were warriors as fierce as any in the watch but a good third of them were grouped at either end of the column in Harmer Dogshead's van, and the savage rearguard with its giant's oryx and fire-flingers. Another third rode with Mance himself near the centre, guarding the wains and sledges and dog-carts that held the great bulk of the host's provisions and supplies, all that remained of the last summer harvest. The rest divided into small bands under the likes of Rattleshirt, Jarl, Tormund, Giantsbane, and the Weeper, served as outriders, foragers, and whips, galloping up and down the column endlessly to keep it moving in a more or less orderly fashion. And even more telling, only one in a hundred wildlings was mounted. The old bear would go through them like an axe through porridge. And when that happened, Mansmith gave chase with his centre to try and blunt the threat. If he should fall in the fight that must follow, the wall would be safe for another hundred years, John judged. And if not... He flexed the burnt fingers of his sword hand. Longclaw was slung to his saddle. The carved stone wolf's head pommel and soft leather grip of the great bastard sword within easy reach. The snow was falling heavily by the time they caught Tormund's band several hours later. Ghosts departed along the way, melting into the forest at the scent of prey. The dire wolf would return when they made camp for the night, by dawn at the latest. 
However far he prowled, Ghost always came back. And so, it seemed, did he regret. So, the girl called when she saw him, do you believe us now, John Snow? Did you see the giants on their mammoths? Ah! shouted Tormund before John could reply. The crow's in love. <laughs> he means to marry one. A giantess? Longspear Rick laughed. No! A mammoth! <laughs> Tormund bellowed. Ha! <laughs> Egret trotted beside John as he slowed his garron to a walk. She claimed to be three years older than him, though she stood half a foot shorter. However old she might be, the girl was a tough little thing. Stone Snake had called her a spear wife when they'd captured her in the Skirling Pass. She wasn't wed, and her weapon of choice was a short curved bow of horn and weirwood, but spear wife fit her all the same. She reminded him a little of his sister, Arya, though Arya was younger and probably skinnier. It was hard to tell how plump or thin Egret might be, with all the furs and skin she wore. Do you know the last of the giants? Without waiting for an answer, Egret said, You need a deeper voice than mine to do it proper. Then she sang, Oh, I am the last of the giants. My people are gone from the earth. Tormund Giantsbane heard the words and grinned. The last of the great mountain giants who ruled all the world at my birth, he bellowed back through the snow. Longspear Rick joined in, singing, Oh, the small folk have stolen my forests. They've stolen my rivers and hills. And they've built a great wall through my valleys and fished all the fish from my rills. Egret and Tormund sang back at him in turn in suitable gigantic voices. Tormund's sons, Toreg and Dormund, added their deep voices as well, then his daughter Munda and all the rest. Others began to bang their spears on leathern shields to keep rough time until the whole war band was singing as they rode, in stone halls they burn their great fires, in stone halls they forge their sharp spears. When I walk alone in the mountains, with no true companions but tears, oh, they hunt me with dogs in the daylight, they hunt me with torches at night. For these men who are small can never stand tall, while giants still walk in the light. Oh, I am the last of the giants, so learn well the words of my song. For when I am gone, the singing will fade, and the silence shall last long and long. There were tears on Egret's cheeks when the song ended. Why are you weeping? John asked. It was only a song. There are hundreds of giants. I've just seen them. Oh, hundreds, she said furiously. You know nothing, Jon Snow. You, John. John turned at the sudden sound of wings. Blue-gray feathers filled his eyes as sharp talons buried themselves in his face. Red pain lanced through him sudden and fierce as pinions beat around his head. He saw the beak but there was no time to get a hand up or reach for a weapon. John reeled backward. His foot lost the stirrup. 
his garron broke in panic, and then he was falling, and still the eagle clung to his face, its talons tearing at him as it flapped and shrieked and pecked. The world turned upside down in a chaos of feathers and horseflesh and blood, and then the ground came up to smash him. The next he knew, he was on his face, with the taste of mud and blood in his mouth, and Egrette kneeling over him protectively, a bone dagger in her hand. He could still hear wings, though the eagle was not in sight. Half his world was black. "'My eye!' he said in sudden panic, raising a hand to his face. "'It's only blood, Jon Snow. He missed the eye. Just ripped your skin up some.' His face was throbbing. Tormund stood over them, bellowing, he saw from his right eye, as he rubbed blood from his left. Then there were hoofbeats, shouts, and the clacking of old dry bones. "'Bag of bones!' roared Tormund. "'Call off your L-crow!' "'There's your L-crow!' Rattleshirt pointed at John, "'bleeding in the mud, like a faithless dog!' The eagle came flapping down to land atop the broken giant's skull that served him for his helm. "'I'm here for him!' "'Come, take him, then!' said Tormund, but best come with sword in hand, for that's where you'll find mine. Might be I'll boil your bones and use your skull to piss in. <laughs> Once I prick you and let the air out, you'll shrink down smaller than that girl. Stand aside, or man's will hear of this. Egret stood. What? Is it Mance who wants him? I said so, didn't I? Get him up. On those black feet. Tormund frowned down at John. Best go, if it's a manse who's wanting you. Egret helped pull him up. He's bleeding like a butchered boar. Look what Aurel did to his sweet face. Can a bird hate? John had slain the wildling Aurel, but some part of the man remained within the eagle. The golden eyes looked out on him with cold malevolence. "'I'll come,' he said. The blood kept running down into his right eye, and his cheek was a blaze of pain. When he touched it, his black gloves came away stained with red. "'Let me catch my garron. It was not the horse he wanted so much as ghost, but the dire wolf was nowhere to be seen. He could be leagues away by now, ripping out the throat of some elk. Perhaps that was just as well. The garron shied away from him when he approached, no doubt frightened by the blood on his face, but John calmed him with a few quiet words and finally got close enough to take the reins. As he swung back into the saddle, his head whirled. I will need to get this tended, he thought, but not just now. Let the king beyond the wall see what his eagle did to me. His right hand opened and closed, and he reached down for Longclaw, and slung the bastard's sword over a shoulder before he wheeled to trot back to where the Lord of Bones and his band were waiting. Egret was waiting too, sitting on her horse, with a fierce look on her face. I am coming too. Be gone! The bones of Rattleshirt's breastplate clattered together. Or you were sent for the crow come down, none other. A free woman rides where she will, Egret said. The wind was blowing snow into John's eyes. He could feel the blood freezing on his face. Are we talking or riding? 
Royden, said the Lord of Bones. It was a grim gallop. They rode two miles down the column, through swirling snows, then cut through a tangle of baggage wains to splash across the milk water where it took a great loop towards the east. A crust of thin ice covered the river shallows. With every step their horses' hooves crashed through until they reached the deeper water ten yards out. The snow seemed to be falling even faster on the eastern bank, and the drifts were deeper too. Even the wind is colder. And night was falling too. But even through the blowing snow, the shape of the great white hill that loomed above the trees was unmistakable. The fist of the first men. John heard the scream of the eagle overhead. A raven looked down from a soldier pine and quarked as he went past. Had the old bear made his attack? Instead of the clash of steel and the thrum of arrows taking flight, John heard only the soft crunch of frozen crust beneath his garron's hooves. In silence, they circled round to the south slope, where the approach was easiest. It was there at the bottom that John saw the dead horse, sprawled at the base of the hill, half buried in the snow. Entrails spilled from the belly of the animal like frozen snakes, and one of its legs was gone. Wolves, was John's first thought, but that was wrong. Wolves eat their kill. More garrons were strewn across the slope, legs twisted grotesquely, blind eyes staring in death. The wildlings crawled over them like flies, stripping them of saddles, bridles, packs, and armor, and hacking them apart with stone axes. Up! Rattleshirt told John. Mance is up top! Outside the ring wall they dismounted to squeeze through a crooked gap in the stones. The carcass of a shaggy brown garron was impaled upon the sharpened stakes the old bear had placed inside every entrance. He was trying to get out, not in. There was no sign of a rider. Inside was more and worse. John had never seen pink snow before. The wind gusted around him, pulling at his heavy sheepskin cloak. Ravens flapped from one dead horse to the next. Are those wild ravens, or our own? John could not tell. He wondered where poor Sam was now, and what he was. A crust of frozen blood crunched beneath the heel of his boot. The wildlings were stripping the dead horses of every scrap of steel and leather, even prying the horseshoes off their hooves. A few were going through packs they'd turned up, looking for weapons and food. John passed one of Chet's dogs, or what remained of him, lying in a sludgy pool of half-frozen blood. A few tents were still standing at the far side of the camp, and it was there they found Mance Raider. Beneath his slash cloak of black wool and red silk, he wore black ring mail and shaggy fur breeches, and on his head was a great bronze and iron helm with raven wings at either temple. Jarl was with him, and Harmer the dog's head, Stir as well, and Varamir Sixkins with his wolves and his shadow cat. The look Mans gave John was grim and cold. What happened to your face? Egret said. Orel tried to take his eye out. It was him, I asked, 
Has he lost his tongue? Perhaps he should, to spare us further lies. Stir the magna drew a long knife. The boy might see more clear with one eye instead of two. Would you like to keep your eye, John? asked the king beyond the wall. If so, tell me how many they were. And try and speak the truth this time, bastard of Winterfell. John's throat was dry. My lord, what? I am not your lord, said Mance. And the what is plain enough. Your brothers died. The question is, how many? John's face was throbbing. The snow kept coming down, and it was hard to think. You must not balk whatever is asked of you, Corrin had told him. The words stuck in his throat, but he made himself say, There were three hundred of us. Us? Man said sharply. Them. Three hundred of them. Whatever is asked, the half-hand said. So why do I feel so craven? Two hundred from Castle Black, and one hundred from the Shadow Tower. There's a truer song than the one you sang in my tent. Man's look to harm a dog's head. How many horses have we found? More than a hundred, the huge woman replied. Less than two. There's more dead to the east, under the snow, or to know how many. Behind her stood her banner-bearer, holding a pole with a dog's head on it, fresh enough to still be leaking blood. "'You should never have lied to me, John Snow,' said Mance. I, "'I—I I know that.' What could he say? The wilding king studied his face. "'Who had the command here? And tell me true. Was it Riker? Smallwood? Not Withers, he's too feeble. Whose tent was this?' I have said too much. You did not find his body? Harmer snorted, her disdain frosting from her nostrils. What fools these black crows be? The next time you answer me with a question, I will give you to my lord of bones, Mance Raider promised John. He stepped closer. Who led here? One more step, thought John. Another foot. He moved his hand closer to Longclaw's hilt. If I hold my tongue, reach up for that bastard sword, and I'll have your bastard head off before it clears the scabbard, said Mance. I'm fast losing patience with you, crow. Say it, Ygritte urged. He's dead, whoever he was. His frown cracked the blood on his cheek. This is too hard. John thought in despair. How do I play the turn cloak without becoming one? Corrin had not told him that. But the second step is always easier than the first. The old bear. That old man? Harmer's tone said she did not believe it. He came himself. Then who commands at Castle Black? Bowen Marsh. This time John answered at once. You must not balk. Whatever is asked of you. Mance laughed. If so, our war is won. Bowen knows a deal more about counting swords than he's ever known about using them. The old bear commanded, said John. This place was high and strong, and he made it stronger. He dug pits and planted stakes, laid up food and water. He was ready for. 
me, finished Mance Raider. Aye, he was. Had I been fool enough to storm this hill, I might have lost five men for every crow I slew, and still counted myself lucky. His mouth grew hard. But when the dead walk, walls and stakes and swords mean nothing. You cannot fight the dead, Jon Snow. No man knows that half so well as me. He gazed up at the darkening sky and said, The crows may have helped us more than they know. I'd wondered why we'd suffered no attacks. But there's still a hundred leagues to go, and the cold is rising. Varamir, send your wool sniffing after the whites. I won't have them taking us unawares. My lord of bones, double all the patrols, and make certain every man has torch and flint. Stir, Jarl, you ride at first light. Mance, Rattleshirt said, I want me some crow bones. Egret stepped in front of John. You can't kill a man for laying to protect them as was his brothers. They are still his brothers, declared Stir. They're not, insisted Egret. He never killed me, like they told him, and he slew the half-hand we all saw. John's breath misted the air. If I lie to him, he'll know. He looked Man's Raider in the eyes, opened and closed his burned hand. I wear the cloak you gave me, Your Grace. A sheepskin cloak, said Egret, and there's many a night we dance beneath it, too. Charles laughed, and even Harmer Dog's head smirked. Is that the way of it, Jon Snow? asked Mance Raider mildly. Her and you. It was easy to lose your way beyond the wall. John did not know that he could tell honor from shame any more, or right from wrong. Father, forgive me. Yes, he said. Mance nodded. Good. You'll go with Jarl and Stirl and the morrow then. Both of you. Far be it from me to separate two hearts that beat as one. Go where? asked John. Over the wall. It's past time you proved your faith with something more than words, Jon Snow. The Magna was not pleased. What do I want with a crow? He knows the watch, and he knows the wall, said Mance, and he knows Castle Black better than any raider ever could. You'll find a use for him, or you're a fool. Stir scowled. His art may still be black. Then cut it out. Mans turned to Rattleshirt. My lord of bones, keep the column moving at all costs. If we reach the wall before Mormont, we've won. They'll move. Rattleshirt's voice was thick and angry. Mans nodded and walked away. Harmer and six skins beside him. Varamir's wolves and Shadowcat followed behind. John and Egret were left with Jarl, Rattleshirt, and the Magna. The two older wildlings looked at John with ill-concealed rancor as Jarl said, You heard, we ride at daybreak. Bring all the food you can. There'll be no time to hunt. And have your face seen to, Crow. You look a bloody mess. I will, said John. You'd best not be lying, girl, Rattleshirt said to regret, his eyes shining behind the giant's skull. John drew Longclaw. Get away from us, unless you want what Corrin got. 
You got no wolf to help you here, boy. Rattleshirt reached for his own sword. Sure of that, I yeah. Egret laughed. Atop the stones of the ring wall, ghost hunched with white fur bristling. He made no sound, but his dark red eyes spoke blood. The Lord of Bones moved his hand slowly away from his sword, backed off a step, and left them with a curse. Ghost padded beside their garrons as John and Egret descended the fist. It was not until they were halfway across the milk water that John felt safe enough to say, I never asked you to lie for me. I never did, she said. I left out part is all. You said that we fuck beneath your cloak many a night. I never said when we started, though. The smile she gave him was almost shy. Find another place for ghosts asleep tonight, Jon Snow. It's like Mance said. Deeds is truer than words. Sansa A new gown, she said, as wary as she was astonished. More lovely than any you've worn, my lady, the old woman promised. She measured Sansa's hips with a length of knotted string. All silk and moorish lace with satin linings. You will be very beautiful. The queen herself has commanded it. Which queen? Marjorie was not yet Joff's queen, but she had been Renly's. Or did she mean the queen of thorns, or... The queen regent, to be sure. Queen Cersei? None other. She has honoured me with her custom for many a year. The old woman laid her string along the inside of Sansa's leg. Her grace said to me that you are a woman now, and should not dress like a little girl. Hold out your arm. Sansa lifted her arm. She needed a new gown, that was true. She had grown three inches in the past year, and most of her old wardrobe had been ruined by the smoke when she tried to burn her mattress on the day of her first flowering. Your bosom will be as lovely as the Queen's, the old woman said, as she looped her string around Sansa's chest. You should not hide it so. The comment made her blush. Yet the last time she'd gone riding, she could not lace her jerkin all the way to the top, and the stable boy gaped at her as he helped her mount. Sometimes she caught grown men looking at her chest as well, and some of her tunics were so tight she could scarce breathe in them. What color will it be? she asked the seamstress. Leave the colors to me, my lady. You will be pleased. I know you will. You shall have small clothes and hose as well, kirtles and mantles and cloaks, and all else befitting a, a lovely young lady of noble birth. Will they be ready in time for the king's wedding? Oh, sooner, much sooner. Her grace insists I have six seamstresses and twelve apprentice girls, and we have set all other work aside for this. Many ladies will be cross with us, but it was the Queen's command. Thank her grace kindly for her thoughtfulness, Sansa said politely. She is too good to me. Her grace is most generous, the seamstress agreed, as she gathered up her things and took her leave. But why, Sansa wondered when she was alone. It made her uneasy. I'll wager this gown is Marjorie's doing somehow, or her grandmother's. 
Marjorie's kindness had been unfailing, and her presence changed everything. Her ladies welcomed Sansa as well. It had been so long since she had enjoyed the company of other women, she had almost forgotten how pleasant it could be. Lady Leonette gave her lessons on the high harp, and Lady Janna shared all the choice gossip. Mary Crane always had an amusing story, and little Lady Bulwer reminded her of Arya, though not so fierce. Closest to Sansa's own age were the cousins Eleanor, Arla, and Mega, Tyrells from junior branches of the house. Roses from lower on the bush, quipped Eleanor, who was witty and willowy. Mega was round and loud, Arla shy and pretty. But Eleanor ruled the three by right of womanhood. She was a maiden flowered, whereas Mega and Arla were mere girls. The cousins took Sansa into their company as if they had known her all their lives. They spent long afternoons doing needlework and talking over lemon cakes and honeyed wine, played at tiles of an evening, sang together in the castle sept, and often one or two of them would be chosen to share Marjorie's bed, where they would whisper half the night away. Arla had a lovely voice, and when Cokes would play the wood harp and sing songs of chivalry and lost loves. Mega couldn't sing, but she was mad to be kissed. She and Alla played a kissing game sometimes, she confessed, but it wasn't the same as kissing man, much less a king. Sansa wondered what Mega would think about kissing the hound, as she had. He'd come to her the night of the battle, stinking of wine and blood. He kissed me and threatened to kill me and made me sing him a song. King Joffrey has such beautiful lips. Mega gushed, oblivious. Oh, poor Sansa, how your heart must have broken when you lost him. Oh, how you must have wept. Joffrey made me weep more often than you know, she wanted to say. But Butterbumps was not at hand to drown out her voice, so she pressed her lips together and held her tongue. As for Eleanor, she was promised to a young squire, a son of Lord Ambrose. They would be wed as soon as he won his spurs. He had worn her favour in the Battle of the Blackwater, where he'd slain a Moorish crossbowman and a Mullendore man-at-arms. Alan said her favour made him fearless, said Megan. He says he shouted her name for his battle cry. Isn't that ever so gallant? Some day I want some champion to wear my favour and kill a hundred men. Eleanor told her to hush, but looked pleased all the same. They are children, Sansa thought. They are silly little girls, even Eleanor. They've never seen a battle. They've never seen a man die. They know nothing. Their dreams were full of songs and stories, the way hers had been before Joffrey cut her father's head off. Sansa pitied them. Sansa envied them. Marjorie was different, though. Sweet and gentle, yet there was a little of her grandmother in her, too. The day before last, she'd taken Sansa hawking. It was the first time she'd been outside the city since the battle. The dead had been burned or buried, but the mudgate was scarred and splintered, where Lord Stannis's rams had battered it, and the hulls of smashed ships could be seen along both sides of the Blackwater, charred masts poking from the shallows like gaunt black fingers. The only traffic 
was the flat-bottom ferry that took them across the river, and when they reached the Kingswood, they found a wilderness of ash and charcoal and dead trees. But the waterfowl teemed in the marshes along the bay, and Sansa's Merlin brought down three ducks while Marjorie's peregrine took a heron in full flight. "'Willis has the best birds in the Seven Kingdoms,' Marjorie said, when the two of them were briefly alone. "'He flies an eagle sometimes. You will see, Sansa.' She took her by the hand and gave it a squeeze. "'Sister?' "'Sister?' Sansa had once dreamt of having a sister like Marjorie, beautiful and gentle, with all the world's graces at her command. Arya had been entirely unsatisfactory as sisters went. How can I let my sister marry Joffrey, she thought, and suddenly her eyes were full of tears. Marjorie, please, she said, you mustn't. It was hard to get the words out. You mustn't marry him. He's not like he seems. He's not. He'll hurt you. I shouldn't think so. Marjorie smiled confidently. It's brave of you to warn me, but you need not fear. Joffrey's spoiled and vain, and I don't doubt that he's cruel, as you say, but father forced him to name Loras to his king's guard before he would agree to the match. I shall have the finest knight in the Seven Kingdoms protecting me night and day, as Prince Aemon protected Nerys. So our little lion had best behave, hadn't it? She laughed and said, Come, sweet sister, let's race back to the river. It will drive our guards quite mad. And without waiting for an answer, she put her heels into a horse and flew. She is so brave, Sansa thought, galloping after her, and yet her doubts still gnawed at her. Sir Loras was a great knight, all agreed. But Joffrey had other king's guard, and gold cloaks, and red cloaks besides. And when he was older, he would command armies of his own. Aegon the Unworthy had never harmed Queen Nerys, perhaps for fear of their brother, the Dragon Knight. But when another of his king's guards fell in love with one of his mistresses, the king had taken both their heads. Sir Loras is a Tyrell, Sansa reminded herself. That other knight was only a Toyn. His brothers had no armies, no way to avenge him but with swords. Yet the more she thought about it all, the more she wondered. Joff might restrain himself for a few turns, perhaps as long as a year, but soon or late he will show his claws, and when he does, the realm might have a second kingslayer, and there would be war inside the city, as the men of the lion and the men of the rose made the gutters run red. Sansa was surprised that Marjorie did not see it too. She is older than me. She must be wiser. And her father, Lord Tyrell, he knows what he's doing, surely. I'm just being silly. When she told Sir Dantas that she was going to Highgarden to marry Willis Tyrell, she thought he would be relieved and pleased for her. Instead, he had grabbed her arm and said, You cannot, in a voice as thick with horror as with wine. I tell you, these Tyrells are only Lannisters with flowers. I beg of you, forget, forget this fully. Give your Florian a kiss, and promise you'll go ahead as we have planned. The night of Joffrey's wedding, that's not so long, wear the silver hairnet and do as I told you. 
and afterwards we'll make our escape. He tried to plant a kiss on her cheek. Sansa slipped from his grasp and stepped away from him. I won't. I can't. Something would go wrong. When I wanted to escape, you wouldn't take me, and now I don't need to. Donta stared at her stupidly. But the arrangements are made, sweetling. The ship to take you home. The boat to, to take you to the ship. Your Florian did it all for his sweet junkle. I'm sorry for all the trouble I put you to, she said, but I have no need of boats and ships now. But it's all to see you safe. I will be safe in Highgarden. Willis will keep me safe. But he does not know you, Duntas insisted, and he, he will not love you. Junquil, Junquil, open your sweet eyes. These Tyrells care nothing for you. It's your claim they mean to wed. My claim? She was lost for a moment. Sweetling, he told her, you are heir to, to Winterfell. He grabbed her again, pleading that she must not do this thing, and Sansa wrenched free and left him swaying beneath the heart tree. She had not visited the godswood since, but she had not forgotten his words either. The heir to Winterfell she would think, as she lay abed at night. It's your claim they mean to wed. Sansa had grown up with three brothers. She never thought to have a claim. But with Bran and Rickon dead, it doesn't matter. There's still Rob. He's a man grown now, and soon he'll wed and have a son. Anyway, Willis Tyrell will have Highgarden. What would he want with Winterfell? Sometimes she would whisper his name into her pillow just to hear the sound of it. Willis, Willis, Willis. Willis was as good a name as Loris, she supposed. They even sounded the same. Uh, a little. What did it matter about his leg? Willis would be Lord of Highgarden, and she would be his lady. She pictured the two of them sitting together in a garden with puppies in their laps, or listening to a singer strum upon a lute while they floated down the mander on a pleasure barge. If I give him sons, he may come to love me. She would name them Eddard and Brandon and Rickon, and raise them all to be as valiant as Sir Loris, and to hate Lannisters too. In Sansa's dreams, her children looked just like the brothers she had lost. Sometimes there was even a girl who looked like Arya. She could never hold the picture of Willis long in her head, though. Her imaginings kept turning him back into Sir Loris, young and graceful and beautiful. You must not think of him like that, she told herself, or else he may see the disappointment in your eyes when you meet. And how could he marry you then, knowing it was his brother you loved? Willis Tyrell was twice her age, she reminded herself constantly, and lame as well, and perhaps even plump and red-faced like his father. But calmly or no, he might be the only champion she would ever have. Once she dreamed, it was still her marrying Joff, not Marjorie, and on their wedding night he turned into the headsman, Ilian Payne. She woke trembling. She did not want Marjorie to suffer as she had, but she had dreaded the thought that the Tyrells might refuse to go ahead with the wedding. I warned her, I did, I told her the truth of him. Perhaps Marjorie did not believe her, 
Joff always played the perfect knight with her, as once he had with Sansa. She will see his true nature soon enough, after the wedding, if not before. Sansa decided that she would light a candle to the Mother Above the next time she visited the Sept, and ask her to protect Marjorie from Joffrey's cruelty, and perhaps a candle to the warrior as well, for Loras. She would wear her new gown for the ceremony at the great Sept of Baelor, she decided, as the seamstress took her last measurement. That must be why Circe is having it made for me, so I will not look shabby at the wedding. She really ought to have a different gown for the feast afterward, but she supposed one of her old ones would do. She did not want to risk getting food or wine on the new one. I must take it with me to Highgarden. She wanted to look beautiful for Willis Tyrell, even if Dantes was right. And it is Winterfell he wants, and not me. He still may come to love me for myself. Sansa hugged herself tightly, wondering how long it would be before the gown was ready. She could scarcely wait to wear it. Aria The rains came and went, but there was more grey sky than blue, and all the streams were running high. On the morning of the third day, Aria noticed that the moss was growing mostly on the wrong side of the trees. We're going the wrong way, she said to Gendry, as they rode past an especially mossy elm. We're going south. See how the moss is growing on the trunk? He pushed thick black hair from his eyes and said, We're following the road, that's all. The road goes south here. We've been going south all day, she wanted to tell him, and yesterday too, when we were riding along that stream bed. But she hadn't been paying close attention yesterday, so she couldn't be certain. I think we're lost, she said in a low voice. We shouldn't have left the river. All we had to do was follow it. The river bends and loops, said Gendry. This is just a shorter way, I bet. Some secret outlaw way. Lem and Tom and them have been living here for years. That was true. Aria bit her lip. But the moss. The way it's raining will have moss growing from our ears before long. Gendry complained. Only from our south here, Arya declared stubbornly. There was no use trying to convince the bull of anything. Still, he was the only true friend she had, now that Hot Pie had left them. Shana says she needs me to bake bread, he told her the day they rode. Anyhow, I'm tired of rain and saddle sores, and being scared all the time. There's ale here, and rabbit teeth, and the bread will be better when I make it. You'll see when you come back. You will come back, won't you, when the war's done? He remembered who she was then and added, My lady, reddening. Arya didn't know if the war would ever be done, but she had nodded. I'm sorry I beat you that time, she said. Hot Pie was stupid and craven, but he'd been with her all the way from King's Landing, and she'd gotten used to him. I broke your nose. You broke Lem's too, Hot Pie grinned. That was good. Lem didn't think so, Arya said glumly. Then it was time to go. When Hot Pie asked 
if he might kiss Milady's hand. She punched his shoulder. Don't call me that. You're hot pie, and I'm Harry. I'm not hot pie here. Shana just calls me boy, the same as she calls the other boy. It's going to be confusing. She missed him more than she thought she would, but Harwin made up for it some. She had told him about his father, Helen, and how she'd found him dying by the stables in the Red Keep the day she fled. He always said he'd die in a stable, Harwin said, but we all thought some bad-tempered stallion would be his death, not a pack of lions. Arya told of Yorin and their escape from King's Landing as well, and much that had happened since. But she left out the stable boy she'd stabbed with needle, and the guard whose throat she'd cut to get out of Harrenhal. Telling Harwin would be almost like telling her father, and there were some things she could not bear having her father know. Nor did she speak of Jake and Hagar, and the three deaths he'd owed and paid. The iron coin he'd given her, Arya kept tucked away beneath her belt, but sometimes at night she would take it out and remember how his face had melted and changed when he ran his hand across it. Vela Morgullus, she would say under her breath. Sir Gregor, Dunson, Polliver, Raff the Sweetling, the Tickler and the Hound, Sir Ilian, Sir Merrin, Queen Circe, King Joffrey. Only six Winterfell men remained of the twenty her father had sent west with Beric Dondarrion, Harwin told her, and they were scattered. It was a trap, milady. Lord Tywin sent his mountain across the Red Fork with fire and sword, hoping to draw your lord father. He planned for Lord Eddard to come west himself to deal with Gregor Clegane. If he had, he would have been killed or taken prisoner and traded for the imp, who was your mother's captive at the time. Only the Kingslayer never knew Lord Tywin's plan, and when he heard about his brother's capture, he attacked your father in the streets of King's Landing. I remember, said Arya, he killed Jory. Jory had always smiled at her when he wasn't telling her to get from underfoot. He killed Jory, Harwin agreed, and your father's leg was broken when his horse fell on him. So Lord Edard couldn't go west. He sent Lord Beric instead with twenty of his own men and twenty from Winterfell, me among them. There were others besides, uh, Thoris and Sir Raymond Derry and their men, Sir Gladden Wilde, a lord named Lothar Mallory. But Gregor was waiting for us at the Mummer's Ford with men concealed on both banks. As we crossed, he fell upon us from front and rear. I saw the mountain slay Raymond Derry with a single blow. So terrible, it took Derry's arm off at the elbow and killed the horse beneath him, too. Gladden Wilde died there with him, and Lord Mallory was ridden down and drowned. We had lions on every side, and I thought I was doomed with the rest. But Alan shouted commands and restored order to our ranks, and though still the horse rallied around Thoris and cut our way free. Six score we'd been that morning. By dark, no more than two score were left and Lord Berwick was gravely wounded. Thoris drew a foot of lance from his chest that night and poured boiling wine into the hole it left. Every man of us was certain his lordship would be dead by daybreak, 
but Thoris prayed with him all night beside the fire, and when dawn came he was still alive, and stronger than he had been. It was a fortnight before he could mount a horse, but his courage kept us strong. He told us that our war had not ended at the Mummer's Ford, but only begun there, and that every man of ours who'd fallen would be avenged tenfold. By then the fighting had passed by us. The mountain's men were only the van of Lord Tywin's host. They crossed the Red Fork in strength and swept up into the riverlands, burning everything in their path. We were so few that all we could do was harry their rear. But we told each other that we'd join up with King Robert when he marched west to crush Lord Tywin's rebellion. Only then we heard that Robert was dead, and Lord Eddard as well, and Cersei Lannister's whelp had ascended the Iron Throne. That turned the whole world on its head. We'd been sent out by the king's hand to deal with outlaws, you see, but now we were the outlaws, and Lord Tywin was the hand of the king. There were some wanted to yield then, but Lord Beric wouldn't hear of it. We were still king's men, he said, and these were the king's people the lions were savaging. If we could not fight for Robert, we would fight for them, until every man of us was dead. And so we did. But as we fought something, queer happened. For every man we lost, two showed up to take his place. A few were knights or squires of gentle birth, but most were common men, field hands, and fiddlers, and innkeepers, servants, and shoemakers, even two septons, men of all sorts, and women too, children, dogs. Dogs? said Arya. I, Harwin grinned. One of our lads keeps the meanest dogs you'd ever want to see. I wish I had a good mean dog, said Arya wistfully. A lion-killing dog? She'd had a dire-wolf once, Nymeria, but she'd thrown rocks at her until she fled, to keep the queen from killing her. Could a dire-wolf kill a lion? she wondered. It rained again that afternoon, and long into the evening. Thankfully the outlaws had secret friends all over, so they did not need to camp out in the open or seek shelter beneath some leaky bower, as she and Hutpie and Gendry had done so often. That night they sheltered in a burned, abandoned village. At least it seemed to be abandoned, until Jack Belucky blew two short blasts and two long ones on his hunting horn. Then all sorts of people came crawling out of the ruins and up from secret cellars. They had ale and dried apples and some stale barley bread, and the outlaws had a goose that Angai had brought down on the ride, so supper that night was almost a feast. Arya was sucking the last bit of meat off her wing when one of the villagers turned to Lem Lemoncloak and said, "'There were men through here, not two days past, looking for the kingslayer.' Lem snorted, "'They do better looking in Riverrun.' "'down in the deepest dungeons, where it's nice and damp.' "'His nose looked like a squashed apple, red and raw and swollen, and his mood was foul. "'No,' another villager said, "'he's escaped.' "'The Kingslayer!' "'Aria could feel the hair on the back of her neck prickling. "'She held her breath to listen. "'Could that be true?' Tomo Seven said. "'Or you'll not believe it.' said the one-eyed man in the rusty pothelm. The other outlaws called him Jack Belucky, though losing an eye didn't seem very lucky to Arya. 
I have had me taste of them dungeons. How could he escape? The villagers could only shrug at that. Greenbeard stroked his thick, grey and green whiskers and said, The wolves will drown in blood if the king slayers loose again. Forrest must be told. The Lord of Light will show him Lannister in the flames. There's a fine fire burning here, said Angai, smiling. Greenbeard laughed and cuffed the archer's ear. Do I look like a priest to you, archer? When Pello of Tyrosh peers into the fire, the cinders singe his beard. Lem cracked his knuckles and said, Wouldn't Lord Barrack love to capture Jamie Lannister, though? Would he hang him then, Lem? One of the village women asked. It'll be half a shame to hang a man as pretty as that one. A trial first, said Angai. Lord Berwick always gives him a trial, you know that. He smiled. Then he hangs him. There was laughter all around, then Tom drew his fingers across the strings of his wood harp and broke into soft song. The brothers of the Kingswood, they were an outlaw band. The forest was their castle, but they roamed across the land. No man's gold was safe from them, nor any maiden's hand. Oh, the brothers of the Kingswood, that fearsome outlaw band. Warm and dry in a corner between Gendry and Harwin, Arya listened to the singing for a time, then closed her eyes and drifted off to sleep. She dreamt of home, not Riverrun, but Winterfell. It was not a good dream, though. She was alone outside the castle, up to her knees in mud. She could see the grey walls ahead of her, but when she tried to reach the gates, every step seemed harder than the one before, and the castle faded before her, until it looked more like smoke than granite. And there were wolves as well, gaunt grey shapes stalking through the trees all around her, their eyes shining. Whenever she looked at them, she remembered the taste of blood. The next morning they left the road to cut across the fields. The wind was gusting, sending dry brown leaves swirling around the hooves of their horses, but for once it did not rain. When the sun came out from behind a cloud, it was so bright Arya had to pull her hood forward to keep it out of her eyes. She reined up very suddenly. We are going the wrong way. Gendry groaned. What is it, moss again? Look at the sun, she said. We're going south. Arya rummaged in her saddlebag for the map, so she could show them. We should never have left the Triton, see? She unrolled the map on her leg. All of them were looking at her now. See, there's Riberon between the rivers. As it happens, said Jack Belucky, we know where Riberon is, every man of us. You're not going to Riverrun, Lem told her bluntly. I was almost there, Arya thought. I should have let them take our horses. I could have walked the rest of the way. She remembered her dream then, and bit her lip. Ah, don't look so hurt, child, said Tom Sevenstrings. No harm will come to you. You have my word on that. The word of a liar? No one lied, said Lamb. We made no promises. It's not for us to say what's to be done with you. Lem was not the leader, though. No more than Tom. That was Greenbeard, the Tyroshi. Arya turned to face him. 
Take me to River Run, and you'll be rewarded, she said desperately. A little one, Greenbeard answered. A peasant may skin a common squirrel for his pot, but if he finds a gold squirrel in his tree, he takes it to his lord, or he will wish she did. I'm not a squirrel, Ari insisted. <laughs> yeah, Greenbeard laughed. A little gold squirrel who's off to see the lightning lord, whether she wills it or not. He'll know what's to be done with you. I'll wager he'll send you back to your lady mother just as you wish. Tom Sevenstrings nodded. Aye, that's like Lord Berwick. He'll do right by you. See if he don't. Lord Berwick Dondarrion. Arya remembered all she had heard at Harrenhal from the Lannisters and the bloody mummers alike. Lord Berwick, the wisp of the wood, Lord Berwick, who'd been killed by Varga Hote, and before that by Sir Amory Lorch, and twice by the mountain that rides. If he won't send me home, maybe I'll kill him too. Why do I have to see Lord Berwick? she asked quietly. We bring him all our high-born captives, said Angai. Captive? Arya took a breath to still her soul. Calm as still water. She glanced at the outlaws on their horses and turned her horse's head. Now, quick as a snake, she thought, as she slammed her heels into the courser's flank. Right between Greenbeard and Jack Lucky she flew and caught one glimpse of Gendry's startled face as his mount moved out of her way. And then she was in the open field and running. North or south, east or west, that made no matter now. She could find the way to River Run later once she'd lost them. Arya leaned forward in the saddle and urged the horse to a gallop. Behind her, the outlaws were cursing and shouting at her to come back. She shut her ears to the calls, but when she glanced back over her shoulder, four of them were coming after her. And Guy and Harwin and Greenbeard racing side by side, with Lem farther back, his big yellow cloak flapping behind him as he rode. Swift as a deer, she told her mount, run now, run. Arya dashed across brown, weedy fields, through waist-high grass and piles of dry leaves that flurried and flew when her horse galloped past. There were woods to her left, she saw. I can lose them there. A dry ditch ran along one side of the field, but she leapt it without breaking stride and plunged in among the stand of elm and yew and birch trees. A quick peek back showed Anguy and Harwin still hard on her heels. Greenbeard had fallen behind, though and she could not see Lem at all. Faster, she told her horse. You can, you can. Between two elms she rode and never paused to see which side the moss was growing on. She leapt a rotten log and swung wide around a monstrous deadfall, jagged with broken branches, then up a gentle slope and down the other side, slowing and speeding up again, her horse's shoes striking sparks off the flint stones underfoot. At the top of the hill she glanced back, Harwin had pushed ahead of Angai, but both were coming hard. Greenbeard had fallen further back and seemed to be flagging. A stream barred her way. She splashed down into it, through water choked with wet brown leaves. Some clung to a horse's legs as they climbed the other side. The undergrowth was thicker here, the ground so full of roots and rocks that she had to slow. But she kept as good a pace as she dared. Another hill before her, this one steeper. Up she went, and down again. How big are these woods, she wondered. 
She had the faster horse, she knew that. She had stolen one of Bruce Bolton's best from the stables at Harrenhal, but his speed was wasted here. I need to find the fields again. I need to find a road. Instead, she found a game trail. It was narrow and uneven, but it was something. She raced along it, branches whipping at her face. One snagged her hood and yanked it back, and for half a heartbeat she feared they had caught her. A vixen burst from the brush as she passed, startled by the fury of her flight. The game trail brought her to another stream. Or was it the same one? Had she gotten turned around? There was no time to puzzle it out. She could hear the horses crashing through the trees behind her. Thorns scratched at her face like the cats she used to chase in King's Landing. Sparrows exploded from the branches of an alder, but the trees were thinning now, and suddenly she was out of them. Broad, level fields stretched before her, all weeds and wild wheat, sudden and trampled. Arya kicked her horse back to a gallop. Run! she thought. Run for river run! Run for home! Had she lost them? She took one quick look, and there was Harwin, six yards back and gaining. No, she thought, no, he can't, not him, it isn't fair. Both horses were lathered and flagging by the time he came up beside her, reached over and grabbed her bridle. Arya was breathing hard herself then. She knew the fight was done. You ride like a Northman, my lady, Harwin said, when he'd drawn them to a halt. Your aunt was the same, Lady Lyanna, but my father was master of horse, remember? The look she gave him was full of hurt. I thought you were my father's man. Lord Eddard's dead, milady. I belong to the Lightning Lord now, and to my brothers. What brothers? Old Holland had fathered no other sons that Arya could remember. And Guy, Lem, Thomas Evans, Jack, and Greenbeard, all of them. We mean your brother Rob no ill, milady, but it's not him we fight for. He has an army all his own, and many a great lord to bend the knee. The small folk have only us. He gave her a searching look. Can you understand what I'm telling you? Yes, that he was not Rob's man, she understood well enough, and that she was his captive. I could have stayed with Hot Pie. We could have taken the little boat and sailed it up to River Run. She had been better off as Squab. No one would take Squab captive, or Nan, or Weasel, or Arry, the orphan boy. I was a wolf, she thought. But now I'm just some stupid little lady again. Will you ride back peaceful now? Harwin asked her. Or must I tie you up and throw you across your horse? I'll ride peaceful, she said sullenly. For now.